Welcome to the mop up. Can you hear me? Dan, can you hear me? Yeah, you sound good. All right. So we welcome to the mop up for August 26, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 89 degrees and partly sunny and the invitations have not gone out. So this is what we're going to do for five minutes, Dan. You and I are going to make small talk. I'm going to relax with my squeaky chair, which I'm going to buy a new one. Uh, as we're going to do a fundraiser for my chair. That's not my chair. That's my hip. I'm an old man. Hey, Dan, can you come on? Sure. Thank you, sir. Uh, I just have to send the invites out. I'm having it's August. How are you? I'm doing great. Is it a little bit of a self-sabotage thing where some, sometimes you don't even invite the audience? Sometimes Whoa. you don't invite the guests. Do we have an audience? We, ha we have an audience. Oh, okay. So I'm in good shape. And, and this is just me vamping. What do we have to look forward to for Community Billboard a little later on in the show? I don't know because I haven't started it yet. Oh, well, that's <laughs> terrible that you would wait to the last minute. Isn't this the most important thing in your life? Yeah, I took a nap after work. Okay. That's I woke not... up at, at 4.40. I was like, oh, shit, got to go. Oh, where's the invite? Oh, no. <laughs> All right. I think I've invited everybody. Hang on. I'd say make, make sure you get Mike Rowe first because he's coming up. Yeah. And then yeah, I have to talk. And then I have yeah. to talk for a few uh, minutes. This is going to be one of those shows today where we, we finally get to see what I'm uh, made of. OK, so the panelists, I've printed out the panelists. There's no need to panic. This is no. this is live mediocrity. This is what it's all about, folks. Bringing you I just have to go into our dashboard. Anything going on in the news that we uh, we need to know about, Dan? Uh, yes. Uh, David did a great job on the Young Turks earlier this week. Yes, I did. Which, which your whole audience dumped into their their YouTube feed, and we were checking out the show, and that that went great. It was so. great. It was absolutely great. And uh, all right, here we go. You got you got some good ones in there. Yeah, you did good. Okay, now all I have to do is import the CSV, and then we can start the show. Yeah. Uh, you did hit record, right? No. It's a good idea to record these your podcasts. I know. I don't record this. I think we're ready to do the show, <laughs> the show now. <sighs> Look, we go, folks, what do we do? We do 104 shows a year. We don't take a break. No, so don't. I just took a little break. I took a little vacation. <laughs> that, they just witnessed it. They just witnessed my vacation. <laughs> God, I need a vacation. I don't know how to just what am I going to do on a vacation? What am I going to do? All right. Thank you for indulging me. Welcome uh, to the mop up for August 26th. I'm David Feldman. And there's a lot to talk about. It's uh, our top story, of course, is it's the uh, we're coming. We're weeks away from me finding the, the soundboard. Okay. Uh, we are weeks away from 9-11, where America looks back at uh, it's the 20th anniversary. Let me just get organized here. Now I'm ready. You ready? No, I'm not. Hang on. Uh, 
if I were you, I'd go watch Sam Cedar and come back. This is just going to be a train wreck. Go go watch Sam Cedar's show. Uh, okay. What was I talking about? I was talking about the uh, 9-11. 9-11. This is 9-11 redux. I got it. I got this. I got this. I got it. I got it. Hang on. Uh, I was too ambitious. That was the problem. Uh, yes. Okay. Our top story, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is just weeks away. And Rudy Giuliani is taking it very Mr. 9-11. He was seen grooming himself for the, the big event. He's already, you know, getting himself ready. Here he is at, at, at JFK Airport, shaving, uh, waiting for his flight. And look at him just shaving away there. And uh, he's waiting for his flight. Maybe he's waiting for his flight or maybe he lives <laughs> at JFK Airport. Things are not going well for, for Rudy Giuliani shaving at the airport. But, you know, he wasn't farting. That's the one thing we know about Rudy Giuliani. He does not fart in public. And then there was uh, his cohort, uh, Kaylee McEnany. That's Trump's old uh, press spokesman. And she said something really smart that I, I, I agree with her. We are eight months into a Biden presidency, Jesse. Wrap your head around that. We still have three <laughs> years and four months left. Look, when President Trump was president, you didn't see crisis after crisis. You just didn't see it. No, you didn't, because his entire presidency was one big crisis. You just uh, you didn't see that. Uh, I have to check one more thing here. OK, we're on speaker. You can hear me, Dan, right? It's the middle. I'm telling you, go go watch Sam Cedar. Unless you like unless you're a rubberknacker, if you enjoy looking at train wrecks and car crashes, stay tuned. Otherwise, rewatch Sam's show today. Well, the other big story is that forced uh, vaccines for the military. I want to talk about that. Uh, this makes it harder to fight. No, that's not wars. what I wanted to show you. Uh, this is what I wanted to show you. So now that the Pfizer vaccine has been approved, the department is prepared to issue updated guidance requiring all service members to be vaccinated. A timeline for vaccination completion will be provided in the coming days. Uh, the health of the force uh, is, as always, uh, our military and our civilian employees, families and communities is a top priority. So. I'm not going to get into this whole vaccine thing. I dipped my toe into it with Bill Maher earlier this week, and it was amazing. The feedback, the attacks that uh, that I received for being uh, pro vaccine. Well, we have a problem with our military. We have a lot of uh, white nationalists. We have a lot of uh, police officers and military guys who showed up for the insurrection on January 6th. There are a lot of military men who are showing up at town hall meetings threatening another insurrection if they're forced. If if these mask and vaccine mandates are instituted, well, how do you fight? How do you suss out who in the military is a, a white nationalist who uh, would take arms against his own country? I think the forced vaccination in the military may actually solve this problem for General Austin. It's very simple. 
you have forced vaccinations in, in the military. Those who refuse to get vaccinated, they leave the military. And I'm just thinking, I'm just spitballing here. We can find out who the enemies of America are within our ranks, the ones who refuse to get vaccinated. I think it's a good idea to force the military to get the shots. We'll know who's on board the premise of America and who isn't. Rachel Maddow has signed a $30 million contract with MSNBC. Good for you. $30 million a year, $30 million a year over at MSNBC. And uh, I would assume then that her writing staff has gone union. I know that they were trying to organize the writers at MSNBC. And now that she's getting $30 million, I can't imagine Rachel Maddow signing a $30 million contract with MSNBC and not making sure that her writing staff is union. So Thank you for signing a union contract. I, I'm I don't I don't even have to check. I don't even have to check. I know that that Lawrence O'Donnell and Rachel Maddow are champions of the Writers Guild and the unions, and they would never allow their staff to be non-union. And this is a great deal for Rachel Maddow. She's a uh, being paid $30 million not to do her show. She's being paid $30 million to produce a series of specials each year, but she no longer will do her nightly show, $30 million. You know, I'll be honest with you, I would have paid Rachel $60 million to no longer do her nightly show. I guess the question is, is Rachel Maddow worth $30 million? And, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Seems like $30 million a year could be spent on hiring 300 full-time reporters, all getting union benefits sent around the country to report the news, to be out in the, the field and tell us what's going on. $30 million, that would get you 300 full-time reporters that would give you a rock solid newsroom but then again what do i know i get my news from msnbc so i'm a moron why would you listen to me today we dump on joe biden that, that's what we do here on the show i'm a little reluctant to dump on him but that's what we do uh there comes a time when you have to quit. And I'm talking about Afghanistan, not Joe Biden. I, I, I do think Joe Biden should quit, but I know who's next in line. And uh, it's even worse. Horrible, horrible, his choice uh, for vice president. So we have two choices in Afghanistan. We can stay or we can go for another 20 years. Or we can admit that this is a failure and that America can't police the world because we can't police America. The problem we have in America is a commander in chief is not allowed to admit defeat. And when you when you watch the mainstream media, you realize they're not allowed 
to say defeat. Never say defeat. That's the rule here in America because it demeans our troops. That's what we're told. If you say we lost in Afghanistan, you're doing a disservice to our our brave soldiers, sending them to Afghanistan for 20 years, putting them on like 10, 20 tours of duty. That's not a disservice to our soldiers. Sending them into Iraq without enough equipment, body armor, making cuts to the VA, that's not a disservice to our troops. The worst thing you can do to our troops is say we lost in Afghanistan. Those are the rules. But I'm not sure infantilizing our troops is necessary. I think they're adults. And I think infantilizing our troops uh, is disrespectful. And I'm absolutely sure that not admitting that we lost in Afghanistan By doing that, in the end, that only serves to create more veterans in more wars that we haven't lost. Now, today, a suicide bomber killed 13 people at the Kabul airport. And four Marines were killed. This is climate czar John Kerry testifying to Congress in 1971 in his uniform after he came home from Vietnam. We are asking Americans to think about that because how do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? How do you ask David Feldman to, what's going on here? That would have been good if I, uh, okay. Uh, How do you ask a man to die for a mistake in America? It turns out you don't. Here's General Hank Taylor yesterday talking about Afghanistan. Our mission remains unchanged. Yeah. Why would you want to why would you want to change the mission? (laughs) It remains steadfast. That's our mission remains unchanged because we have a mission and that mission is pulling out of Afghanistan and we should be proud of that mission. Going into Afghanistan was a mission and now pulling out of Afghanistan is a mission that all Americans should be so, so proud of. I'm pleased to report our best departure results since evacuation operations begin uh, have happened in the last 24 hours. We're 37 U.S. military aircraft, 32 C-17s, 5 C-130s departed from Kabul with approximately 12,700 personnel. On top of that, 57 coalition and partner aircraft left Kabul aircraft with 8,900 personnel. That is America. We are, we're back. Nobody pulls out of a war the way we do with that kind of power and ammunition. And uh, not just General Hank Taylor was proud of the mission and what a great job we were doing. Jen Psaki, her P is silent. P 
P-S-A-K-I. Jen Psaki, the White House press spokesman, whose P is silent, she said this about the job we're doing right now in Afghanistan. Uh, I would say that this is now on track, Peter, to be the largest airlift in U.S. history. Uh, so, and that is uh, bringing American citizens out. It is bringing our Afghan partners out. It is bringing allies out. Uh, so, no, I would not say that is that anything but a success. It, yes. I will not say it is anything but a success. See, you don't have to ask a man. Kerry, you don't have to ask a man, John Kerry, to be the last man to die from a mistake. This was not a mistake. This was the greatest retreat in the history of warfare. It's a success. It's your tax dollars at work. It's 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 shock and awe shucks. We lost. It makes you proud. It really does make you proud to uh, to have a military industrial complex and look at all that military hardware we are using to run out of Afghanistan with our tails between our legs. Nobody, nobody in the history of civilization has more firepower than America when it comes to retreating. That sends a strong signal to anybody overseas, any bad actors overseas who's thinking of messing with us. If you attack us, you are going to be met with the greatest retreating firepower ever known to mankind, one that we can be proud of. And now in a retreat, and this is what it is, it would be nice if we could admit that we lost and then look into why we lost and make sure we never, ever try to occupy another country. It shouldn't surprise us. And I'm going to shit on Biden because he's the commander in chief. But it should not surprise you that this is a debacle because you've got to think of the Afghanistan war as a department store in a small town that was run by idiots and it's going out of business. And a new store is coming in to take over the, the, the real estate. And Joe Biden runs the store that's going out of business. And he's ordered all his incompetent employees who ran the business into the ground to empty out the store. All the things that we were selling, empty it out so we can move out and make room for another store. It shouldn't surprise you that if your employees who drove your business into bankruptcy are still being used to shut the business down, that's also going to be a debacle. See, it's going poorly in Afghanistan, and that is proof of why we need to get out of there. Now, when you're retreating, it's very important to deploy military tactics. You have to seize the moral high ground in a retreat. They teach you this at West Point, the West Point School of Communications. You never cede the moral high ground, especially if you're at war with the press and you have enemies in the press firing questions that leave you defenseless. 
Now, here is Jen Psaki, her pee is silent. Uh, she's the White House press spokesman, and she was completely unprepared, completely. She had no ammunition. But this is really brilliant military. Uh, this is a brilliant military communications officer, tactician. Steve Ducey asked an impossible question. He fired a missile of doubt at the press secretary. But watch how adroitly Jen Psaki cherry picks one word that Steve Ducey says, and then she deflects and distracts. It's brilliant. She seizes the moral high ground, even though she's defenseless, she has no weapons, but she's still able to seize the moral high ground. Does the president have a sense that most of the criticism is not of leaving Afghanistan, it's the way that he has ordered it to happen by pulling the troops before getting these Americans who are now stranded? Does he have a sense of that? First of all, I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They are not. We are committed to bringing Americans who want to come home home. We are in touch with them via phone, via text, via email, via any way that we can possibly reach Americans to get them home if they want to return home. There are no Americans stranded is the White House's official position on what's happening in Afghanistan. Right? I'm just calling you out for saying that we are stranding Americans in Afghanistan when I said when we have been very clear that we are not leaving Americans who want to return home, we are going to bring them home. And I think that's important for the American public to hear and understand. Yes, it's not what you do, it's what you say. Now, Joe Biden has left Americans, oh, well, I won't call them stranded. Let's just say uh, prone in Afghanistan. He completely shit the bed on the evacuation of the troops and the Americans over there. And Steve Ducey asked a very uh, difficult question. We're not criticizing the pullout. We're criticizing the way you pulled out. You left people stranded. And Jen Psaki accuses him of using the wrong word, stranded. That's not fair. How many arguments have you gotten into somebody into with somebody from customer service or or how about this? Uh, the doctor calls you and says he killed your grandmother. He accidentally fell asleep on her uh, windpipe. And you say, really, let me get this straight. You have an M.D., you're a doctor. And you fell asleep on my grandmother's windpipe. And the doctor says, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't like your tone of voice. I'm going to end this conversation right now. How, you know, if you're going to talk to me in this way, I don't deserve to be talked to in this manner. How many, every day of my life, somebody throws that back at me. They screw up and I'll go, really? I don't like the tone of your voice. What, what did I say? You said, really? I can't, I can't, uh, I'm sorry. This, this conversation is over. That's what Jen Psaki, whose pee is silent, did with Steve Ducey. She and the Biden administration fell asleep on your grandmother's windpipe and killed her, but they don't like your tone of voice. It's much more important 
what you say and how you say it than what you actually do. And, and Steve Ducey should not have used the term stranded. And uh, so Biden is taking a real beating. Luckily, he probably doesn't even realize it. And he's taking the beating from all sides, uh, especially from Sean Hannity, who loves our military, right? I mean, he loves the flag. He loves the military. He's constantly saying things like uh, our, our, our soldiers, if you're against the war, then you're against our soldiers. He is for the military until the military has a Democratic commander in chief. Then it's OK to criticize the way the war is going. Uh, and you're not dishonoring our troops because that's what people like Sean Hannity say when people like us want to end a war. Right. What what about the troops and their families? If we if we pull out now, how are you going to explain this to our the troops and their families? When you criticize the war and the way it's being conducted, that's an attack on our troops. Unless the commander in chief is a Democrat, in which case our troops are rhetorical cannon fodder by the commander in chief. Uh, this makes it harder to fight future wars. Senator, it is you know, we impeached Donald Trump over a phone call with Ukraine. Is that not yeah, an impeachable offense? Is this not uh, rise uh, to the level of dereliction of duty, abandoning Americans absolutely. in a foreign country, not getting them out when you had control of Kabul in May, June, July, yeah. not ha not doing the right thing, getting them out, knowing they're on the march? There's no consequences for that except yeah, politically. He should be impeached. Uh, this is their election of duty by the commander in chief. Uh, this makes it harder to fight future wars. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did, did he just said, did he just say this makes it harder uh, to fight future wars? Is that is that what he said? Hang on. Uh, this makes it harder to fight future wars. Future wars. He's talking about uh, future future wars. Lindsey Graham is already planning our next war. We haven't even finished up this one, and he's already planning our next war. You know, this is this is why Lindsey Graham is a bachelor. He never got married. He never found the right woman because he's got a wandering eye. He cannot commit. Look at him. He cannot commit to one war. He's insatiable. He is just a stud. He, he there's always a better war over the horizon. Like, I bet when Lindsey Graham was fighting in Afghanistan or sending troops into Afghanistan or Iraq, he was thinking of another country while he was doing it to Afghanistan and Iraq. That's the kind of stud Lindsey Graham is. And that's why he's a bachelor. Like he's shoving the men into Afghanistan and Afghanistan thinks, oh, they must, Lindsey Graham must really want to destroy us. But he was fantasizing about another country like Iran, perhaps, or Pakistan. Lindsey Graham, this is why he's a bachelor, because he's you know, men, 
they're they're all alike. They cheat. They're never happy with the war they have, that wandering eye that so many men have. Well, it turns out that Lindsey Graham is actually monogamous. He is committed, it turns out, to a permanent war. This is from uh, Bob Woodward's book, Fear. It came out on, uh, let's see, nine would be September, September 12th, 2018. So this is what Bob Woodward writes. You've got to tell Trump how this ends, Vice President Mike Pence told Senator Lindsey Graham at one point regarding the war in Afghanistan. It never ends, Graham told Trump. It's good versus evil, and good versus evil never ends. See, Lindsey, Lindsey Graham is just for war in general. You know, he loves war. He says it's a constant battle against good and evil. He told Trump that war is basically a, a permanent state of nature, and we just have to, to keep fighting. And then he made a mistake with Trump. According to Bob Woodward, Lindsey Graham accidentally said that we have to keep fighting Islamo-fascists all over the world forever because, and this was the mistake, he said they're like Hitler. Big mistake. That's not how you sell Donald Trump on war. And once Lindsey made the mistake of comparing the Islamo-fascists to Hitler, Trump decided, well, why would we want to kill Hitler? Why would we want to kill fascists? And so Trump wanted out. He wanted to get out of Afghanistan. But there's a little problem with getting out of Afghanistan. We don't negotiate with terrorists. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Questions for his national security advisor, Susan Rice, on CNN's State of the Union with Candy Crowley. Point blank, did the U.S. negotiate with terrorists for his release? Well, well first of all, we didn't negotiate with terrorists. Should uh, that exchange be made? Should that kind of a swap be entertained with terrorists? You know our policy on that, uh, Michael. We don't uh, we don't either negotiate or uh, make exchanges or pay ransoms. We think that uh, results in uh, just more uh, cash floating around with these uh, very hateful characters. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Why haven't we heard the president say the United States does not negotiate with terrorists? Is that still the U.S. policy? Well, of course it is, Peter. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Taliban, great negotiators. Tough fighters, great negotiators. Hmm. I guess we do negotiate with terrorists. In fact, right now, our CIA chief, William Burns, is on a secret mission to Afghanistan. It's secret. Of course, we know about it because it's the American CIA, but it's still a secret mission. But this is uh, true. He's on a secret mission. You can look it up. It's uh, everybody knows about it, but it's still a secret mission because it's the CIA. Uh, William Burns, Biden's pick for the CIA, is on a secret mission in Afghanistan as we speak, and he is secretly 
negotiating with the terrorists. He's negotiating with the Taliban. And I know you're upset hearing that, but Biden is smart. He sent the CIA to negotiate with the Taliban, not Blinken, not our brilliant secretary of state from West Exec. He founded the lobbying firm West Exec. You would think, you know, if you're going to negotiate an end of war, you use the State Department. But no, we we have our CIA negotiate uh, with the Taliban. And uh, that's smart. That way, if you have the CIA negotiating with the Taliban, you can still say in America that we don't negotiate with terrorists because it's the CIA, which means technically it's terrorists negotiating with other terrorists. Completely different. So even though we don't negotiate with terrorists, The Afghan government and Taliban met today in Doha, Qatar for the start of peace talks. The historic negotiations aim to form a power-sharing government between the two parties and thereby ending more than 40 years of war. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was on hand saying the United States hopes for, quote, sustainable peace and an enduring partnership with Afghanistan. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Mike Pompeo doesn't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, Well, Mike Pompeo kind of negotiated with terrorists. And as recently as November 21st, 2020, Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump's secretary of state and head of the CIA, who doesn't negotiate with terrorists, he met with the terrorists, the Taliban in Doha, just hours after the Taliban attacked Kabul, killing at least eight people. But it's okay, because Mike Pompeo was in charge of the CIA. So that's not America negotiating with terrorists. It's the CIA, which means it's terrorists negotiating with other terrorists. America does not negotiate with terrorists. The CIA does. Okay. So Trump, who doesn't negotiate with terrorists, has been uh, negotiating with uh, terrorists for two years, even though, even though we don't negotiate with terrorists. What we do is we send the CIA and When Trump negotiates, he talks tough. This is this is what Trump said on August 17th when he was criticizing the debacle that's going on right now. Last week he was on Sean Hannity and Trump said, and I quote, we had a great deal. We worked on it very hard. Mike Pompeo, he's talking about the the uh, deal with the terrorists. Mike Pompeo, a brilliant guy and many others worked on it endlessly, meetings with the Taliban, of course, because you have to meet with the Taliban. They're the ones that you're negotiating with. This is Trump. I spoke on numerous occasions to the head of the Taliban, and we had a very strong conversation. I told him up front, I said, look, before we start, 
Let me just tell you right now that if anything bad happens to Americans or anybody else, or if you ever come over to our land, we will hit you with a force that no country has ever been hit with before. See, that's how you talk. That's how you talk to terrorists. You get tough with them. That's how you negotiate with terrorists. That's what Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo taught us. You, you, you negotiate from a position of strength. And that's why after about two years of the Trump administration negotiating, Trump and Pompeo tough talked a deal. And, and they ended the war in Afghanistan. The troops came home peacefully. There were no problems at the airport. It was brilliant because we had tough guys talking tough, not negotiating with terrorists. And then Biden, the illegitimate president, he takes over a couple months ago and suddenly the war in Afghanistan, it's back on. It was we had just ended it through tough negotiations and. Biden becomes president and he doesn't talk tough. And when you don't talk tough, our our troops end up going back to to Afghanistan and the war is back on. You need to talk tough. That's the important thing. You need to talk tough. That's how you win. Uh, you know who knows that? Eric Trump. He knows how you should talk. And if I can find it, it'll be great. Here's Eric Trump yesterday on Fox News telling us how his father dealt with this. Here we go. Get off your knees, Joe Biden. Stand up and actually show the world some leadership as, as the commander in chief. You know, the reason my father got hostages back from all over the world was he didn't put up with nonsense. You know, if you guys are going to act like animals, we're going to treat you like animals. We're going to drop a Moab on your head. Soleimani, we're going to take you out with a, you know, a, with a Reaper drone. And he showed the world that he didn't play around. That's the exact opposite of Joe Biden. Yeah, that's the exact opposite of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is weak. You know, he doesn't talk tough. And if he talked tough, he could have the same success with the Taliban that Donald Trump had. But he won't talk tough. Here is Kevin McCarthy. He's he's uh, uh, going to be the Speaker of the House unless this infrastructure bill gets passed. Here's Kevin McCarthy telling us how to deal with the Taliban. Here he is. At no time should America ever bend or allow the Taliban to tell us when we have to stop bringing Americans out. We should stay until every single American is able to get out of Afghanistan. And we should use every recourse possible to make that happen. And we should not negotiate it. We should explain that this is what is going to happen. And anybody in our way to stop us from bringing an American out will be in danger. Wow, that gives me the whew. You don't want to mess with that guy. He made it clear we don't negotiate with terrorists. This is the way it's going to be. Kevin McCarthy, he's a tough guy. That's tough talk. That's what's missing from the Democratic Party. 
And you know who's tough? Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, running for reelection. And here, this is what Marco Rubio, this is how he says Biden should have handled the situation. This is the way the process should have worked, okay? The way, what Joe Biden should have said is, we have these people and we have this equipment and we're gonna get it out of Afghanistan and we'll leave once we have all that stuff. And anyone who gets in the way, including the Taliban who tries to stop us, is going to be killed. You will die if you get in our way. Not August 31st and not September 1st, not August 29th, not a date, a goal. Yes, not a date, a goal. And you just, you just, you just stick to it. Uh, and that's the problem. That is the problem uh, with the Democratic Party. And that's also the problem with people who actually served in our military. Uh, Marco Rubio, uh, uh, McCarthy, uh, Eric Trump, they never served in our military. And, the, you know, when, once you actually see a war, it does something to you. It weakens you. Like John Kerry, who served in Vietnam, you end up talking like this. We are asking Americans to think about that. Because how do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? You can't see what that does. He saw action in Vietnam and, and he doesn't talk tough anymore. Our soldiers don't talk tough enough. That's that's the problem. That's the problem. And our Democrats don't talk tough enough. But there is one. Somehow he got through war and he wasn't stripped of the courage that Eric Trump and and uh, McCarthy and Marco Rubio have some somehow seeing action in Afghanistan did not strip this man of the courage to talk tough. He's an ex-Navy SEAL who, who claims to have killed Osama bin Laden. And, and you know he's telling the truth because he's always on Fox News. So if he says, if Fox News says he killed Osama bin Laden, uh, then you know he's telling the truth. So let's listen to him. His name is Robert O'Neill. He's from SEAL Team 6. And he has something really important to say. Let, let me play if I can find it. Here is Robert O'Neill. He's a Navy SEAL. Here he is. I told you it was going to be a bad show today. I told you to watch Sam Cedar. This is what you end up with when you watch me. That was uh, the wrong seal. Okay, uh, wrong one. Let's listen to the the right seal if I can find it. Here is uh, O'Neill. Okay, this is a tough talking soldier. Yeah. I don't want to be in charge, but if I was, oh, I want to get the Americans. Cool. Give me nine guys. I'm going to walk through the streets. I'm going to kill everyone I see and I'm going to grab the Americans. It is not difficult. But we have these people who are in charge that are a disgrace. I am amazed that there hasn't been at least 30 generals and admirals that haven't resigned or been fired today. But we won't because we have a commander in chief that was put there through whatever happened at four in the morning on election night. There you go. 
tough talk from a soldier. Finally, somebody who's actually seen action, who's tough talking tough, not like John Kerry or Colin Powell or, or General Mark Milley. They're cowards. They serve in war. They see what war is actually like and they come back and they they've lost the ability to talk tough, but not Robert O'Neill. He's a true patriot. And that's what we need. That's how you, it's not difficult. It's not difficult to win a war. It's not difficult. And when we lose the war, it's not difficult to lose it properly. You just have to tell the Taliban this is the way it's going to be. And they're going to back down because when you defeat America and they're retreating, America gets to dictate the terms of that retreat, not retweet, retreat. Uh, you get to dictate the terms of a retreat when you're the most powerful country on earth. And that's what Joe Biden just doesn't understand. It's it's those are the rule that's might makes right. We're the most powerful country in the world. When we lose a war like we did in Afghanistan, we get up in the Taliban's grills and we say, this is how it's going to be, partner. We'll leave on our clock, not your clock, because we just lost. That's how it works. Those are the laws of nature. And Joe Biden just doesn't understand that when you retreat and lose a war, you decide how it's going to go. Not the winner, the loser. OK, it's all about how you talk. That's how you get elected. And that's how you win wars. Tough talk. Uh, George W. Bush, great man, smart. Well, not smart, but, you know, he he trusted his gut and he got us into this war and, uh, you know, he talked tough. And I like that. I like that. When Osama bin Laden first attacked the uh, well, wasn't the first time he attacked, but when the Twin Towers came down and when the Pentagon was attacked, George Bush just straight talked it. He just made it clear this is not not on my watch, not on my watch. I'm not Bill Clinton. This is we're going to we're going to get you. We're going to get you here. This is George Bush right after 9-11. I just remember I'm, all I'm doing is remembering when I was a kid. I remember that uh, they used to put out there in the old west a, a wanted poster. It said wanted dead or alive. All I want, America wants him brought to justice. That's what we want. Thank you very much. Dead or alive. And that, that was a little problem. And now Rumsfeld is thinking, no, you pinhead. Dead, not alive, dead. Dead men tell no tales about you know who. And there's Wolfowitz telling him we want him dead. We don't want a trial. Not dead or alive. Dead. No matter what, we cannot put this man on trial. Little mistake. He should have said wanted dead, not dead or alive. That's why we liked that's why we liked George W. Bush. He talked tough. It made me feel good hearing my president say we're not going to get pushed around. And so he invaded 
Iraq in 2003. And it didn't go as planned, but uh, he didn't know, and this is true, that there were Shiites and Sunnis. He just thought they were Arabs. This is true. Nobody told him that the Sunnis and Shiites don't get along. But, you know, that's what happens when you think with your gut instead of your head. Doesn't matter. We're America, okay? Trillion dollars a year on defense that we know of. And so there was like a little, the elite Republican guard started killing our soldiers. And here's what, uh, here's what tough talking George Bush did. Let me finish. Um, There are some who uh, feel like that, you know, the conditions are such that they can attack us there. My answer is bring them on. Bring them on. Come on. I loved it when he said that because, you know, I wasn't in Iraq. I wasn't a soldier. Uh, You know, he was inviting. He was like, come on, let's fight. And I love that as long as I don't have to do the fighting. Bring them on. Good for you, George W. Bush. Uh, Well, George Bush talked tough from the gut. And we, you know, some of us, you know, children of the Enlightenment, we don't like that. We don't like that. We like to have it explained to us by an effete intellectual from The New York Times. Somebody like, oh, I don't know, Thomas Friedman, who who has studied the the Middle East, who's written books about the Middle East, who is a columnist for The New York Times. Here is Thomas Friedman, who still has a job over at The New York Times. Here he is doing a much better job than George W. Bush did for us intellectuals. Uh, Here is uh, Thomas Friedman explaining the invasion of Iraq. This was in early 2003, just when the war started. The uh, the statue of Saddam Hussein had toppled and it was mission accomplished. It wasn't bring him on. It was it was mission accomplished. Uh, and here's Thomas Friedman explaining to us intellectuals uh, why this war was necessary. He was on Charlie Rose. And what they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house from Basra to Baghdad. Um, and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think, you know, we care uh, about our open society. You think this bubble fantasy, we're just going to let it grow. Well, suck on this. Okay, That, Charlie, was what this war was about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia. It, it was part of that bubble. Could have hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. That's the real truth. There you go. Suck on this from Thomas Friedman, New York Times, who's still there, by the way, opining. We could have hit Pakistan. We could have hit Saudi Arabia. We hit Iraq because we could. Hmm. What does that mean? It means that Saudi Arabia, which attacked us on 9-11, Uh, is a friend of the Bush family. And Pakistan is a nuclear power, so we can't attack them. So we picked Iraq because we could. Uh, And he still has a job 20 years later. 
at the New York Times, and you'll always see him on Meet the Press and all the, the TV shows, suck on this. Suck on this. Wow. Yeah, I like that. Suck on this. Well, there were smart people, not just George W. Bush, who thought with his gut. There was Dick Cheney, for example, who, you know, he was the uncle who was going to oversee the war. And he made this promise. He went on Meet the Press March 16th, right before we went in there. He said we should expect as American citizens that this would cost at least $100 billion for a two-year involvement. He, uh, that's Dick Cheney. He intimated that we actually might make a profit on the war. He misspoke. What he meant to say is, I would make a profit off the war. Halliburton, my old company, would make a profit off the war. He kind of told us that a it was a $100 billion investment, and uh, it was well worth it to bring democracy and freedom to the Middle East. And of course, the oil. We were going to make out like bandits. We were going to make out like bandits. We were assured by Dick Cheney and the Republicans who are, you know, these guys are fiscal hawks. So they're not going to waste money invading Iraq. They're going to do it efficiently. And so uh, let's find out how that actually went. What, what did it cost? He said $100 billion. This is from the Military Times, February 6, 2020. The Military Times says, even if the U.S. administration decided to leave or was evicted from Iraq immediately, the bill of war to the U.S. to date would be an estimated $1.922 trillion in current dollars. So let's say $2 trillion. We'll round up. This figure includes not only funding appropriated to the Pentagon explicitly for the war, but spending on Iraq by the State Department, the care of Iraq war veterans, well, if you're going to start counting that, and interest on debt incurred to fund 16 years of U.S. military involvement in the country. So that's uh, $2 trillion just for the war in, in, in uh, Iraq. We're, we're talking about Afghanistan. Okay, money well spent. I don't care how much money we have to spend. If we're sending troops into harm's way, spend $5 trillion. I don't care what you, uh, what you spend. That money was to keep our soldiers safe. So I'm okay with it. Unfortunately, suck on this quarterly, it's one of my favorite magazines, uh, on July 9th, 2021, wrote... As of July 19th, 2021, this is from Suck on This Quarterly. No, no, it's according to the U.S. Department of Defense casualty website. This is from the U.S. Department of Defense website. I, you know, I don't know if you're going to believe this. I mean, you know. uh, as of July 19th, 2021, according to the U.S. Department of Defense casualty website, there were 4,431 total American deaths including both killed in action and non-hostile, and 31,994 wounded in action as a result of the Iraq war. We're not talking about Afghanistan, by the way. We're talking about uh, bring them on and suck on this. That was Iraq. All right. Uh, well, 
that didn't go well, but we were there to liberate and help the people of Iraq. And I'd like to know how that went. How did it go for the people of Iraq? Well, according to Suck on This Quarterly, this is from January 30th, the January 30th, 2008 edition of Suck on This Quarterly. No, I'm sorry, it's Reuters, London. They write, more than one million Iraqis have died as a result of the conflict in their country since the U.S.-led invasion in 2003, according to research conducted by one of Britain's leading polling groups. And that's uh, 2008. That would be uh, 13 years ago. Hmm. I'm sure it hasn't gotten any worse. I'm sure it's gotten better in Iraq. Uh, Tough talk. I I, I like tough talk. And uh, George W. Bush, interesting guy. At the end of his presidency in 2008, he was holding a joint press conference with Tony Blair. Great statesman poured over the intelligence from his from MI5 and MI6, and he was brave enough to ignore it and say, we're going to war. I like Tony Blair. So George W. Bush was holding a joint press conference and he was asked a question as the war was winding down, as he saw his tough talk uh, and where it got him and uh, how the war was going. Here's, here's a, a clip from the press conference. Here's a clip from the press conference. Mr. President, you spoke about uh, missteps and mistakes in Iraq. Could I ask both of you which missteps and m- mistakes of your own you most regret? Uh, saying bring it on. Kind of tough talk, you know, that sent the wrong signal to people. That um, I learned some lessons about uh, um, expressing myself maybe in a little more sophisticated manner. You know, wanted dead or alive, that kind of talk. Um, it, uh, I think in certain um, parts of the world, it was misinterpreted. And uh, so I learned, I learned from that. Yeah, that, that is a haunted man. That, that's a haunted man. He, uh, he, he began to realize, it dawned on him, that he made a mistake. He, uh, he talked tough. That, that, was, that was his biggest regret. The way he talked. Not what he did. He didn't apologize for what he did to Iraq and Afghanistan. He didn't apologize for 9-11, which happened on his watch. Even, you know, they got the intelligence reports. Condi Rice got the intelligence reports in August of 2001. Right around this time, 20 years ago, on Condi Rice's desk was an intelligence report that said, Osama bin Laden intent on flying American planes into American buildings. And it was August and Condi Rice said, eh, it can wait. 
It can wait. Uh, she ignored the intelligence report. No apology there. None whatsoever. No apology for lying about the invasion of Iraq, claiming with absolute certitude that there were weapons of mass destruction. We had proof. We didn't. And he was lying about that. And most of all, lying to us about 9-11, saying Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11, when in fact it was Saudi Arabia. Something like 15 out of the hijackers, 15 out of the 20 some odd hijackers were from Saudi Arabia who funded 9-11. Unfortunately, they also funded the Bush family. So, you know, we could have attacked anybody, as Thomas Friedman said. We could have made anybody suck on this. Could have been Saudi Arabia. Could have been Pakistan. Turned out to be Iraq. Could have been anybody. But uh, after eight years of uh, losing the city of New Orleans, uh, the uh, financial crisis, Iraq, Afghanistan, the only thing he regrets is what he said. Bring him on or wanted dead, dead or alive. No apologies in America for what we do. We apologize for what we say. So if the kid from Fox News, Ducey, says uh, the uh, Americans are stranded in Kabul, Jen Psaki can make him out to be the demon because the word stranded is irresponsible. Stranding Americans in Afghanistan, that's okay. But to call it stranding, you've done a disservice to our troops because they're the ones who are over there trying to evacuate our Americans. And, and if you say they're stranded, what do we tell the families of our troops? We do not apologize for what we do in America. We apologize for what we say. Never apologize for invading the wrong country. Apologize for what we say. And never, never say surrender. Never, never say surrender because, again, we're not surrendering in Afghanistan. We're simply redeploying our troops and equipment to a new beachhead. That's what the military is telling us. That's what Biden, that's what the mainstream media is telling us. Nobody is saying we lost. But the American people, they know we lost. The truth is the American people didn't want these wars. These wars poll very poorly. And most Americans don't approve of Biden right now, but they do approve of surrender. We didn't want these wars. Barack Obama won the Democratic nomination in 2008 because he was against the war in Iraq. And in 2004, Howard Dean almost got elected or got the Democratic nomination because he was against the war in Iraq from the start. But we gave it to John Kerry because he was more statesmanlike. And he, in the 2004 presidential campaign, ran 
as a prosecutor, he prosecuted the war in Iraq. And, you know, he almost beat Trump because by 2004, the American people had quickly soured on the war and they knew that they had been lied to. The American people knew that the Bush administration was a a bunch of lying racketeers and, and Kerry almost won. So the American people, they know that these wars are wrong. And that's why Obama got elected president. Obama was in Illinois. He was a state legislator and he came out against the invasion of Iraq. He was prescient. So people people liked him. He was he got it right. Everybody in Washington got it wrong. He got it right. And he ran with the credentials of I knew this war was a mistake. And uh, of course, his war was Afghanistan that in his estimation, he told us that was the good war. Uh, But, you know, Afghanistan, uh, different story. Obama promised to put an end to the forever wars. He didn't, but American people voted for him because they hoped that he would change the military. And Donald Trump, Donald Trump got the Republican nomination because he ran against George W. Bush. Even though George W. Bush was no longer running for president, he ran against the war in Iraq. He ran against the GOP establishment who refused to admit that Iraq was a mistake. Yeah, I think Trump should go to prison, but he is probably the only draft dodger. He's a draft dodger who actually did something good for our country and our military. Well, first, the best thing he did for our military was dodge the draft. I don't think uh, if he served in the military, uh, Vietnam would have gone even worse. I, uh, you know, but uh, so we should be grateful he didn't serve in Vietnam. Uh, but here's what he did that was a gift to our military. He made it settled law in America, especially in the GOP, that Iraq, invading Iraq, was a mistake and based on a lie. And this was a suicide mission in 2016 because Jeb Bush, George W. Bush's brother, who was governor of Florida, and so he was able to help George W. Bush steal the election from Al Gore in 2000. Jeb Bush, it was his turn. He was George's brother and he was running. He was running in 2016 and he had a war chest as big, if not bigger than Hillary's. It was, I think, the biggest war chest. It was a bottomless war chest. People were just pumping money into Jeb Bush's war chest like it was our war chest, America's war chest. And and just like America's war chest, Jeb Bush squandered all the money. Mike Murphy was the guy who uh, wasted that entire war chest. So, of course, he's now on MSNBC. He's been on the show, actually, Mike Murphy. Nice enough guy. Uh, 
uh, but it was for the war. Uh, so just like America, Jeb Bush squandered the war chest because he didn't really know why he was there. He didn't understand the mission and he was dishonest. He, he lied to the voters, just like our military, and he lied, just like our military, to himself. Jeb Bush refused to admit that his brother made a mistake. He was running for president in 2016, and he could not bring himself to admit that his brother destroyed our military, Afghanistan and Iraq, would not level with the American people. It took him five tries to come up with an explanation for his position on Iraq, where we still had soldiers at the time. You know, uh, Obama had brought most of them home, but we still had a presence in Iraq. And Jeb Bush, this is, you know, the establishment could not come up with a convincing argument or position on Iraq. This is from the South Carolina GOP debate in 2016. Big debate, important. This was after Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. You're going into the old Confederacy, which means you're hitting the pro-war the pro-war Southern Republicans who we like to think love war. Let's watch Jeb Bush and Donald Trump going at it at the 2016 South Carolina debate. On Monday, George W. Bush will campaign in South Carolina for his brother. As you said tonight, and you've often said, the Iraq war and your opposition to it was a sign of your good judgment. In 2008, in an interview with Wolf- By the way, he was for the war in Iraq. But the point is, he he's a pretty uh, adroit liar, Donald Trump. So he claimed that he was against the war, but he was on the Howard Stern show saying it was a good idea to invade at the time. And in his book in 2000, Trump wrote a book in 2000 saying that we should just go in there and finish off Saddam Hussein. But that doesn't with Trump. He sold he was selling himself as Obama on the right, that I knew this war was wrong. You should vote for me. And that's a suicide mission when you're running for the Republican nomination in 2016. President George W. Bush's conduct of the war, you said you were surprised that Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi didn't try to impeach him. You said, quote, which personally I think would have been a wonderful thing. A close quote. When you were asked what you meant by that, you said for the war, for the war. He lied. He got us into the war with lies. Do you still believe President Bush should be impeached, should have been First impeached? Of all, I have to say, as well, that is a tough question to ask in front of a group of Republicans in South Carolina where Jeb Bush is on the stage and you have the Bush family in the audience. That's a tough question. So I would expect somebody like Donald Trump to backtrack and be more diplomatic. Let's see. I get along with everybody. I have business all over the world. I know so many of the people in the audience. And by the way, I'm a self-funder. I don't have, I have my wife and I have my son. That's all I have. I don't have this. So 
Let me just tell you, I get along with everybody, which is my obligation to my company, to myself, etc. Obviously, the war in Iraq was a big, fat mistake. All right. Now, you can take it any way you Ooh, want. We're, uh, please applaud. That's a, that fell on deaf ears. That audience was filled with the Republican establishment. That should have, you know, he just said the war in Iraq was a big, fat mistake. You don't talk that way to Mo Green. You don't talk that way to Jeb Bush and the Republican establishment. Je- it took Jeb Bush, if you remember, at the beginning of his announcement, when he announced the president, took him five days. He went back. It was a mistake. It was a mistake. Took him five days before his people told him what to say. And he ultimately said it was a mistake. The war in Iraq, we spent two trillion dollars, thousands of lives. We don't even have it. Iran is taking over Iraq with the second largest oil reserves in the world. Obviously, it was a mistake. So. George Bush made a mistake. We so, can make mistakes, but that one was a beauty. We should have never been in Iraq. We have destabilized right. the Middle East. But so you, so okay, I, so you're running for president. You want the Republican nomination and you're running against your own party. That is not smart. You, so you still think he should be impeached? I think it's my turn, isn't it? You do whatever you want. You call it whatever you want. I want to tell you, they lied. Okay. They said there were weapons of mass destruction. There were none. And they knew there were none. There were no weapons of mass right. destruction. Okay. Go, all right. Governor Bush. When a member on the scene. Oh, wow. They booed. The bell went off. This is, you know, you can't talk that way to Republicans. And Jeb Bush, you know is going to set Donald Trump straight. He's going to he's going to talk about Iraq now because, you know, you're going to say that. You're not going to get away. I get about five or six. I get to do it five or six times or just once responding to that. So here's the deal. I'm sick and tired of Barack Obama blaming my brother for all of the problems that he's had. Whoa, 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 whoa. That isn't Barack Obama. That's Donald Trump. So, hmm. Okay. And frankly, I could, I could care less about the insults that Donald Trump gives to me. It's blood sport for that, him. He enjoys that, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Th- th- those aren't insults. Those are facts. Those are facts. Let me play that again. I'm glad he's happy about it. He's but I am. One- hey, uh, go, all right. Governor Bush. When a member on the stage's brother gets attacked, I get brother about gets five or six. Do I get to do it five or six times or just once nice. responding to that? So here's the deal. I'm sick and tired of Barack Obama blaming my brother for all of the problems that he's had. And frankly, I could I could care less about the insults that Donald Trump gives to me. It's blood sport for him. He enjoys it. And I'm glad he's happy about it. He's but I am, sick and, tired, I am sick and tired of him going after my family. My dad is the greatest man alive in my mind. While, while Donald Trump was building a reality TV show, my brother was building a security apparatus to keep us safe. And I'm proud of what he did. He's had the gall to go the after World my Trade mother. Center came He's down had the gall to go after brain. my mother. Remember that. Hold on. Let me finish this. He's had the gall to go after my mother. Whoa, you can't say that. He said the World Trade Center came down on your brother's watch? The world trade, 9-11 made George W. Bush 
He made Rudy Giuliani. You can't say that. The lottery when I was born. Family. My dad is the greatest man alive in my mind. While, while Donald Trump was building a reality TV show, my brother was building a security apparatus to keep us safe, and I'm proud of what he did. And he's had the gall to go the after World my Trade mother. Center came he's down had the gall to go after brain. my mother. That? Hold on. Let me finish. He's had the gall to go after my mother. That's not keeping Look, us I won safe. the lottery when I was born 63 years ago and looked up and I saw my mom. mom my mom is the strongest woman I know. She should this be is running. not about okay. my family or his family. Okay. This is about the South Carolina families that need someone to be a commander in chief that can lead. Go I'm on. that person. Go. Well, that that's it. I mean, it's like you can't talk that way uh, to the Republicans. You're running for the Republican nomination in South Carolina. This is Lindsey Graham's Lindsey Graham's state. This is this is, you know, you can't talk that way and expect to to win in South Carolina. You saw the audience's response. They were booing Trump. That was three nights. Well, hang on. That was uh, three nights uh, before the election, the, the primary in South Carolina. CNN projects Donald Trump, the billionaire real estate magnate, will win the South Carolina Republican primary. This is a huge win for him coming off of New Hampshire, where he won impressively. He is the winner, according to our projection, based on actual numbers coming in, based on what's going on in the uh, uh, the estimate of the exit polls. They're obviously thrilled over at Trump headquarters. Wow. He won in South Carolina after getting booed in South Carolina by the audience. One would have thought he lost that debate. Uh, Trump won South Carolina and then went on to run the tables. And uh, but then he became president and uh, the tough talk continued. And, and that was the problem was just tough talk. But uh, Donald Trump won the nomination in 2016 because he said the unsayable. The American people don't want to be treated like children. He treated the American in that debate. He treated the American people like adults. We're infantilized. We infantilize our soldiers and and we're not allowed to wave the white flag of surrender overseas. And and that's just that's just childish. We're, we're, we're behaving like children. Americans can't wave the white flag of surrender overseas, but we have no problem letting the white flag fly here at home. We've surrendered the war on poverty. We've surrendered in providing free health care to all our citizens. We've surrendered to providing a decent education and free college to all Americans who want it. We've surrendered our jobs to private equity firms who strip the companies of their assets and then ship what's left of the company to the cheapest labor pool overseas. We've surrendered to the oil companies, which means we've surrendered to climate change. We've surrendered on 
building free or at least affordable housing for those who need it. I mean, look at all the homeless we've surrendered to realtors. We've surrendered to the credit card companies. We've surrendered on making sure that every American has enough to eat. We've surrendered on providing drinking water to the people of Flint. We're going on a decade in Flint and they still don't have drinking water. We surrender all the time, but just not when it comes to a war overseas. So what do we owe the women and children of Afghanistan right now? I think we should first decide what we owe the women and children of America. Because here in America, we have surrendered. We have the worst medical care, for those of you who are lucky enough to get any, in the industrialized world. We have the worst medical care. There was a new study out, and it says we have the worst medical care for those who are lucky enough to get any in the industrialized world. We spend more than anybody else on medical care than anybody else in the industrialized world, but we're losing. Kind of like our Defense Department, we spend more on weapons than anybody else in the world, and we're losing in Afghanistan. Our infant mortality rates are some of the highest in the industrialized world. Cuba has a lower infant mortality rate than America. You tell me how spending a trillion dollars a year on defense is keeping us safe. We have raised the white flag of surrender to the hedge fund managers and the billionaires who refuse to allow Congress to put money into the Internal Revenue Service so it can collect the $1 trillion in unpaid taxes each year. We have surrendered $1 trillion a year to the richest 1% who don't want to pay their fair share of taxes. Right now, one of the compromises on the infrastructure bill is not to pay for it by investing in the Internal Revenue Service. We've surrendered, which means you and I are more likely to get audited than Warren Buffett. Poor people are more likely to get audited because of the income tax credit than Warren Buffett. We have surrendered. We have waved the white flag of surrender to corporate lawyers, lobbyists, and Jim Crow era Senate rules like the filibuster that make it impossible to give Americans what they want. So feeling bad about surrendering in Afghanistan, which is what we are doing, Give me a break. We surrender all the time. And we get away with it because nobody's ever held accountable in this country for what they do. That's the problem. It's always what they say. 
And the fact that Thomas Friedman can still have a job with the New York Times is unconscionable. It is unconscionable that Thomas Friedman could go on Charlie Rose and opine this way. By the way, Charlie Rose is gone. And he should be gone because he was a sexual predator and he was abusive and he said and did things that were horrible and he should be fired. And what they needed to see. But if what Thomas Friedman, when you watch Tom, I'm going to play this, I'm going to end on this. This is Thomas Friedman talking to Charlie Rose in 2003. You tell me who should lose his job first. And what they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house from Basra to Baghdad um, and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think, you know, we care uh, about our open society. You think this bubble fantasy, we're just going to let it grow. Well, suck on this. Okay, that, Charlie, was what this war was about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia. It was part of that bubble. Could have hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. That's the real truth. Doctors who talk that way lose their license. How many, a million Iraqis, conservatively speaking, are dead because Thomas Friedman explained it? to the intelligentsia that way in the New York Times. Unforgivable, unforgivable. And he still works at the New York Times and he uh, sleeps at night. He sleeps at night. Uh, I'm going to end on, uh, is Mike Rowe here? Did Mike Rowe come in yet? I'm running. Mike is here. Oh, he is. Okay. Uh, Well, I'm sure he wants... (laughs) to come on after this. Uh, sorry, Mike. I'm sorry. Let's uh, let's let's uh, let's end on something upbeat. OK, this is uh, this was my favorite one of uh, the week. This is. Uh, can I find it? Here it is. This is either from Newsmax or. O-A-N-N-N-N-N-N. This is... This is this guy Cortez. This is, this is how the Republicans manipulate the American people. Is the mass migration of Afghan men to America really a good idea? Good for your wife, your daughter? The left will call us racist for opposing any amount of migration at all, since they believe in open borders. But we have to be brave enough to put up with their ridiculous aspersions and brave enough to discuss cultural differences that matter. Will these Afghans share our values? Will they try to assimilate into the American way of life? It's not likely. (laughs) That is like the worst thing. I couldn't believe somebody sent that to me. He's just saying they're going to come and rape our wives and daughters. This is what they've sunk to. Okay, Uh, my apologies to Mike Rowe. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, thank God, thank God, Mike Rowe will join us. (laughs) 
like a Feldman Coast party because a Feldman Coast party don't stop. Well, let's continue the levity because this is a laugh protest, not quite a riot. Please welcome Emmy Award winning comedy writer. And he's the author of the best selling book. It's a funny thing. Our friend Mike Rowe. Thank you very much. Here we go. Thank you. Uh, I like I like how you throw it to me, kind of like uh, like uh, the throwing it to sports. You know, here's Mike with the sports. <laughs> I just wanted to be like I wanted to be an AM DJ. I just wanted mm-hmm. to be, hey, it's ninety two degrees right now. Super Sam Saga to you twenty seven degrees is sitting right now. We got the stacks of wax reveals and jacks and late sounds and great sounds. <laughs> I was a turn you on before she turned you down to bed in the kiss booth. It's young folks, old, old folks, young. Coming at to 19. 66 NBC. Right. I remember that. That's great. I remember that. Oh, my God. How are you? How are you holding up? uh, I'm just hoping someday there's a... A day where I feel like wearing pants. That's all I'm hoping for. At this point. Hmm. Let's look at your apartment this visit. Let's see. Oh, it's... Uh, so the hurricane came through the apartment? I'm not, I, come on, I just... No, it looks nice. I don't. I didn't recognize it without the price tags on everything. I don't, I don't know what I'm saying, but that doesn't matter. David, doesn't matter, right? It matters. You're you the COVID thing. The fact, the COVID thing. I, at this point, I'm just staying emotionally distant. <laughs> You're staying emotionally. Is that, that does that work? It keeps me safe emotionally. It mm-hmm. doesn't break my heart. Because it, it's killing me. I'm telling you something. Yeah. I'm telling you. I'm okay now. I'll tell you something. Uh, <laughs> I have I'm, I've been putting on weight since the pandemic, the smallpox pandemic. <laughs> doing the uh, I, like, I like doing the comedy half sentence after the joke. Uh-huh. I because uh, you know, I, but, uh, but uh, by the way, too, I, and since my mayor, this is good to bring this up. You have to uh, you have to be careful of the vaccine still. I mean, I hate to, I'm not a conspiracy person, but got the vaccine, went in my kitchen, past the fridge, all the magnets came at me. <laughs> I, 
So you got the Moderna. That's the Moderna. That's it. Yeah, that was yeah. my favorite movie by. Uh, <laughs> so you're so you're ma- you're magnetic. I you're even more magnetic than you already were. Well, the secret is staying busy. You know, Johnny. I'll tell you, you know, I'm okay. <laughs> uh, I'm still working. I'm very excited. That, I think I told you this, but the uh, the backup camera in my car got a second season. <laughs> I started a uh, Viva Viagra cover band. (laughs) Um, We'll be on the uh, Look for Our Working Hard tour. (laughs) The Viva Viagra cover. They're great. Well, I see them on MSNBC. I see them on Fox. They are Mm -hmm. something else. They really are great. Hard rock. They play hard rock. Well, you know, the group, the groupies are happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, what else have I been doing? I just, I went, I actually got out. I did get out. I went to, uh, I went to see, I went to the museum to see a showing of the uh, Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, well, it was actually uh, Vincent Van Gogh's lesser known brother, Jerry Van Gogh. <laughs> uh, for Jerry Van over, Gogh. Yeah. And a thing yeah. for everybody over 50 who will get the reference. Right. He uh, painted Coach, I believe. Yes. And, and he played uh, Vincent's younger brother, Stacy, on the, right. the, the Vincent Van Gogh show in the 60s. That's correct. Right. What are you listening to the game? <laughs> what's, uh, what's happening over there? Cherry Van Gogh. That's the, f- uh, that is, you know what? That is like, that makes me so happy. It's like, you know, it reminds me, like, if I smoke dope, that I'd be on the floor all day from Jerry okay. Van Gogh. But doing heroin, you just kind of... <laughs> Jerry Van Gogh. <laughs> um, if I uh, talk about my... Uh, I'll talk about my book for a second. Yes, By it's a way, funny thing you... how the professional comedy business made me fat and bald, a comedy memoir. And again... Buy the book. If it doesn't make you happy, I will reimburse you. I promise you. I will That's reimburse it. anybody who buys the book and writes to me and said, this doesn't make me feel happy. And if, if you read it and you don't feel happy, you roll it up, shove it up your ass, and you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> now, you went to get suppositories. Remember when you were buying suppositories and yes. they weren't working? That was my birthday. Yeah, you were by, and, and the and the doctor said, uh, "Are you taking?" He said, "What's up?" He said, What's oh. up? He said, "Are you taking these suppositories properly?" And you got insulted and said, uh, "I said I don't remember the joke, doc." No, I'm shoving them up my ass. Uh, don't you remember that nice. joke? I, that's nice. That would be a fun thing to do: is to get some street jokes. Anyway, we'll talk and just turn them into conversations. I think, what if you had a doctor as a guest and he did doctor jokes? But he doesn't tell us that he's doing doctor jokes. Right. So, like, we're talking with Dr. Dr. Mike Rowe. Uh, What's it like these days with COVID? And, you know, what are your patients like? What do they ask you? What does everybody ask you? Like, the last guy that came in, uh, you know, kind of heavy. You know, I told him to... uh, 
drop his pants, go towards the window and stick out your tongue. He goes, is this a test? I said, no, I don't like my neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) It must be Uh, tough. Uh, What's it like uh, giving uh, bad news to your patients? I I would assume. Well, there was. uh, You have. How do you break it? How do you break it? I told him he had six months to live. Mm hmm. He couldn't pay his bill, so I gave him another six months. <laughs> um, Wasn't there, I remember uh, I was making the rounds with you at the hospital, Mount Sinai, and there was, you had to break it to a man in the waiting room that his wife survived this horrible accident. Well, that was the, that was one of those unfortunate good news, bad news moments. Yeah. You know, it was the whole family. <laughs> they had the dog with them. Uh-huh. It was and an aunt and an old lady who was randomly with them. And I, I said, I got good news, bad news. I said, your, uh, your spouse is not going to make it. Mm. And she said, what's the good news? I said, see that nurse over there? I'm screwing her. <laughs> um, that kind of eases the pain. A little, yeah, it, it, they they cry one second and the next, and then they're happy. Away. It's life affirming. It's, like, it's it's like the better version of the Robin Williams movie where he's dressed as a clown. <laughs> Patch <laughs> Adams, a comic to show up and do shtick, right? And you know, but in all seriousness, I mean, we're joking around. You do have a medical degree, and I used to make the rounds with you when you were at Mount Sinai, and I remember there was a a woman who was in a horrible, horrible car accident. And yeah. she she broke her legs, her arms. She was completely paralyzed from the eyebrows down. And you had to go sit and talk to the husband and tell him what was in store for him for the rest of her life. Do you remember that story? You might have to refresh my memory. You, you, I, I was there and you let me see this. I said, you, you know, this is just I've got horrible news for you. Uh, your wife is going to be confined to a bed for the rest of your life. You're going to have to uh, wash her and bathe her and feed her and change. Do you remember this? Uh-huh. I mean, it's a common thing, but I don't remember this one specifically. You know, you say you 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 said uh his name was Mr. Geldfarb, and he said, I've got horrible news. Uh, your wife is going to be confined to the bed uh, forever, and you're going to have to change her bedpan and wash her and clean her and wrap her and unwrap her. And mm-hmm. it's going to be 24 hours of taking care of her. And Mr. Geldfarb said, this is just terrible. And you said, I'm just kidding. She's dead. Oh, I don't remember that. You don't remember that? And the no, guy no. was so the guy said, oh, man, he, he was so that's the best way to tell somebody that, that. <laughs> it's in truth now. And it's in my book. Yes, it's a funny thing. The best selling book. It's a funny thing. How the profession. I told you I told you other book, the uh, history of crazy glue. It's great. I can't put it down. <laughs> I'll do a look. I've done those jokes before, but look. Wait a second. I thought the history of Crazy Glue was written by Seymour Hare. No. Uh, I'll think of something funny later. Oh, he wrote Cellophane uh, Bikini. He wrote Cellophane Bikini. Um, 
I know you're crazy, but now I can see your nuts. Is that the title of it? I'm not sure. Um, so, and, so people should know and be refreshed. Now, this book, this is the truth. Like, if, first of all, if anyone's interested in the comedy business, show business, and especially, you know, young people in their hometowns are like, I could never do that. I, I don't have the, the wherewithal to get out of my hometown. But I was that person. I was this little schmuck in my hometown. And I kind of mustered the courage to chase my dreams. And that's kind of what you can do when you read this book. It's hopefully inspirational. And that's just, just about show business. But, you know, like, you, you, why not go after those goals that you thought you could never obtain? Because if I could do it and reach some success, maybe you could even do better than me. Pick up the book. But in the book, I, I talk about you know, trying to figure out how to a lot of times work with my idols, like comedian. Uh, uh, oh, you're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me. Mention somebody else. Don't embarrass me. Oh, you can see I'm not wearing pants. I don't know. <laughs> no, you said that you got to work with your idols and now you're on my show. Uh, but I, I'm a humble guy. So bring up somebody else. Who else did you get to work with other well, than David? Uh, I wrote on uh, the Martin Short show and Martin Short had a, a, a five night a week talk show that came on at 11.30 at night and at some places in the middle of the afternoon. And it took a minute for Martin Short to learn how to, he's used to doing sketches and that was his comfort zone. And he had to kind of learn how to, to figure out how the nightly show works because there was just not enough time to shoot a sketch every night. So we had to come up with the sort of talk show thing that, you know, like the refillables, mm -hmm. you know, like, like Letterman's top 10, Right list and that sort of stuff, sort of the right. quick stuff. So I brought to the show with me something I stole from myself that I did on another show. And it was a list thing. And it was things you'll never see. Right? Just things you'll never see. Like a, a t shirt that says, I heart the Crips. <laughs> you'll never see it. So uh, because it's not very challenging. The writers were mad at me every time that they said, all right, guys, we got to do things you'll never see. And they roll their eyes at me. And then when I brought it to the Martin Short show, especially after like figuring out they couldn't get a sketch done in time, that would be the dreaded uh, Michael Short, Martin's brother, would come to the writers and say, okay, guys, we got to do things you'll never see. And everybody like rolls their eyes at me because it's not challenging. So to prove it, 10 minutes before I came on air, I wrote a short list of things you'll never see. Things you'll never see. And you wrote things this, you, you wrote this at the last minute. Right. Uh, just to prove my point that like, there's no challenge. For example, things you'll never see. Uh, Betty White at a cockfight. <laughs> right? That's perfect. Yes. You, right. uh, she's an animal rights so, person. Exactly. Joe Biden doing the crate challenge. <laughs> that is weird, weird stuff. That is things you will, uh, a a uh, Nicki Minaj moo moo. Nicki Minaj moo moo. Something you'll never see. That is, never, never, never. Cats too. <laughs> I didn't even see Cats 1. No. Cats 2. We're never going to see that. Never, ever are we going to see that. 
Cats one, audience zero. <laughs> <laughs> that was the uh, review on that one. Things you'll never see. A carpet warehouse in Encino called Afghan Stands. <laughs> stands. Maybe Things stands. Yes. Maybe you would see stands Afghans, but not. Perhaps. Perhaps. No. But this is something you would never, ever see. Not. Never. 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 They this is great. This is important. This is this is you're actually providing a public service to people because, you know, Donald Rumsfeld always talks about the unknown knowns and the known knowns. This is stuff that they that we are missing out on. You're, you're telling us that I, I am. This I'm is important. People uh, who might go on a journey and go. I want to see Betty White in a cockfight. Let's go find it. You're never going to see it. Information they would know. Well, they're wasting your time. Yeah. Anything else? Any other things? I got one more little one here. This is a thing you'll never see. Billy Porter Jr. (laughs) I got him out of the business. Am I right? Am I right, people? Oh. oh Christ! I'm not yeah. Anyhow, um, so the summer—it's uh, August in yeah. LA. Best time to visit, right? Yes, uh, the holidays are here. You know why? The pumpkin spice. Everything is already coming out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then comes what comes right after Halloween. Comes what Mother's Day? Uh, hypoglycemia. Oh. Uh, now, do you I, celebrate I, Halloween? Did you do you have fond memories of Halloween? Did you ever get dressed up? You, Halloween, I uh, I used to go to Times Square and watch him throw a ghoul off the building at midnight <laughs> for a half hour. I don't even know what is it. Sometimes you talk in striped joke. You don't know. Uh-huh. Do you miss uh, Times Square before you were married? You used to work in Times Square. I'm being serious. Uh, Did you do you remember that you used to work in Times Square? Yes. It's funny. I was just there with my sons. I hadn't been there in a while. Uh, did, did he see your old mop from Show World? You used to be the uh, mop guy at Show World, I believe. This people don't. Again, I think that's a Dennis well, Miller. I think I just hang on. I think I just stole a Dennis Miller joke. Um, I, there was. Uh, I remember going to the, this is true in the book. When I, I have a background in electronics. Uh, I didn't go to high, I went to high school for two years and then went to shop for two years because it was deemed that I did not have, I was not college material. So I went to a vocational school. From there, this true all in the book, worked uh, for NASA on a space shuttle out of high school. Uh, what? Went to- No, seriously. Yeah. You worked on the space shuttle? Yes. Uh, in Danbury, Connecticut, I took, uh, we built these components called transducers. Hey, hey, watch it. We, we don't call them that anymore. Oh, I, we fixed they. Right. Transducers with, that sounds like something you would see in a bathroom that, no, no. They, it's, go it's ahead. what I saw on Times Square, which is what I think. <laughs> um, they don't know what's true anymore, though. As I know. This is true. I don't know what's Because I, I did work on, on the space show. In fact, when I interviewed at Futurama for a job with Matt Groening and David Cohen, among other things, the second they heard I worked on the space shuttle, 
you know, it was like, you know, your office is right over here. Come on, you know, so. Then you told him it was the challenger. <laughs> it was the one that where the tiles fell off. Right. Do you remember that? I remember that, yes. Um, but I made these components called transducers, and they took fuel and air pressure, converted them to digital readouts, and I had to put them under these test conditions. So I would, you know, put them in an oven at 4,000 degrees or freeze it at, you know. You did that? And then I had to record the data, put it into a computer, and then it would take tell me what corrections to make in the circuitry to keep them within their proper tolerances. Um, I'm in awe. You're telling so, the truth, right? Yes. yes. Wow. Um, I worked uh, um, I, w- I worked in this tiny room with these two Vietnam vets who had no sense of humor. So that was rough. What happened? Why, why, they came so, back, they lost their sense of humor in Vietnam. That was, you would think you would come back f- from Vietnam uh, laughing up a storm. Well, was that? Or, never mind. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I like, like we had a, a microscope and I put a little sticker on it that said Peep Show 25 seconds. <laughs> and they, they didn't think it was funny. And it's true, we, we would we would make this... Is uh, this, this is in the book. Yes. You're right. Uh, we made this, this glue, this special, you know, NASA-specific glue that you had to go into a dust-free room you mix the thing very specifically, and it was only good for like nine minutes, and then you had to throw it away. And I'm carefully with the you know dust-free robe making the glue. I bring in an office, and I'm putting Q-tips and sticking them on the wall, on the ceiling, pulling them up. But that was my, uh, I didn't find the humor in that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, quite frankly, either do I. <laughs> Did I serve in Vietnam? If I don't find that um, fun. Well, this is close. <laughs> um, Vietnam finally came to an end. This podcast is a, is a quagmire. So the so in the in the in the story in the book, uh, this is true, and you get into the gritty details of because of my electronics background. My day job when I was doing stand up was I worked for an audiovisual repair uh, rental place, and once a month, I had to go to the uh, porn theaters in Times Square during the height of that. Yeah, what's the por- re- refresh my memory? What is a porn theater? Uh, it had it would show movies. Mm-hmm. It would have like those old school sixteen millimeter, you know, the whirring like. I see. And it would be any number of the sex, you know, I don't even. I don't, they could have been all the same movie with different titles, but then. So that must um, oh, hang on. So people used to watch porn together. As opposed yes. to alone in the, what that? Why don't we bring that back? Uh, when COVID's over, I can make some calls. Yeah, that, I would love to watch porn with other guys. That would, be, you know, this was like this was eleven thirty in the morning. Even better, and, it's like Branson. Like when I came into the theater, the projectors would go off, and then a live show would start on the stage on this little. It's like this nasty little theater 1980s like live bedroom acts which I thought like a lady would come out and change linens or something (laughs) you know at my age that would make me hard (laughs) Um, so 
like, for example, this is true, like, projectors came off, woman comes out dancing, and the audience is like eight, ten people, there's like a homeless guy, uh, some, you know, bridge and tunnel people, there's always, there was always like a Wall Street guy, suit, briefcase, always in the, and the woman, bikini <laughs> comes out, dances, takes off the top, hands it behind the curtain, takes off her bottom, hands it behind the curtain, and then the next woman comes out to dance, and she's wearing the same bikini. <laughs> she just handed it off through the curtain, and the woman—it's like two naked women in one bikini. Wow! That's true. Uh, Th- and that's then, like the Terminator comes on the stage and playing. <laughs> this is all really documented in the book. If you want to know what New York City was like in 1981, so the Exterminator would come on. And guys watched it, like get ready for the exterminator, right? It, it did sort of come in the rhythm of like, come out, dance, strip, go on, come out, dance, strip, and then exterminator come out and spray, and then walk off. I got to be honest, you don't know about my problem in my apartment, but I'm pretty well, I sure. See it. I, I, I'm pretty sure if the exterminator at Show World was any good, I would get off. If I could see him actually filling the holes and spraying, well, these, I would spray. I mean, they, those were rough roaches in there. Like, they tried the Roach Motel. Remember the Roach Motel? Yeah, the Roach Motel, yeah. Not only did they uh, check out, they stole all the towel. <laughs> Am I right? Anybody? Roach Motel, 1980s. Nobody. They still have Roach Motels. Oh. Yeah, I believe they're called uh, uh, La Quinta's. <laughs> no, um, they still have. You can still buy. Believe me, I've been buying Roach motels. In New York City, I lived there at my apartment, man. It's it, it was a t- it was in Midtown. It was a studio, but it was three hundred and forty dollars a month. That same place is three thousand a month. Right. It's uh, actually it's two rooms. It's a bathroom and a fire escape. <laughs> and, uh, I, you got to lean in, right? <laughs> on the, the punchline. Anyway. Well, this is, uh, um, how's your mother? Good. Uh, I'll think of something funny later. Good. Um, this was, you know, this was, uh, this was amazing. Uh, uh, we needed this. Uh, I mean, it's, anyway, uh, especially you had to follow <laughs> one of the saddest most depressing uh you know thank you for coming on we'll do some know, you and you're still going th- you're still What's going that? through your you're still going through your mom's stuff right i'm still going through maybe i'll find some more footage at some point no i, I meant know? like what fits like what what, what 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 you're going through your mom's stuff and i want to know what fits maybe you can pass some of it to me i see yeah. well i'll send you the Nicki minaj mumu <laughs> Mike Rowe is the author of the best-selling book, It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald, a comedy memoir. And it is a bestseller. It really is. When you, it was doing nicely. It would still pop up once in a while to the top something, 100 or 30 or whatever. I don't know how it works, but. Wow, that's fantastic. Go buy the book. And I promise you, if you write to me and say, I wasn't 
happier after reading it. I will reimburse you. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mike Rowe. Peace. Peace. Well, let us now go. Oh, that's adorable. That is so cute. That is so. I am. <laughs> Dr. Ethan. Dr. Ethan and Philip Hershenfeld join us. Doctors. Doctors. Oh, I'm sorry. Doctors. Uh, oh, and you didn't add. This is Dr. Hershenfeld. You know what annoys me about your son? Tell me. He didn't put an apostrophe on doctors. Everybody see the Oxford apostrophe, <laughs> and I abjure that. Uh, no, I was impressed. We don't use apostrophes. I was I was impressed that you didn't add an unnecessary apostrophe. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst. He is joined by the world-renowned expert Ethan Hershenfeld, who is an expert in everything. There's nothing this including, man, including um, apostrophes. Do you know what it's <laughs> called when you use too much of them? What? It's called uh, it's called apostrophe profligacy. <laughs> you can sprain your tongue trying to say that. So your your message is that people should be more possessive of their apostrophes and not yeah, use them. Don't waste apostrophes. Conserve. By the way, parenthetically. <laughs> in, uh, in, in England, in England. The quotation mark is the apostrophe and vice versa. It's it's very confusing. If you ever tried to read English literature in actual English, it's it's very confusing. Why is Super color? One of the one of the questions I've always wanted answered is why do the British spell color with a U? Because uh, if you're English, only you have color. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see. Well, the, yes, it does. Uh, the, the, we have a little mystery here. Uh, usually, Dr. Hershenfeld is in Manhattan and Ethan, Dr. Ethan is, but you're together and it looks. Yeah, we're, you know why we are together? It's to save you money. <laughs> regular show, we each have a yeah, hairstylist, yeah. a lighting guy. A, a photography guy, a set designer, and that adds up. The bills on you now. You, we just cut it in half. Yeah, one of those people. I appreciate that. I'm going to guess by the you guys look really relaxed, really happy. Yeah, and it's August. I'm going to guess mm -hmm. you're. In, are you in Cape Cod? Where else? Yes. Yeah. Where the Jews go to Hampton. Are you in Truro? Yes, that was the original uh, license plate for Truro, Massachusetts, where the Jews go to Hampton. That was back when Hampton was a verb, and when it when the Hamptons were restricted. Uh, How did you guys uh, hold up with Henri? Henri didn't visit these climbs. He just just was. It's restricted. Restricted. Yeah. So you you got out of it. It was okay. Truro, they they have nude beaches. Do they still have nude beaches? Oh, that was that was in the 70s. That was back in the day where this guy used to go and watch the boys and girls play volleyball. <laughs> this is what's called a screen memory. Do you know what that is? No. Like, All right. A screen memory is where 
you confabulate a memory, which has more of the qualities of a dream or a fantasy, but you impute it to a memory. And then you, in this case, you also, it's a screen memory plus projection. You're yeah. putting that whole it, thing onto it, me. It is a projection because I would go there to watch the boys. <laughs> <laughs> Are there people who have too much body acceptance? When you saw some of those people, yeah. Uh, not, not in my book, no. You've never suggested a case of body dysmorphia to anybody. What's bad, what I don't like is that a lot of the people who do have a little bit too much body acceptance are also interested in the sport of hacky sack. <laughs> and that's a terrible combination. You should not combine the two. That's, Ask uh, your doctor no. if body dysmorphia is right for you. There are certain people who... Uh, that's is true. that an act of aggression, do you think? Sometimes when you see certain... It is? But everything is an act of aggression, so that, that's an easy one. Okay, so let me ask you what it's like to take a vacation in August, and does your mind get to a place where you say, why can't I do this 52 weeks out of the year? Can, I would assume you're not working. I am mostly not working. I'm doing a little paperwork. And, and right like now, that. he considers this work. <laughs> Could you completely stop? Could you just enjoy the beach? I've been thinking that this time. I don't think I ever seriously considered it before. On my show. He comes from a long line of workaholics, like his father, true, who worked true. seven days a week until he, he was into well into his 80s. Um, I did not get that gene. Um, I've I mean, I'm, as I've said, I'm uh, I'm involuntarily unemployed at the moment. Um, but um, but I have a capacity. I like napping, as I've said. Um, I don't check in with the office frequently because I don't have an office. Um, and uh, I don't find that to be a problem. <laughs> Work off. Uh, there was a piece in the Times today that said many people are contemplating not going back to work because it's so onerous. And I was thinking of writing a piece in answer to that, namely that they found the wrong kind of work. Well, but yeah. that, that's that's a very bourgeois conception is. because you have the you have the, I, the, the, the you're the blessed list. to be able yes. to have a job that you that you that right. you love and that you can do. And I'm getting in the car right now. I'm driving up. This yeah. is, I could just see the three of us yeah. arguing over it. <laughs> this would be so. What you're saying that it, the bourgeois who are sat, somewhat satisfied or convinced that they're satisfied think that you can find a job that's fulfilling. I, I actually, I go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. David, you don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I find my job very fulfilling, but it's a job where you have to be hustling to get the, to keep to getting the job. It's a freelance life, which is a whole other set of issues. Um, well, have you ever had a patient? I'm asking this of Ethan. Yes. Has your father ever had a patient who never had a problem with work, who just said, you know what? I have a job and I love it and they appreciate me and I'm paid as much as I deserve. Yes. yes, those patients are, there are plenty of those patients. Uh, they litter the offices of his colleagues on the Upper East Side. But those ones who are so satisfied with their work, they have terrible marriages. So they're in there complaining about the marriages and vice versa. The ones who like their marriages hate their work. Right. And then the people, they're, 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 uh, 
the bonus patients who hate everything. Right. My rabbi. Is that correct? Yeah. My rabbi said to me, this is true. My rabbi said, uh, uh, and he was a horrible rabbi. And he said to me when my kids were what small. Was his, what was his ranking? <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant. Okay. He said to me, David, you can either be a great comedian or a great father. You can't be both. And I said, Rabbi, you must be a great parent. (laughs) And I meant it. I didn't like the guy. Uh, Yeah. So workaholism is for me. Obviously, I can't do anything. Oh, this, this is my son calling. Good for him. Hang on. Put him on. Put him Hang on. on. Put him on. I haven't talked to you in a while, but I'm in the middle of my show. Don't say anything disgusting. Do not say anything disgusting. I am. Lo- Do not embarrass me. Okay, so I shouldn't tell you what I just ate. <laughs> Goodbye. I'll call you later. I love you. <laughs> Wait, you don't want to know? I can't. I know nothing disgusting. I, I don't. You don't want to hear what I just ate? I can't it talk. It was a burrito. I'm telling you, I, I'm sure it was a burrito. I, I can't talk to you. I love you. I'll call you after the show. Okay. Whatever. Okay. Whatever you're thinking, I ate. Yeah, it is. It's that. Okay, thank you. I love you. Bye. My, that's my son. I haven't spoken to. He was in uh, Greece, and oh, and, yeah, I, and I, like a summer stock musical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, was he Kanicki? <laughs> he was, was Ratso Rizzo. <laughs> I'm dancing here. They combined it with Midnight Cowboy. So I haven't. If you told me that I could go three weeks without talking to my son. I'd go, you're out of your mind. And he went off with his girlfriend to Greece. And, you know, I got a couple of emails and, you know. Mm. Should we show David the sunset? No, 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 because it's a radio show. Fine. Yeah, Yeah, but you can describe it in prose. The sun is setting in the sunset. Use the word dappled. That's what Vince Scully always talked. When he described the weather, he would talk about the dappled. Is he a golf, a golf guy? Vin, you don't know who Vince Scully is? The golf announcer or the or football? Even I know who Vince Scully is, who is still alive. Huh. Huh. Dr. Hershenfeld, you grew up listening to Vince Scully. Because you were nice. Did he announce the Yankees games? The Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Okay. Did did you listen to Vince Scully as a kid? I hated the Dodgers. Because of Jackie Robinson. But, you know, sometimes you have to. (laughs) Things change. Things change. Um, That's a joke. It's a joke. Got it. No, no, no. Yeah. So, um,. David, um, you know that my grandfather—I don't brag—he—he uh, he was a pioneer in baseball. He integrated the old Negro leagues. He was the first there was Jewish a, shortstop. Um, in, in the, in, he, he was the first white guy in the Negro leagues, and it was horrible. They used to make him sit at the front of the bus. It was terrible. Okay. Um, that is that, that's that is on the cusp of canceled, but not quite. Not quite. It needs some work. It needs some but, work, but I think they can't cancel me for that. Let me just I just wanted to check in. How are you doing, David? I am uh, <laughs> after that joke. 
you know, when I was in San Francisco, I met some British men who worked for DDB Needham, which was an advertising agency, oh. and they were really smart. And I worked, I did a project with them, and they hated being in advertising because they were really smart British guys. And they said, the secret to advertising is you got to get in to get out. In other words, just when you hate your job, get so deep into it that you can enjoy it. And, and it's the same as that concept of the, the only way out is through. Right. Psychologically, like if you're suffering through something, you got to. Yeah. Just get so it. into the minutia of this horrible job and you'll find something about it that's fascinating that will get you through it. I don't know why I brought that up because I actually like doing I I love doing the podcast. There's work that I have to do uh, to make a living that. Uh, oh, yeah, you had that partner. You had that writing partner who was being a real pain in the ass. Yeah. Well, that. Maybe. Yeah. Bang. <laughs> Move the. He has is restless it, leg. He has we, restless are leg. Are we talking about this because Labor Day is next week? Do you think that has anything to do with why we're talking about jobs? And people are saying to me we shouldn't tape the show on Labor Day. Interesting. Well, do you so what what, what is what is workaholism? Is it a lack of faith in God that God won't provide? It, like like any symptom, it could be anything. It could be severe anxiety. He's, he's been hi, you've been hiding behind that kind of answer for for a long time. It's just it because it's be, the truth. It could be anything, but it's not just one thing. But it could pretend be. it's one thing just to be entertaining. Make some sort of pronouncements. Otherwise, it just all sounds like Wonder Bread. <laughs> take, take a stand. I mean, you can be wrong. Okay, it's masochism yeah. in order to torture the people around you. How's that? Yeah, that's workaholism. It's also an extreme fear of the inner life. Because when you're at work, that's the one time where you can really just put all of your focus on the outside mm. and ignore everything that's going on. In here, I'm touching my chest. I know it's radio. In here, I'm touching my forehead. In here. Easy, in, Mr. Tubin. Easy, Mr. Tubin. <laughs> Stop right there. <laughs> um, but what, so let's say you're fishing. Isn't aren't you escaping the inner life when you're fishing or if you're painting? When you're doing something that people consider relaxing, yeah. even though I'm I think it's stupid. Because I was reading, I was reading recently that in Korea, in certain dishes, like in kimchi, the f fish is actually considered a spice. But if you consult the fish, the fish do not consider themselves a spice. <laughs> <laughs> they think of themselves as a sentient being. So <laughs> I wanted to point that out. <laughs> I'm re I'm relaxed working. I find it relaxing yeah. to to yeah. to work. And and like two nights ago, I was foggy headed and somebody called and we were writing jokes and I was laughing and I I I felt alive. I felt, "Oh, this is fun. This is we're writing jokes." It it wasn't just the, the work, but it was you were doing it with another person. Right. And that tends to enliven at least certain kinds of people. 
like you and like me, it, it's something you get a charge out of connecting with somebody else. Not everybody feels that way. Certain jobs are actually they're, they're made more difficult by doing them with someone else. Or juggling. <laughs> it becomes, if you're a circus artist working on the street, it's much easier to juggle on your own. Once you have to then involve two more hands, three more pins, it's much harder. Is there any way two people can work together and not end up hating each other? Yes, that couple who created that vaccine in uh, in right. Europe, they yeah. created, they solved COVID together, and they, and they're a married couple. The they're, only, they're, only by the way, and Muslims, they're also German Muslims. Yes, All right, and they're Reformed Jews. Just to shout out. <laughs> Shout out, very reformed, to, to quote Woody Allen, very reformed, right. Muslim. Right. <laughs> the only other people I know who've been able to work successfully together and remain in couples, I have two couple friends, so that's four friends in total who are architects. Two couples, two men, a man and a woman, they're, a couple, they're having an architecture firm, so is the other one. I have a theory about this. Why are architects able to stay together while, while with all of the challenges of having a family and being in a couple and still be able to practice their work together. Why is that? I know the answer. This is a quiz. They're good at building. They're good at building. He really does. Yeah. Why, why would architects be good at? I I figured it out. It's because with couples, a lot of the stress that comes and a lot of what makes it very hard to be in a relationship is you're constantly thinking if we get divorced, who gets the house? This is the one job where you don't have to worry about it. You can just put up another house. Right. And, yeah. and architects are about stress. It's spreading the stress out evenly throughout the beams. So, Absolutely. So they're, they probably have a stress-free... If, if, if your marriage collapses and you're an architect, who's going to hire you? I, I don't want an architect who designs that way. Because the house symbolizes the marriage. Right. Now, do if I buy something and it makes me happy, like a new stove, I need a new stove. Mm -hmm. I haven't had a stove since the pilot light went out. My pilot light, the stove is fine. I have Mm -hmm. a in this apartment, there's a 40 year old stove, but I have to get rid of it because the mice were living in it. And I just, I thought, you know what? Get a new stove. And I ordered, I ordered the stove. And it has a, it's self-cleaning, it's a self-cleaning oven. And I'm going, this is going to make me happy. And then I feel guilty that I'm going to own something that brings me joy. You should. That's called neurosis. Really? Really. Yes, indeed. Well, no, I would say what you're, you're. By the way, I could own a human being, like you know, like a, in a relationship, and that would bring me joy. I would be. So I don't, I, and I don't feel guilty about like owning a human being. Just owning things makes me feel, no, I'm joking. Go ahead. I was going to say you could feel guilty about the oven uh, having to clean itself. 
That doesn't sound fair. Yeah, I go, I'll do it. Take it easy. I got it. You're not going to do it right. You, you know. Also, I think that that's a whole scam because I have a I have an oven in my apartment. It's been there for 25 years and it's not self-cleaning. So it doesn't clean itself and I don't clean it. Nobody cleans it. You're right. Fine. Who has to you don't have to clean an oven? It's 400 degrees now on a regular basis. <laughs> what are they talking about? What are you like, that's <laughs> What is, what is, you're destroying an entire industry, as you thought. You're putting people out of work. Who are these people getting in their ovens? I guess it's if you're always cooking like roasts and turkeys and things. That's when you get all that grease. That's the thing. If you're, it's yes, yeah, the vegetarian thing. It's cleaner. Well, what is it? What is a self-clean? Does it does it heat it at a special temperature or? Very, very, very hot. He's making that up. I can tell because of the three very. <laughs> That was clearly made up. Yeah. What what possessions make you happy? If it, where you you can literally point to something you own, and you say this is my, my computer makes me happy. Uh, the my Adobe software makes me. I go, you know, this is this is making me happy. It's it's saving me time. It's efficient. It's a miracle. Some of the products that Adobe makes. My Hoka sneakers make me happy. What is I, You know those? They have very thick soles. They're very nice. Hoka. The most cushioned sneaker on the planet. Well, yeah, that's like the World Series, which is only uh, among Americans. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're from Norway or some godforsaken place. Yeah, but you don't, you've never Delicious. worn an African sneaker or like a, a sneaker. You don't know that. I know. <laughs> I know it. Because of Hoka sneakers, even with my bad knee and my bad back and my bad entire skeleton, I can jog because they're so cushioned. Wow. Well, my, well, the I love, I love the way your son disrespects you, because he does it in a way with great respect. Yeah. With great respect. <laughs> my the possessions that give me pleasure. I have a real nostalgic uh, gene because there are some old ratty things. Like at the house here, there's a. One of those, you know, those kind of watering guns you put at the end of a hose to mm -hmm. water the garden. This one is so old that the plastic fell off of it. It's only the metal from underneath it. It doesn't quite work. You have to pull on it when you used to be able to pull the trigger. And it gives me great pleasure. I, something I get pleasure out of these things that are still working after after 30 years. Right. I, don't know, I also like an old an old an old piece of like glassware, just something that was a, a, a uh, just an item you would find in any kitchen in the 60s. It's yeah. sort of um, corningware kind of glass, like this milky white glass. Mm -hmm. And it, there's only one of them left. There's no match, matching set. I just like those old things. And I guess I'm just a hoarder is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> dog, I like old dogs and old cats in New York City. Dog. He's got a beautiful old dog. Yeah, our uh, beloved uh, Loki, he just turned 14 on Monday. So that was, that was exciting. 98 in human years. That's a lot of... But, yeah. they, but now that's not really true because different dogs live different 
lifespan. Right. Yeah, the factor that that's correct. It's different, but uh, but I was looking up because uh, I was feeling pre sadness about his you know eventual demise and. I was looking up the average, you know, you look on Wikipedia, the average age of a shepherd mix, average lifespan, and it's like, you know, 11 or 12. So he's he's in double OT is what I'm saying. Mm. Yeah, he's already old he's doing what? Old English sheepdogs. What about the minute you get them, the clock is ticking, right? Yes. Any huge dog. The huger the dog. Yeah. The shorter the lifespan. In and, general. And, and you get like how many good years do you get out of say like a like a Rottweiler or a Doberman Pinscher? What how many years? You get a good ten. Really? Ten before the old age kicks in, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Speaking of Afghanistan, did you ever see the the canine corps? Ever see the the dogs who would jump with with the soldiers who would parachute yeah. with them? Oh, yeah. Did you ever see it? It's knees, right? Huh? Pekingese dogs, right? I I don't think so. I was kidding. Those are like little. little oh no, tiny. these are big dogs who would yeah, yeah. land. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I want to give a a little shout out to a. Uh, um, it's more of a, it's not it's a plug, but it's not for something I did. It's it's friend a friend made a film. Uh, it's called See You Yesterday. It came out in 2019. It's absolutely amazing, and. Um, so it's a time travel film about some kids in Brooklyn who on their summer break, they build a time machine and then it gets involved in like police brutality. The, the, the story is, is really great. Um, and I just want to say that a friend of mine produced it and it's great. All right, I'm going to ask see your father see you yesterday. See you yesterday. I'm going to ask your father a question and then see if you can answer it. Uh, do you have a pad and pencil, Dr. Hershenfeld? So no, we I don't. No, I don't. OK, but it's the honor system. Okay. If you could go back in time. Yes. And don't answer it. What, what, where would you go if you could go back in time for 24 hours? You mean when would you go? <laughs> oh, I mean, when would you go? Oh, that's yeah, an interesting. That where would you go? When would you? Yeah. Oh, no, I think. What? Whence? Whence? <laughs> Whither? No, whither? <laughs> whither would you go? Whither would you go? Whither, whither would, would you go? go? Whither it's would an you? Inspirational poem I'm going to be writing for toddlers. <laughs> whither would you go? Well, I'm going to ask two questions uh, because I always imagine the three of us on a on a trip. So, uh, where would you go by yourself? When would you go? Okay. When would you go with Ethan, and when would you go with the three of us? Can you do you have it figured out? Time travel. Well, um, don't don't I, answer. I, don't answer yet. Oh, oh you want okay. me to say? You have to guess go. where your when your father would go. I know where he would like to go. He would like to go to Fan de Siecle Vienna when the, all of that. Is right. Yeah, when all that. But Freud the end of the twenty it was the end of the twentieth century. Is not the. Yeah. <laughs> is um, that true? So you'd like to go by yourself, 1899, Vienna. and Einstein. And I mean, they had some amazing people. And the coffee, and very good coffee. The coffee, the schlag was excellent. Yeah. 
I would like to go there. Well, hang on. Well, let's think about this. Do you yeah, yeah. think? Do you think you could go? So you would have to feign in the movie. You'd have to feign neuroses to see Freud. Or you could feign like being a student or whatever. Or no, you don't have to feign neurosis. We all got neurosis. You kidding? So you would go in and see Freud and he would feign take you as a patient. Why does feign mean fake and gladly? Explain. I'm sorry. How about Sinn Féin? Absolutely. By the way, I had a joke about Sinn Féin. I was giving a toast at my friend's wedding 20 years ago, and I, I said, uh, you know, he's a money manager. And when he first told me that I should get a Roth IRA, I thought he was talking about the Zionist wing of Sinn Féin. <laughs> you would not be a member of Sinn Féin. You couldn't do the hunger strikes. Yeah. You'd have, exactly. you'd have, uh, okay. Uh, all right. So where would you go with, e when would you go with Ethan? Don't answer, Ethan. When we asked your father, when would he like to go with you in a time machine? Maybe I would say maybe. Um, when was it that the, the Knicks won the, the championship? 69? 72? Who was 69. that? 69. Willis Bradley, Reed, DeBusher, Bradley. It was 69. When Willis yeah. Reed walked back on the court with the knee injury. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was 69, I, I think. I did that at Jewish summer camp, but everyone was like, yeah, we also have knee injuries. <laughs> it didn't impress anybody. Everyone had on knee, knee pads. And so, but you um, know why he was called Red Holtzman? Wait, Red Holtzman was the coach of the of the Knicks. Uh, oh, OK. Communist. Yeah. He was a I'm making wow. that up. Just making, OK. I hope it's 69. I'd like to. I like to I like it was 72, but I could. Be well, wrong. there was another. It's like the 73 Mets. It's the 69 Mets and the 73 Mets. But who cares about the 70? 69 Mets was a miracle. OK, uh, so where you would he would like to take you to go see. Uh, he is very good because he's got the right concept. But I was thinking of Los Angeles, the heyday of the Lakers. Oh, yeah. Okay. What's his name? Uh, Jerry West. Yes. Jerry West. Yeah. Um, is that I what? Is, if I could travel, if I could time travel, I would go back to yesterday because I bought a sandwich at a place and they got my <laughs> <They're> completely wrong. <laughs> I know some might say that's a waste of time travel, but you know it's really the principle. It's, just, it's <laughs> annoying. You order it, you're right there, and they. It's not like I. It's not like it was some like all uh -huh. the menu I. It's even a sandwich with a name. Like you named it. You have, but. Uh. You know how I used to drive my mother and father crazy? Uh, when I was a young man, if I wanted to return something, I would say, it's not the principle, it's the money. Yeah. <laughs> and my parents don't do it. Why, why? Why? Why do you have to? Why do you have to ruin? I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, By the way, I want to tell you just one more tale from the trenches. Oh, it's of, oh yeah, time is up. Yes, tale from the thespian trenches. Sunday, I did a quick audition for a small role in a new series. Sunday, I submitted it. Monday morning, I get the call from my agent. They're asking you to confirm your availability. I confirmed it. An hour later, they went with someone else. It's a brutal business. It's a brutal business, but when you get it, it's like landing yes. a big fish. 
whither will you go? Yeah. To this day, uh, if somebody calls me to do stand-up and I don't have to ask. You feel like it's winning a lottery. And they're paying my cab fare and they're throwing a meal. It's it's as though I, it's like, I I just have a sprint. If they call me and offer me, it's a sprint. They want me. Why why should anybody do that? Why would anybody do that? Yeah. Because they got to the bottom of the list. Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) They asked everybody. Uh, I'll 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 see you guys in two hours. I'm flying up. I love you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and also, the movie is... See you, ne- see you yesterday. See you yesterday. See you yesterday. Check it out. It's okay. really great. Check it out. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hasta luego. Thank Bye. you. The Hershenfelds, everybody. <laughs> we are... Uh, that, go see See You Yesterday. Please welcome the star of See You Next Tuesday. I shouldn't have said that. Why do I do that? You're, you're frozen. Wait. L- let me just check in for one second. I, I froze. Uh, uh, Dan, when do you want to do community billboard? I'm good for waiting till the end. No, that's not fa- that's not going. fair to you. Th- and by the way, let, uh, we're, let me just take a breather here before we bring on my old friend who looks younger and younger every time he comes on the show. Thank you for helping out at the top of the show, Dan. That's no big deal. It was a big deal. So thank you. Because I didn't think I was going to be able to do the show today. I, I, I woke up this morning and I thought, I don't have anything. Uh, and it requires loading some stuff into the playback machine. And I lost track of time so thank you and uh the first 10 minutes of the they were great because you were there it was fun it was actually fun to be falling apart (laughs) to be fucked yeah that's yeah you mean (laughs) falling apart yeah okay no i mean it was like kind of this is this isn't so bad push through yeah yeah so thank you dan frankenberger everybody Go, go get your shine box. <laughs> so, so, David, David, you're not you're not feeling so well. Huh? Uh, no, I'm not looking so well. I, I'm getting. Oh, that's that's Gavin. But I, mean, I know you woke up today and you're just saying the hair is not growing. Wait, you're saying you're, I you're I couldn't feeling... I didn't sleep last night. Oh, I see. And I couldn't turn the computer off, and I was reading, mm. and my mind was racing i could not shut my mind off not that there was anything profound inside of it but uh i tried everything i tried watching the crown which usually (laughs) that relaxes me how about meditation you should have called me i would have helped you meditate okay can you now your mic is a little hot is it yeah there's a little it, it should be i'm i'm not uh all right, how about now? How about now, David? Uh, Dan, okay? how does he sound? Do I sound? 
Do I sound sultry or smarmy? You sound smultry. Smultry. <laughs> smultry. You smell okay, smultry. You do. That's good. You know, so is the world coming to an end? Are you depressed about what are you depressed about? Is it climate change, I, Afghanistan? I was depressed about Afghanistan a little bit, you know, the, the suicide bombings. But, uh, you know, we, we're we're going to stay the course. we got to get out of there. And I, so that was a little depressing. Uh, climate change is always a bad thing because I live near the fires and it's, you know, it's always depending upon how the wind blows. It's, it's smoky. You know, the skies are gray. It's not because of the, you know, the clouds is because of the smoke. I prefer that the winds go eastward so that you get a taste of the California smoke. But something made me feel good today. I just picked it up. It, uh, the, the Washington Post did a big major expose on the National Institutes of Health. And this will be fodder for the professors coming up later when they talk about uh, the gain of function experiments. Mm. Now, this is the kind of investigative journalism that doesn't normally get done. But they found out that NIH has served as gatekeepers for this very explosive and very potentially dangerous ex experimental work that deals with pathogens and viruses. And it's a secret kind of scientific society run by Francis Collins, the head of NIH, and Dr. Anthony Fauci. And this gain-of-function kind of experiments, uh, this is what COVID's about, how, what they're talking about the Wuhan labs, but as the Post points out, they're not connecting gain-of-function with Wuhan in this particular investigation. They're just saying these are dangerous experiments, and who's in charge? Who's the oversight? It's two people, Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci. And when they make a mistake, there's no one to say boo There's no because they dismantled the oversight committee. It's a great piece of journalism that's a little hard to understand because the thing that everyone wants to know is, you know, how does this how does this relate to COVID? How does it relate to the coronavirus? They can't prove this, but they can prove that the transparency in the scientific setup in the United States is so bad that these two people, Fauci and Collins, control it all. And the real test has been on something involving the bird flu. They decided to go ahead and publish what, you know, what the experimenters were jacking up this, this uh, virus that had a potential death rate of more than 60%. And people were alarmed saying this could be something that educates the terrorists. Fauci and Collins stood up to it. They, they, continued, they published a paper, but this is the kind of thing that where you need transparency and i think this is going to be the final straw for this is going to retire fauci and retire collins and maybe change science in the united states from here right. on, at least in terms of animal experimentation ah so. here is what no, yeah, no, that's no, a good no, point no. though no 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 because you're you have what? an agenda no, no, no agenda. I oh, you do. You're, you're like the guy I had on a, on a show who was against gain of function research. And he uses the Wuhan lab leak theory 
to uh, I'm not to get us to get us. He 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 wants to put an end to gain of function research. So he uses the fog of not knowing where COVID comes from to scare us into oh, outlawing no, gain of no, David. That's not true. And I your agenda, your agenda, your against. agenda. Hang on for one second. Okay. Yeah. Your agenda is to put an end to animal research. So you don't like Frances Collins because she runs NIH. Is she the head of NIH? Yes. He. He. Gender. Gender. It's a he. They, Francis. Francis. He. Okay. Yeah. They. <laughs> are okay with animal research. So you, you're you using the Wuhan lab leak theory to, no, to, no, to, take down, to take down Fauci and Francis Collins. No, no I'm not. I, what I'm using, David, I, I, I'm for gain-of-function research if it's done responsibly. Well, so what does this done, have to do? So here's, here, let me, let me, yeah. let me say something about this. Yeah. The conversation about the Wuhan lab leak theory does not. Mm -hmm. I, I love you. I'm just telling you, I, I hope I'm, I'm just making conversation. I apologize. Right. Well, right, let me just me let me let me, let me just tell years, you. David. Let me tell you my position on the Wuhan lab leak theory. Mm -hmm. And I hope and again, I'm enjoying this conversation. I hope I'm not being rude. Not uh, yet. Right. Mm -hmm. My position is the Wuhan lab leak theory doesn't belong the discussion doesn't belong on this show. It is a dead end because Joe Biden opened it up. He asked our CIA to look into where COVID came from. They had 90 days to tell him where COVID came from. And they said, we don't know. After 90 days, we don't know. Probably the best intelligence estimate Biden has gotten all year. We don't know. Too bad they didn't tell him. This one, it, yeah. It, yeah, it would have been nice if they told him that about the Taliban. They probably did. Uh, so my position is we don't know where COVID came from. Right. right. Hang it, on. Well, hang on. Hang on for one second. I agree with you. And agree even with you. and even if we do know, mm -hmm. you and I can't figure out what they know because okay hey let me that. let me finish what i'm saying for one second i'm saying i'm agreeing okay with you. there so you can't like i don't understand gain of function i have to trust the vast preponderance of experts to read the studies and quite frankly right now i'm more concerned about getting people vaccinated then I am. I am too. And, and am this too. conversation about the Wuhan lab leak theory is all circumstantial. There's no okay. evidence. And I, it, it serves it serves the authoritarians in America. When you entertain these ideas and obsess on it, it's a distraction from getting the vaccination this conversation mm -hmm. sows doubt about getting vaccinated. It's used okay. by people who are anti-vaxxers and the fascists, the pro-Trumps. Okay. Who want yeah, to go to war, who want to go to war with China. So it's not a conversation 
we should be having. Re- Go ahead now. Can I, can I respond? I, yes. I appreciate you saying that. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm double vaccinated. I'm not a fascist. I'm not a pro-authoritarian. Do you want to go to war with China? Even, do you want to go to war I, with China? I, no, I don't want to go to war with China. I don't even look. I'm not even bringing in the Wuhan virus conversation. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the transparency of science and the way it's done in America. Gain of function experiments could be good. I'm not even talking about debating gain of function, whether or not it's morally right. But look at what gain of function does. It makes a virus stronger so that potentially can jump to other species and it could potentially wreak havoc and kill a lot of people. Mm -hmm. That's what gain of function does. Now, I'm not saying it shouldn't be done if it's worthwhile. I'm just saying if you're going to have that kind of experimentation, Funded by the government, NIH, National Institutes of Health. What are we talking about? A million dollars? We're talking about a million dollars? Several million, tens of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. It's at least 48 million, according to the Washington Post story, that if you're going to have that, it should be transparent, that people should know about it, because otherwise you don't have evil scientists. You have top secret scientists and you don't have watchdogs looking over their their actions and here that here was a situation with the bird flu in 2011 where they wanted to publish it and they went ahead and did it but the the oversight committee was concerned and went to the obama administration and said you published this and you abet the terrorists who now have a recipe for 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 controlling uh the the world if it's if it results in 66 percent death so all i'm saying look It's not my agenda, but this is I want responsible science. And Francis Collins and Dr. Fauci are not responsible scientists because you're because you're the host of the PETA podcast. No, no, I'm I'm talking as a as a private citizen. But you have but you do. You know, you're let's be transparent. Let's be transparent. I would like. I would like to see the end of animal experimentation. And it's not coincidental that they were they were testing on ferrets. They called it Francis Collins called the oversight committee the ferret committee before he really pretty much uh, made it. uh, He actually neutered it and and took away its power and the powers to, to do whatever were really on two people, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins. Okay. And that's why they should just be retired. They have stopped the progress of science in terms of non-animal research uh, for, for decades now. And we have a modernization of science that's ready to go if only some people weren't holding on to traditional methods. So, you know, David, I'm not for, I'm not for authoritarianism, but, you know, secret science could could help authoritarians. And that's what we have now. We should make it as transparent as possible. All right. So, you know, I dip my toe into the anti-vax conversation and I went Mm. after Bill Maher, who I think is has a great show, but I think he's a fool on the anti-vax stuff. And Mm. people I mean, I've never gotten a response. Is he an anti-vaxxer? Is he an anti-vaxxer? He's like a he's like a Mm. racist you know, racists won't ever say I'm a racist. They'll just mm-hmm. say, I just find it curious that these studies uh, from yeah. 50 years ago these, show black people this way and yeah. white people. I'm not, I'm not a racist, but I, I deal in fact. 
you're a racist. And Bill is, yeah. does an anti-vax thing where I'm just saying and I'm just throwing this out there because he would never say I'm an anti-vaxxer. And I pointed out, I proved that he was an anti-vaxxer. Well, I got I got yeah. reamed by the anti-vax community. Yeah. I mean, they just look. look. Believe me, I, I know. I mean, I, I my my wife gets trolled all the time for for saying things about, you know, uh, you know, in terms of uh, animal experiments and vax and all that. So I understand. I didn't even, you know. But, I, but here's the I, thing I, I about. Just, well, let's move on. I, I'll give yeah. you the last word on this. Here, here's the thing. Mm. COVID's on the rise. Uh, yes. And people yeah. aren't getting vaccinated, and they need to mm. get vaccinated. When people have casual conversations that are overheard by others mm-hmm. where they express doubt in the vaccination, mm-hmm. you're killing people. people. The American people are they don't have Internet literacy. They don't know who to trust. So when Joe Rogan says, uh, you know, uh, I'm, yeah. if uh, at my comedy shows, if they you have to show proof of a vaccine, uh, I'm going to give you back your money. That's bullshit. Uh, we, we need to be responsible and not have casual conversation, not have ca- casual conversations about a virus that has killed four million people worldwide, 600,000 uh-huh. here in this country, not to mention all the women who can't get mammograms, guys like me who can't get hair transplants because the hospitals are overflowing with COVID. We're uh, not look, doctors. I, I You're not an epidemiologist. So for us to be opining about something we read in the Washington Post. The only impact you can have by from that conversation is convincing somebody not to get the booster shot. Well, I this conversation is um, not going to encourage anybody to get a booster shot. Well, I I don't know. I think that the more people will get information if people can talk about things intelligently to each other uh, in that's the problem how can you and i have an intelligent conversation about this if we you actually said you don't understand gain of number function. one huh well yeah but i i can i can go to a reliable source who i can go and i who look i uh I, I think this is a good example of investigative journalism to tell people what they don't know, what they should know. And it's a it's a very simple thing, gain of function. If you you got to paint the picture, I, people don't need to know the science in order to say yay or nay on gain of function. But, but right now, to, we, right now, I agree with what your it, it, it's priorities. It's priorities. In other words, everything you're saying is correct. And the Washington Post story exposing Fauci having too much power and Francis Collins having too much. All of that is correct. Uh, The same way some Americans don't declare they're not honest when it comes to declaring the earned income tax credit Mm -hmm. uh, on their IRS forms. The same way Jeff Bezos is dishonest when he files his tax return. 
It's priorities. What are you going to choose? Who are you going to choose to go after? The, per, the poor guy who's cheating on the earned income tax credit or Jeff Bezos? It's priorities. And the same applies to what we choose to talk about. When, well, let's he, talk about stuff. Hang, hang on for one because, second. This is yeah. a problem. This is a serious problem in America that people opine publicly about things that they know nothing about. I'm not talking to you specifically. I'm saying people mm-hmm. opine about things that they know nothing about. Now, people have a right to opine about gain of function. They have a right to uh, doubt Fauci. But we are living in a crisis where because so much doubt has been sown when it comes to the NIH, the CDC, mm-hmm. the medical establishment, and all that doubt is well-deserved. But if you doubt Fauci on the vaccines and you create more doubt with Fauci, it gives license to people to not get vaccinated. All right. I think you're taking a leap there. No, I'm taking a gain of function. I'm taking a gain of function. Well, I think what you're doing, though, is it's a zoonotic taking, leap. You're, you're making a leap that is going to stop people from taking uh, taking the vaccine. However, look, here's the thing. Uh, we we got to talk about stuff that we we may not know about. We may not know. I may not be able to tell you. But this should be know, done on another show, not this show. Function. I'm a comedian. I'm bar- you know well, I'm barely I, I know. literate. I'm point. I, I, I'm point. But I'm pointing out something. I'm making it a priority that that says this is a. This is a conversation we should be having about science and about about transparency. Now, I'm not even I'm not bringing it to apply to the the virus, the coronavirus and the vaccines. I I think that people should get vaccinated. I'm not using it to to buttress, you know, the anti-vaxxers. You're right. You're right. This is the analogy I use. The house is on fire. COVID is spreading. The house is on fire. Do we want to find out who set the fire or do we want to put the fire out first? Now, we we can discuss it. You're free to discuss on other shows who set the fire. But right now, uh, our grandparents and our children are in the house. It's on fire. I choose to put the fire out and not question the hose, the water. That's the vaccine. I'm not questioning That's the, the vaccine. The you can, you on, can... The, on the on the vaccine. I'm just saying that this is an independent, you know, top notch investigative piece that shows one of the problems of the NIH, Dr. Francis Collins and Dr. Anthony Fauci on this matter. Right. Not necessarily on COVID. And, I mean, and th- people should read it. Things. People should read it, and and people should talk about it. On this show, my position is. The house is on fire. For me, there'll be a time to figure out who set the fire. Let's put it out. And I think uh, it's harder to put the fire out than it is to opine on who set the fire. Well, you know, David, it's one thing to have an opinion and rant 
It's another thing to go off, and this is the this is the journalistic side of opinion making versus rants on the internet versus you know Alex Jones versus you know public performance art of talk show hosts, and maybe that's one of the problems that we have a kind of a talk show mentality when we have we elect in this, this country a president like Donald Trump, and we could probably have uh, a a talk show host like Larry Elder come in uh, as as governor if the recall effort succeeds well, i hope it doesn't but larry elder is at the top we have this talk show mentality about things but i say if this is the talk if this is the mentality and this is the level of discourse that we have in our society well then it is responsible to talk about things using good sources reliable sources to talk about things so that when people overheal, they'll say, okay, look, I heard what Trump said. I heard what Larry Elder says, but you know what? I, on the, on the Feldman show, I heard something responsible and that's good. What that's do you think of the, now, here's the, here's the thing that's coming up. That, that's going to be the big story. The military. Now that the vaccine has been approved by the FDA the military mm-hmm. is going to make all the soldiers get vaccinated. This is going to be the big argument. This is going to be, this this could be our civil war because look, I, I get family members in the military and they're vaccinated. I think one of them it was sick but did not have covid what do you do now i know what i will do what i would do what do you do with soldiers who won't get vaccinated this is the to me this is the next come september Mm. this will be the story that president and austin and millie General Milley, General Austin, are insisting that all the troops get vaccinated. Mm. This is this is the this is going to be the battle royale. Well, you're saying this is going to be like the the true litmus test of patriotism, which it's unfortunate if it if if it comes to that. Uh, I I haven't talked to my uh, my my family member in the military about about vaccines but most of them have taken them i know he has but I, I think there i think i don't know what's going to happen i think huh? the I, I don't have the stats in front of me i know a month ago it was like almost 50 50 with the military in terms of yeah getting vaccinated yeah, yeah my my uh, uh my son-in-law is in the in the navy and he's a corpsman so he would go oh he's yeah, related I mean, to harvey corpsman <laughs> You are good with those jokes. I'm good with no, bad. I'm good at not being funny. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, what's on the? I, I was arguing with you, uh, but I don't know. I just uh, that's all right. Look, I I just think that I was I, I wasn't I, arguing. I, I was trying to keep the show moving and a little conflict. My my, I don't. I hope no, I wasn't. Rude. I hope I wasn't rude to you. No, you weren't rude to me this time. But uh, I'm sorry you know, I said that about your mother and father. No, no, no. It's it's fine. And maybe uh, and your the daughter. reverend, maybe the reverend can re- absolve you. Well, yes, the, the, the reverend wants to talk to you. Oh, to me? Oh, well, I, you know, I, I 
Yeah. You might I, be in trouble. I, I like Barry Lynn, I like you, but you I may like be. You may be in hey, trouble. Then let me just tell you one thing about the PETA podcast, because this is serious. If you're thinking about going to SeaWorld, don't go to SeaWorld, because Amaya, a six-year-old orca, was found dead at at SeaWorld San Diego. And according to whistleblowers, to PETA, it might have been caused by the fact that they put all these orcas in a single tank and even though some of the orcas had some kind of aggressive tendencies toward each other, including Amaya toward uh, an orca named Corky, actually Corky the second, a female orca, 55 years old, like 8,000 pounds, a big old orca. This young six-year-old orca was, you know, harassing her. And then later they, they suspect the older orca retaliated and got Amaya. So I talk about that and I talked to uh, Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd fame about his book, Orcopedia, to talk about all the orcas who've been in captivity. It's sad. It, it really is an international slave trade. And that's on this week's Peter podcast. Okay. And you're going to find Manny Pacquiao. What, how do you pronounce his name? Manny Pacquiao. Did you see that fight? I I mean this, you know, David, me and you, we could fight and we can make, you know, Logan Paul made a, like five million dollars on an exhibition. We should do an exhibition fighting about vaccines and gain of function and just put on the gloves and like put it on paper zoom maybe papers i mean maybe paper per, per view i paper zoom though we might have people throwing us a buck or two but i'm, I'm telling you manny pacquiao fought on saturday it was kind of embarrassing because he's 42 years old he cannot fight someone bigger stronger and younger he needs to fight someone about his same size and older and not as skilled in boxing like me so I'm suggesting that I fight Manny Pacquiao. We'll put it on the David Feldman Network. We'll make a couple hundred bucks for your favorite charity. I wish. And uh, who's you know, worse, like Duterte said, or Pacquiao? Because Pacquiao isn't Pacquiao a senator? Pacquiao is a senator, but he here's the reason why I'm doing it. He's a homophobe. And I have all these gay LGBTQ members of my family, uh, extended nuclear and otherwise. Uh, as you can see, I'm out of the closet. I'm in my living room now. But uh, I, no, but I'm you know I'm not. I'm so not you, gay, you're I'm, saying you want to you want to fight a homophobe because he needs to I be fi- he needs to be f- fisted is what you're saying. He he needs to be yeah he needs yeah he yeah. needs to We're see gonna, your fist. I, I want to fight Manny. Give me the head of Manny Pacquiao, David Feldman. Right. Emil anyway, Guillermo, uh, very quickly, uh, is yes. the host of the PETA podcast, a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. I'm going to hold you over so the Reverend Barry W. Lynn can ask you a question. Sure. Follow Emil on Twitter at Emil Amuck. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friday nights, every Friday night, it is office hours at 8 p.m. Go to my website and get the invitation and join us in the Zoom room for our 
recording sessions, we'll be right back with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. I need my sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high speed parallax motor, cause I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling light. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket in case I get a chill. I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number. I want to change my gender I'm traveling light Bed spread, I'm traveling light. Ah, 
got my rabbi costume in my portable dark room. My hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream. My Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoeshine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Oh, there you go. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. That's Professor Mike Steinell, who uh, is taking a little time off. His uh, Jeopardy pal is uh, not feeling well. We, we hope his Jeopardy pal feels better. And uh, we hope to see Professor Mike Steinell real soon. Please welcome, direct from Washington, D.C., he is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. It's good. It's good to see you, Reverend. And you had some questions. Feedback. You are you in Massachusetts, wasting time with your grandchildren, or are you back in Washington D.C.? No, I'm back here in Washington. Good, but. Interestingly, that you would mention this, because this is what I was curious about from Emil. A couple weeks ago, when I was in Massachusetts, I indicated that I would be taking our four-year-old twin granddaughters to the zoo. And it, mm-hmm. uh, it's the Franklin Park Zoo, which is rare for zoos in that it's not in a terribly wealthy part of Boston. It's in a, a pretty sad part of Boston. And I got a lot of pushback. Uh, from the chat room and from a few notes afterwards. And I'm curious about PETA's view of zoos. I said I was conflicted about this, and I, I was. And But then when I went to this zoo, I was flooded with the sense that uh, this ain't a bad zoo. If there's a, such a thing as a good zoo, this is a good zoo. And shortly thereafter, when I came back to Washington, I noticed the story in the paper that one of the, well, probably the most famous living lion, formerly living lion, had been killed by poachers. Some wealthy guy, just like a few years ago when they they shot a very famous lion. Of a dentist from Minneapolis. A dentist from Minneapolis. So I don't think they know exactly who killed this lion. But then I thought, until we control poachers, how are we ever going to keep um, animals that are not native, for example, to neighborhoods? Um, How are we going to ever show kids what these animals are like in a respectful way? And I'm curious what Peter's view is on, uh, on zoos. Well, it's a pretty standard one, uh, Barry. I, I recall when you said that you were going to take your 
your uh, young granddaughters or your, your grandchildren to the zoo. I didn't chime in because there was enough chiming in in the chat. But, you know, PETA's position is 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 pretty famous. You know, animals are not ours for entertainment. The zoos are not are you know are evil places and there should be you know animals should be put out in the wild or put or put in sanctuaries or not in zoos to be put on display um given given that i know that there are all sorts of i mean they're all zoos are not created equal there are some zoos that are better than others but they're still zoos and so i don't know what the bigger picture is in terms of how do we get um how do we expose our our children and our forebears to the the real bears in real life i don't know if there's a real way to do that in a humane way my dog, I'm sure, would have an opinion if I gave her some time to tell me. But I don't think that zoos are it. And I know that and I don't speak for PETA. I do the PETA podcast. I'm right. allowed to have my opinion. But I know that the PETA opinion is zoos are bad. All zoos are bad all the time. And uh, we need to work to get better better ways to experience animals for, for example in in terms of vivisection and dissection in schools instead of cutting up animals there are there are uh, you know models sure. that you can that can use and kids in biology and high school can opt out and they can dissect a, a model in the army in the military instead of training on live pigs and live animals they can do it on on carcasses on uh, of uh, you know uh, models that that essentially emulate the the human body and much better than you know doing any kind of experiments out in the field uh on on animals so there's always an answer a better answer i don't have one for you in terms of zoos necessarily but there's got to be a better answer to experience animal life and animals in nature you know so that we understand them and, and can experience them as young kids and you know all throughout our lives you know, one other thing. Well, that, excuse me. Is there any value yeah. to a zoo? Any? Uh, not. I don't think there is. I can't think. I mean, uh, maybe as veterinarian type of places where they care for an animal. But if essentially the the end result is you put them on display, you put them on display, and you uh, sell tickets and you profit from this or even if it's a nonprofit zoological society th there's got to be a better way peter's position has always been there's a better way than zoos to experience large wild animals and uh, so i don't know if there's anything i mean i can ask my wife who's you know upstairs i say hey hi shoot <laughs> no but i don't think there is i don't think there is any moral value? My wife and I, for two summers, uh, when we were first married, worked in the Bear Mountain State Park north of New, New York City. Mm. And we ran what were called nature centers at the time. I don't even I don't think they even exist anymore. But um, most of the people who came to our little nature center 
were kids from the inner city of New York whose only experience with animals were seeing rats and feral cats and dogs. And their responses were to seeing other animals. And we only, we only had on display animals that we had rescued. That is to say that where you might have a baby animal, the mother had been hit by a car. And so you, they, the, the kids would say, they have a couple questions. Will it bite? That was the, fun, the first one. And then I would say, if I poke my finger in your face, would you bite me? And they'd go, yeah. But there was such a misunderstanding about wildlife. And I'm not saying that the people who came developed some kind of lifelong interest and are now PETA members. But I do think that if they hadn't had an experience of seeing those animals, and these are not wild animals. We didn't have lions. Occasionally, people would bring us chickens, mm-hmm. a regrettable event with a rooster for one summer. It did, in fact, cock-a-doodle-doo right when the sun came up. Right. Right. But, but they saw something. They learned something. And then we always released the animals because even the baby animals after two and a half months probably would make it back in the wild, even without yeah. their mom. Yeah. Well, but, but, but see, I, I saw a movie about lions that was done by the National Geographic. And I was a good friend of the, the guy who ran the uh, Humane Society at mm. the time. And I called him up, and I said, here was the premise of this movie. There are very few lions. And we, the producers of this film, are not going to stop any activity directed at the lions that we're photographing. So several of them, over the course of this hour and a half movie, uh, were killed. And the photographers did not intervene. And I thought that's outrageous the premise of the movie is we have very few lions here they're making a documentary film and they let two lions just be killed during the process of the filming and i I couldn't believe that the national geographic would would produce this and my my friend wayne paselli said he was going to look into it and uh, maybe he did i don't know disgraced wayne paselli yeah, well, he, he he had some serious Me Too issues yeah. later in his life, but but to me that's that is real animal abuse. I mean, mm-hmm. to film these rare creatures being killed one one was kind of an accident, maybe one was with another animal, but they could have been stopped, and they yeah. should have been stopped. Look, but those when, are. Yeah, those are ethical issues. Look, as a journalist, if you go out in the field, you you are not expected to intervene. Th- that's always a question. If you see someone getting beat up and you're behind the camera and you're taking photographs yep. of this beating, when do you intervene and say, get the hell out of here, you know, scram kids or what, you know, are you becoming a part of the story? Th- these are age old ethical questions in journalism. Yeah. But, you, you know, and you're the reverend, you know, there are some editors in top top flight news organizations who say, if you cover politics, you cannot vote. What? Yeah. Take away my right to franchise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are these are questions that the the only thing I would suggest is 
don't go to Wayne Pacelli because I don't think he has the answer. But right. the editorial board of the National Geographic, they would have answers and they would be the ones who could change something. But right. So all these moral dilemmas you're bringing up here, Barry, it's. I know. Well, I like thinking about them and, and I like solving them. And, you know, uh, uh, Cleveland Amory, who was, of course, a oh, yeah. right supporter. And he, he wrote a book about, I think it was called, maybe getting this mixed up, but I think it was called The Politics of Extinction. And the argument of the book was that most of the so-called animal rights organizations are just fronts for hunters, hunting <laughs> organizations, right? Well, that, that may be true with HSUS, but uh, not, not with PETA. I can assure no, you. No, absolutely. no, no, no. I, I'm, this is not about PETA. But these, you know, Ducks Unlimited, they want yeah. more ducks because they oh, want yeah. hunters to be have, have more ducks to shoot. And it was yeah. a very eye-opening book. And I think it, it, it certainly changed my attitude about things. But I, I don't believe in sport hunting at all. I yeah. mean, I, I have a lot of relatives who do hunt in West Virginia. And uh, I got to tell you, I mean, I just, it's, it's inexcusable. I mean, yeah. unless you're literally dying and you have to make some moral argument, my life is more important than this deer. But the average person, I mean, I once said on a radio show back on WRC, I think, yeah. when I said, I don't think there's any non-slob hunter. They're all slob hunters, <laughs> which got me in a little bit of trouble. Yeah, back then. My own family. But, but I tell you, but I mean, this, this idea that it's okay to go out in hunting season and shoot wild turkeys or shoot deer right here on the eastern part of the United States is just BS. It's baloney. It's worse. But when it comes to these big game, and, and I love the idea of sanctuaries, but you still then have to take an animal from her or his native position and transport them somewhere. And I mean, yeah, there aren't any cages around it, but I'm not sure it's much better than having two giraffes in a five or six acre area at the Franklin Park Zoo. Well, I'm this is OK. Worse. So here's what I'd like to do. Uh, let, let's wrap it up because sure. th there's other stuff going on that I want to ask the reverend about so uh, so thank you david for letting me spill over into barry's time hey barry i got a 23.95 doctor of divinity certificate <laughs> can yeah, i be really? a jew yeah can 23.95 that was pretty cheap yeah. so i'm giving uh, you one for 20. oh god all right sorry sorry always ask first oh yeah all right see you <laughs> gentlemen you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Thank Emil. You. Thank, you. Thank you. I Barry. love you, Emil. Thank you. You know, I love you, too. Thank you. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is both an attorney and an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. I know you want to talk about things, but there are some questions I would like to ask you, and that is... Sure the pullout of Afghanistan. I, I stand corrected. I just want to make two corrections. One is I said four service members died. Uh, it's up to 13. 13 service members were killed at Kabul airport. And President Joe Biden said to the attackers, we will hunt you down and make you pay. 
Uh, I have some thoughts about that. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Yeah. Uh, What are your thoughts? I was, well, I was, I was a little surprised by that line, but I guess that's what you have to do when you see that uh, your, the position that you're taking on Afghanistan right now is only approved by 25% of the people. Well, see, I, it's, is it approved? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is it approved or the way he's pulling out is disapproved of? Well, I think that the polls I saw talked about the last couple of weeks. What do you think of Biden's conduct regarding Afghanistan in the past couple of weeks? And it's down to about 25 percent approval. But we want out. We just don't like the way he's doing it. Correct. But but what really bothers me, this is I, I, I still have this on my phone. I just want to read you something that was posted on Facebook this afternoon. The language is a little rough, but I'm not going to clean it up. Dumbass Biden, how many are dead at the airport? No Americans left behind. How many more dead now in this attack on the airport? The bloodshed is on their misspelled T-H-E-R-E hands. Let's put his ass and the vice president's on a plane and drop him and the vice president right in the middle of this chaos that they have created and let them fight their way out. So disgusted with this. God rest their souls, again misspelled, who have lost their lives. And then in big black letters, impeachment. So who is that? I don't know anything about this person who posted this, but I, this is so reprehensible. You can, we can do... Monday morning, Thursday morning, quarterbacking about this forever. I'd like to think that we learned a lesson, though, and that the lesson is you cannot do regime change using the military, whether it lasts one year or 20 years. It never, ever works. So maybe instead of worrying about what Donald Trump or Josh Hawley or all the other people who used to say, let's get out, instead of going, well, that's maybe they changed their mind or let's give them an opportunity to come up with an alternative. Maybe we should just say those people, mainly on the left, who used to say back in the 60s, we cannot be the world's policemen. Instead of putting footnotes and saying, unless we like, and, and believe me, the stuff in Afghanistan, as I said last week, I learned all about the Taliban from women in Afghanistan who were part of uh, the feminist majority of right. foundation. So I'm very, I mean, I'm worried about it, and it, there's no question about it. But when you evacuate 101,000 people just since the end of July, 95,000 of them in the last 11 days, you have pulled off one hell of an evacuation and you have saved a lot of lives and maybe instead of moaning about what this person's complaining about yeah maybe it, it, just but, say this is a great this is one of the great evacuation salvation stories of modern history like dunkirk like dunkirk but not really no because there weren't a lot of people 
Well, <laughs> there were private boats, of course, that rescued people in Dunkirk. Well, Eric Prince, have, what do you think well, Eric Prince would have charged for a boat out of Dunkirk? Well, the, whatever was the equivalent of $6,500, which is what he's charging now. But then, of course, we have members of Congress like Seth Moulton, who most people have never heard of, except for about 10 minutes he was running for the presidential nomination for the Democrats. He and a clown from um, a Republican. Majeri or Majeri? I can't pronounce it. No, I can't either. But but they, they, they chartered a plane and they went over because they were veterans of the Iraq war. So they, well, I don't know what they were thinking they would do, but they they spent time and effort. I disagree and with you. Protection. I disagree with and you. And they are, uh, <laughs> I mean, if they have so damn much money, why didn't they charter a couple of extra planes and fly out people from Afghanistan right here to the United States? Well, I guess they, they didn't think that would be as important as going and seeing for themselves, although they had nothing literally nothing to contribute to the conversation. Well, we need eyes on the ground and congressional oversight. I am tired of taking the CIA's word for it and the Pentagon's word for it. If two former two vets want to go to congressmen want to go to Iraq and see what's going on, that's part of checks and balances too often. We leave war in the hands of people who uh, don't want us to know what's going on. So, well, that, you know, no, I don't disagree with that. But I think under these peculiar circumstances, the idea that two people, just because they were veterans, have some kind of right to spend a huge amount of money, and they, oh, of course, they have to be protected over there. I mean, to me, it's, 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 it's indefensible what they did at this time. Why didn't they think about going over two months ago since we're doing Monday morning quarter? Well, what is Richard why Engel? Now? Why should Richard Engel be there? Why should we have the media there covering it? That, that, with that well, say, we, we need oversight. We need people who are there to tell us what they're saying. I, I don't trust the CIA or the Pentagon to tell me how successful this is. No, I don't. But what did the what did you learn? They're back here now. What did you learn from? I don't trust the CIA about anything. I don't trust the FBI. I don't trust the Defense Department. I've never trusted the Defense Department. They 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 lied about what was going on through four administrations in Afghanistan through war in Vietnam. They just lie all the time. But my problem is not that the media is not there and the media is not reporting, although the media hasn't done a terribly good job of reporting on what's been happening in the last two weeks. But it's better than nothing. And it's certainly better than two members of Congress who I'm sure were thinking primarily, how is this going to help my next election campaign? So I got zero respect for those two guys. If I lived in their congressional districts, I'd vote them out. That's how scurrilous I think this is. I hear what you're saying. And I agree with the premise. You can't trust what the military says. But the idea that it's going to be corrected 
by a couple of corporate members of Congress, I think is baloney. Biden. With all due respect. We've been beating up on Biden, and rightfully so, all day, because... uh, But, but... Uh, this is really hard, what he's doing. This is a thankless job, ending a war. And there's no way to do it. You, when you are in retreat and you've lost, we're powerless over there, despite all the the money we've spent and the soldiers we've sent. We're powerless. That's why we're leaving. And I've often asked, why did Biden want to be president, especially at his age? And I think I honestly think this is why he wants to be president. This moment to end Afghanistan, that he's a deeply religious man and he has been in the Senate and in the Situation Room since the beginning and he watched everyone get it completely wrong and i think he's prepared to meet his maker and have a clear conscience i think he became president to end this war by any means necessary and it's sloppy and messy and nobody's gonna including me nobody's gonna say great job there joe (laughs) But I think this is why he I think he sleeps perfectly well at night. I I think he does, too. Yeah. And I think that um, I mean, it is that the flip flops by Republicans and other conservatives about this and the criticisms that are being directed at him for having this messy result would you kind of a historical they don't remember or they don't choose to remember and the media hardly ever talks about this anymore what did trump do how did he set up joe biden to fail and i do think i mean that's the the theme of some of the uh, columns today in the last couple days but i think he did set him up to fail it it was trump who decides to leave you know kind of free five thousand taliban fighters including the guy who's ostensibly the head of the Taliban now in, when they form a new government. Um, Biden made it clear. And well, we freed some, Bo, to get Bo Bergdahl out, Obama freed some guys from Gitmo. How many did Trump free? 5,000. Trump freed 5,000 Taliban. Taliban prisoners. Yes, and got a couple people in return. But I thought we don't but, negotiate with terrorists. Well, we, we always say that, and then every president does. Kennedy did. Johnson obviously did. But the but my my point with this is that you this didn't happen in some kind of vacuum. It it happened and I'm quite willing to believe that Donald Trump knew exactly what he was doing. Because at the time of the, the so-called peace deal, I, I assume he would think he probably wouldn't be president again, notwithstanding everything he said since. So let me, you know, so let me do something that's going to make it impossible for my Democratic successor, whoever he is, 
where she is to ever get out of this looking good. So I think this was a setup. And I think when, when the money's not there anymore, people say, well, let's just get out. But the conservatives who act, who actually say and possibly believe, although I don't for one second believe it. If you read Josh Hawley, of course, he wants to be the next president too. Josh Hawley's letters six months ago when he was talking about getting out of Afghanistan, he didn't say, oh, by the way, we ought to get out of Afghanistan, but let's make sure we bomb all of the Taliban caves before we leave. That's the kind of crap they're talking about now. That's the kind of excuses that they're making. But there isn't, there's one lesson you, I think we should learn, and that is nation building is never a good idea. If you want to help a country and you don't want to change its government, then there are ways to do that. You send the military in, you're doomed. It will not work. Lebanon, Vietnam, Syria, and now Afghanistan. If we didn't learn that lesson, then we'll be finding another place to fight whether Biden's reelected or, you know, DeSantis is the next president. Right. The war in Afghanistan, I don't think, is over because there is money to be made. There's a resistance leader, Ahmad Massoud. He's head of, uh, uh, I think he was next in line to Ghani, who retreated, left Afghanistan. And uh, Ahmad Massoud is living about 50 miles north of Kabul. He's leading the resistance to the Taliban. And he has a foreign relations head named Ali Nazari, who is meeting with Washington lobbying firms to lobby various senators and Congress people, and no doubt the White House, to... Uh, give arms to the resistance and there's money to be made. Yeah. I know that's a, I know that's kind of uh, strange for Americans to finance resistance leaders in Afghanistan. We would like the Mujahideen. We would never give money to people like Osama bin Laden and help him buy weapons to fight the Soviets. Yeah. This is it, it ain't over. There's money in weapons. They're just it, it's as long as there's money and weapons. And, you know, where does Ahmad Massoud, the resistance leader, have money to hire lobbyists? Where's that coming from? Saudi Arabia? Possibly. Qatar? Who's uh, who's paying? They don't work cheap. Yeah. So who, you know, there's. The weapons manufacturers, they're not going to let go of this. That's a fire hose of money coming their way. Not to mention the heroin. That, the heroin, uh, right. The, 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 how valuable heroin is. It, it's a currency. It's a way to exchange sure. things without leaving a, uh, a paper trail. Well... But, but yes, all of what you just said is quite possible and likely. If Trump did this, if Trump did it. Yeah. 
and it went like this, what would we be saying? I'd be saying it's about time we got the hell out. No. Yes, I would. No, you would say this is gross incompetence, that it is uh, malfeasance, and this would never have happened under Joe Biden. He's competent. This would have been an issue of everything Trump does, he's an incompetent. Well, right. everything, yeah, I mean, everything he did was pretty much incompetent. But I do think that if he had gotten out and that we had seen the same thing happen, I, I do believe I would have said, well, at least we're out because there's not a 21st and a 22nd and a 30th year of floundering around in a country that really, with all due respect to the people that are, that helped us, um, they couldn't help us rebuild their country in their model, in their image. And I, I, I would have congratulated Trump for getting us the hell out. Okay. I want to play a clip. This is the Pentagon announcing that viruses are going to be man viruses, vaccines are going to be mandatory for our soldiers. Let's listen to this. So now that the Pfizer vaccine has been approved, the department is prepared to issue updated guidance requiring all service members to be vaccinated. A timeline for vaccination completion will be provided in the coming days. Uh, the health of the force uh, is, as always, uh, our military and our civilian employees, families and communities is a top priority. That is uh, Mr. Kirby, press spokesman for the Pentagon, saying that after Labor Day, if you're in the military, you're getting vaccinated. How do you think that's going to play out? How do you see that? What do you think we're going to be talking about in two months? We're going to be talking about that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're going to be talking about in two months is that there will be a core of people, probably 15 percent of the military, who will simply refuse. And then the only question is, do we say, well, you're refusing, so we're going to discharge you from the military, which I think is perfectly fine. We have way too many people in the military now. Um, but I don't think you're going to see lawsuits that are successful. I don't think you're going to find a sergeant at, you know, Fort Benning, Georgia, who refuses to get vaccinated, going and taking his case to the United States Supreme Court. OK, uh, right. here's what I think is going to happen. All right. And I hope I'm wrong. Uh, Paul Bremer, who was the viceroy of Iraq from Kissinger and Associates, genius, never served a day. Uh, and he he was sent to Iraq to be the viceroy. And he said, the Republican National Guard, you're fired. And they went home and they took all their weapons. And we all know what happened after that. Sure. My instinct is the following. This, I'm just, this is what I've been thinking about. We have a problem of white nationalists, separatists, insurrectionists in our military. How do you find them? Well, one way would be who are the ones who don't want a vaccine? Because I suspect, is it fair to say 
the soldiers who won't get a vaccine might. I'm going to get so much pushback on this. I I went after Bill Maher. I called him an anti-vaxxer and I got so much pushback on this. Is it fair to say that the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were anti-vaxxers? What do you think? This is where, you know, I don't have any proof here. I'm just asking you. This is an opinion about a fact. What do you think? No, I think most of them were anti-vaxxers. Do they trust Fauci? What? Do they trust Fauci? No, of course not. And if you're QAnon, you think the vaccine has a microchip in it that the Jews are planting, right? That's right. Okay. Maybe Bill Gates. And Bill Gates. No, but these arguments, David, they're the the most ridiculous anti-science statements that you can find. So we have a problem. I'm going to I'm going to ask for your opinion because we can't prove this. Right. The the military. Austin and Millie have said that they are going to root out the problem of white nationalists insurrectionists in the military. They recognize that this is a problem, especially since ex-military and some current military people were part of the insurrection. Correct? Correct. By forcing everyone in the military to get a vaccine, you're kind of testing to see, and it's a convenient way to get rid of the QAnons, isn't it? I mean, I you say you, you say that like that's a bad thing. Well, um, I, yeah. I mentioned Paul Bremer, the viceroy, dismissing the elite Republican guards. Do we want to throw them out of the military? Yes, we do. But yes, we do. But. What happens when they're no longer in the military? Um, the same way they're going to become. No, but do you, I mean, they're not going to become insurrectionists and take over the Capitol next January 6th. I mean, I, these are. Um, if you were if you were a thought exercise, I'm just doing a thought exercise here. Sure. You're the president of the United States and we do have a problem with white nationalists in the military and in in the you know the police it's a serious problem and, and it's going to potentially make the midterms impossible through intimidation the vaccine what 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 are your options here you you force the military to get vaccinated you're going to have a lot and, and you're going to throw these people out if they don't. Well, you, it, but, you know, throwing them out, we have a whole administrative discharge system in the military. You don't have to do something wrong, get court-martialed. You can be given at any time that you leave the military an honorable discharge. And I would give them an honorable discharge. And then I would... With that, they could go and get a job somewhere else, do whatever they did before they were in the military or 
things that they thought of All as right. alternatives. I hope you're right. I, I, I mean, I'm not worried. I'm not worried about these people becoming a, a gigantic uh, anti uh, anti 2022 uh, force intimidating people. Uh, out of voting. I mean, I think that states are doing a pretty good job with that. They're going to do a better job with it when all of this, um, these uh, redistricting decisions get made over the next few weeks. But I don't, I just don't, I don't worry that they're going to take their military training into the streets of Detroit or into the streets of Philadelphia and intimidate voters. Just, I mean, you could be right. I mean, I hope you're not right. I, I do too. I don't, yeah. I don't. I don't see that happening. I really don't. Yeah, I mean, there are there's there are a lot of guys in the police and military who were rounded up after the insurrection who call themselves patriots. And right. They, you know, there was a guy. I won't play the clip. There was a, some crazy guy. Uh, talking about at a, a city hall, talking about the mask mandates, and he's saying there are people who aren't going to take it. There's a change coming. I'm warning you. There's a change, and they're quoting the Nuremberg codes, and they're being and I'm thinking uh, there's a a really dangerous element. Uh, there's a really but, dangerous element out there. But they're there now. They're in the military. They're in the police forces. They're dangerous now. They kill people. If you've got a racist cop who is also an anti-vaxxer or whatever, they're killing people right now. Yeah. Almost entirely African-Americans. Because well, they hate them. We don't, we don't need those people. We don't want those people in the police forces any more than we want them in the military. And, and, you know, this is a, here's a good thing. If, if these people quit the military, more power to them, because we've got so damn many people in the military. We have a huge reserve. Uh, there's still something called the individual ready reserve. That means if you go in the military is there for two years, you still have a six year obligation afterwards. Nobody's ever been called up in the individual ready reserve, but it's there. It's so basically what you're saying. Pool. This is what you're saying. This is what you're saying. Yeah. Let me finish. Um, there are some who uh, feel like that, you know, the conditions are such that they can attack us there. My answer is bring them on. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Not as articulately, not as, articulately as a former president, but... Uh, <laughs> No, I don't want them to be. I don't want them to be brought on. I would like them to go and get a nice job, so that I don't have to wait a week to get my car tires fixed. I let them do something else, but don't keep them in the military. Give them a keep. Let them keep their weapons, and then um, do what? Yeah. What are they going to do in the military? I mean, I I hear what you're saying, and I think it's not an incredible possibility. But I think these characters are not going to, when push comes to shove, and I've seen that clip you were talking about, this guy is not going to become the vanguard of a revolutionary right-wing movement that's going to affect the 2022 elections. Okay. I, I mean, 
Would you follow that guy? Would anybody follow that guy screaming at the city council about what's going to happen? He's a nut. Yeah. But nuts follow nuts. I'm a nut. (laughs) I guess it's. I follow my own nuts. (laughs) It's not somebody else's nuts. So there's a guy. I think he's on Newsmax. Somebody sent this. Oh, no, it's a tweet. He's the son of the former police commissioner of New York City, Kelly. His Greg Kelly used to be on the local news here and seemed like a reasonable guy. My mother used to watch him all the time and said he was adorable. But then he went to work for Newsmax and he went full bore right wing nut job on The Masked Singer. Lester Holt is hosting The Masked Singer tonight and they're going to reveal who shot Ashley Babbitt. It's going to be big reveal. And this was Greg Kelly's. uh, This was Greg Kelly. This was his tweet. He said, so Lester Holt will interview the totally exonerated Capitol Hill cop who killed all caps Ashley Babbitt. I will watch this fake news extravaganza with this cop and his itchy trigger finger. I demand that Lester ask real questions first. How was she a deadly threat? She was unarmed. Boy, is he angry about the cops shooting an unarmed woman, but no reaction. It's interesting. No reaction from Greg Kelly uh, about other cops. Another black man beaten during a traffic stop. This body camera footage from May 2019 appears to show now former Louisiana State Police Officer Jacob Brown beating Aaron Larry Bowman as other officers hold Bowman down. Bowman was left with multiple lacerations, a fractured arm, and broken ribs, according to court documents. That is the the latest today's scandal involving America's police. You know, we're going to police the world. We can't even police Louisiana. You don't see Fox, Newsmax, OWN complaining about that, do you? But Ashley Babbitt, Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed protester who is trying to crawl through a window and lead a charge on our House of Representatives, uh, she gets shot. Yeah, not that it's dispositive, but when you said lead the charge, she literally was leading from all of the latest released uh, video. It's clear to me that she was in the vanguard. She was leading this. And the fact that how do you know that she didn't have a gun when you have 45 people behind her all trying to get through the same window screaming obscenities and talking about getting Nancy Pelosi. I mean, you know, this woman is not a hero. She is not a martyr. She is a person who was in who decided to be in the wrong place at the very worst time. And everybody's death matters, but she's no heroine. She's Horst Wessel. Yeah, (laughs) she's 
she just um but the right wingers have made her into a martyr they, she's the next joan of arc to 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 build her up and that cop now is going to be vilified and the insurrection has they've just completely flipped it they're they're patriots they're heroes uh i've never seen the country this sick before i have never seen people people in charge get away with doing and saying the things that they say it's never been this bad now we've more people died in vietnam the the, the country is better the, the country is actually better than it's ever been for some people <laughs> the homeless yeah. situation is worse uh i don't know uh maybe how bad is it you're absolutely right i spent most of today just raging over right-wing reaction to afghanistan and to covid I and mean, when you look at these numbers, you don't have to be a scientist. I know you and Emil were talking about this. You don't have to be a scientist to know that that uh, ivermectin, which comes out of nowhere, it has some some human use, but nothing. It's not an antiviral agent. That this is now being promoted on Fox, as we learned from Rachel Maddow's show a couple nights ago, by Hannity. Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson. They act like this is a serious medical intervention to prevent you from getting COVID-19. And yeah. I did ask my uh, doctor's spouse, is there no way that you can begin to prosecute people for giving this kind of false medical information? Um, and you're not a doctor and you're on television and you're giving the advice. And her response was, only if you, there's a financial benefit. This is why uh, our friend Jim Baker, you know, uh, televangelist Jim Baker, was in fact got in a lot of trouble, was heavily fined when he was promoting some kind of silver nitrite for right. uh, COVID. And, you know, he, but he was making money off it, he was selling it. At the same time, well, they've done promoting. studies. There's a British Internet hate speech organization that says something like 70 percent of all the anti-vaxxing tweets come from 12 people and all of them are profiting off something other than the vaccine. Including Bobby Kennedy, Jr. He's yeah, profiting. Well. He's charging for these get these retreat retreats and getaways exactly yeah yeah well but i mean I, this this is you know this anti-science uh mode of thinking it started with evolution you know but people would not accept the evidence for evolution it was all a scam and they would get a occasional uh, PhDs and William would, Jennings uh, Bryan, I believe. Yeah, William Jennings Bryan. I, Didn't he, he defend? He was an yeah, he was an anti-evolution person. Well, the, the, people people forget that. Uh, Wasn't he a progressive? 
What? Wasn't he a progressive, William Jennings, Brian? Not on that, he wasn't. I know, but wasn't he like a hero? Yeah, he was. He was. Hmm. But, um, and Clarence Darrow, by the way, who, of course, in the famous Scopes Monkey trial, um, people forget that Darrow was actually convicted in that trial. But now we've got, now we have people with PhDs, some of them in fields of science, who actually claim that the evidence for evolution is thin and that there are scientific, not religious, although they're always really religious, alternatives. And then, but when you start to find that 35 to 40% of people are skeptical about the evidence for evolution, you can understand why a similar number of people, percentage of people, are skeptical about vaccines. Right. right. I mean, it's just one. It's like they're trying to tell us this. The elitists are trying to tell us something that is obviously not true. Right. And uh, so we better do a better job on science education, not on the method of science. It's not that you have to teach everybody in the 11th grade how to be a chemistry professor, but you need to understand the basics of the scientific method, the way in which you test data, the way that you change positions on the basis of new scientific evidence these are fundamental ideas fox about science fox has an audience because of the scientific method <laughs> they know <laughs> what they've they tr they've tested and they're using a, a formula that's tried and true for yeah. example newsmax is using the scientific method i'm going to play you a clip of somebody utilizing the scientific method, knowing what works and what doesn't. This is Steve Cortez. He's a former advisor to Donald Trump. And you would always see him on CNN defending Donald Trump. Now, I this is he has a show on Newsmax. And I am telling you. I saw this and I and I. There's a part of me that says, don't play it. But I've spent so much time not watching the other side. I am shocked. I am simply, this is beyond anything I've ever seen. This is Steve Cortez on whether or not we should take Afghani res refugees into the country. Is the mass migration of Afghan men to America really a good idea? Good for your wife, your daughter? The left will call us racist for opposing any amount of migration at all since they believe in open borders. But we have to be brave enough to put up with their ridiculous aspersions and brave enough to discuss cultural differences that matter. Will these Afghans share our values? Will they try to assimilate into the American way of life? It's not likely. Donald Trump's spokesperson asking if Afghani men should be around your daughter and mother and wife. Donald yeah. Trump is a rapist. Yes. His spokesman now has a newscast and he says there are cultural differences between Afghani men and American men. And if we bring the Afghani men into America, they will rape our daughters and wives, just like Donald Trump. Have you ever seen anything like that before? No, I mean, 
No, this is the worst it's been in my lifetime. And being slightly older than you are. Um, finish that thought. I've seen another. Fin- finish that what? thought. Finish that thought, please. Yeah. I mean, it, because we have now the ability through Fox and One America News and Newsmax and the other cranky right wing uh, outlets uh, to constantly repeat this nonsense. And when people often now go back to in regard to COVID and say, well, where, where was the outrage about the polio vaccine? Well, I got the f- first, the, the Salt vaccine and the Sabin vaccine a few years later, but I was petrified because the only thing I saw about polio were the occasional black and white, and they had a black and white television. I don't think they even invented color television. It was kids in iron lungs, in hospitals, with the inability to read unless you to breathe unless you were inside this gigantic metal thing and i was petrified by that and my parents wouldn't let me go swimming there's now if now you see all this but on the other hand this Mm -hmm. and then you hear these cranks talking whether it's about afghanistan or whether it's about covid and a giant megaphone presented by the mass media in the form of Fox News and all the ones that are even worse. And yeah, we they, didn't have a- to deal with that. And we didn't. So what did we do? Everybody said, all right, my kids are at risk of polio. We're going to get them a vaccine. I hope we can get it soon. And they did. And now you have this widespread inability to trust science and to trust these cranks that are on right-wing media. Yeah. So it's worse than it's ever been. The, the cranks on the right-wing media are very adept at hiding what they really believe and using dog whistles. It's really important when we watch them, and you should watch them. I, I've made the mistake of ignoring them, and then suddenly these arguments come out of thin air, and I'm going, I'm... I've got my guard down. You have to watch these people. They do what anti-Semites do, what misogynists do, homophobes and racists do. They say, whoa, I'm not a racist. Whoa, no, 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 no. Uh, My daughter is dating a black man. How could I be a racist? But I'm just saying, I think it's really interesting to look into these tests that were given in the 60s, these uh, SAT tests, and how different black kids perform versus white kids. Well, why is that interesting? Shouldn't we know that? Shouldn't we know if black kids uh, have different test scores than, than white kids? Uh, what do you do with that? Why Why do you want to know that? It's important for me to know that. It's science. We need to find out if, yeah, we need to find out what? That black people who may not have had the same education in the 60s as white kids didn't perform what? equal to white kids on the SATs? Yes. Is it a cultural thing or is it something else? Well, if it's not a cultural thing, what do you think it is? 
I don't know. Let's find out. Well, if it's not <laughs> cultural, what could it yeah. be? Could it be genetic? Could it be that you want to find out if some races are genetically inferior to others? Is that what you're looking for? No, 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 no. This is how they operate. They Nobody would ever say, I'm a racist. They just think, I think it's curious that our prisons are filled with people of color. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why it is. You want to know why? No, I think we, what is it about people of color that they tend to be uh, imprisoned? Why are, why are vast number? Why are they a disproportionate number of people of color behind bars? I don't know. Could it be uh, a disproportionate number of white male prosecutors locking them up? Yeah. I'm just trying to find out why. Why are you just trying to find out? I think you know the answer and no amount of evidence will change your mind. You already know why these test scores might be different and why there's so many black men in prison. You already know the answer and there's no amount of evidence that I could present to you that could change your mind. So why are we having this conversation? You're a racist. You are a racist. No, how dare you? You know, as you know, a Jew, what as you a, just did, this was a perfect example of a Tucker Carlson interview. And I would suggest, I don't know if you're on TikTok. Uh, I am not, but I do occasionally watch it. Um, you should do a TikTok video where you play both Tucker Carlson and a person trying to get him to explain why it's so important. And that is masterful. It was really good. I, I have because as a Jew, I when I was younger, I used to have these conversations with people who would say, I'm not an anti-Semite. Oh, good. That's good to know. I'm just I just want to know why so many scientists are Jewish. Why? Why do you want to know that? I want to know why so many doctors are Jewish. Why? Is it a, are you a geneticist? Are you? Uh, yeah. I've never seen, I, I you know, in terms of critical, th I never thought that I had critical thinking. I always thought I'm a joke writer, I'm a comedian, I'll say anything. And then uh, I noticed that certain people don't get irony, satire, and sarcasm. And I, and I thought, wow, if you don't have critical thinking, you can't tell when somebody's being sarcastic. That's right. Okay. So you will read... A modest proposal by Jonathan Swift and think, I cannot believe this guy really wants to eat Irish babies. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, I think if you don't have a sense of humor, and I, I have to say, I ne literally never heard a political conservative who is funny. 
Oh, they're funny. I disagree with you. Oh, really? Well, we'll talk about hate, that. Hate is week. funny. Racism is all. Hatred, anti-Semitism, homophobia, misogyny. When it comes to jokes mm-hmm. and, and taboos, there's nothing funnier than a Holocaust joke. I'm being serious. You just you can't make a living and you shouldn't say it in public. But bad taste, mean spirited jokes are always the funniest. You know, I guess uh, I well, let me say there is a market for that. Um, I. um, I'm back to watching 20 minutes of Fox or the worst one. You know, I used to religiously watch 15 to 20 minutes of Fox. But then when they when Trump started to and Michael Dell says, well, Fox is not they're not really conservative anymore. Then I started to search out one American news and Newsmax and whatever else. There's another thing on my cable here. But the you have to know how these people think. And that's why during the day I will frequently turn on television, just see what crackpot stuff is being on, what guests are being shown. And uh, I think you do learn a lot. And I, 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 I hope in some small way I've been encouraging you for the years I've known you uh, to do the same to listen to these right-wingers and to actually take seriously the fact that they they are talking to 20% of America and 20% or more of America believes everything they say without any evidence, without any evidence to back it up. So we are, we're in trouble. And if we're thinking that, well, we have MSNBC, think again. Well, I want to know, see, this is what I love about this show. Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist. She's also Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, and she is a reader. And I'm always interested in what people read. And like, how, how are you this smart? How are you this smart, Professor Marianne Cummings? What are you what are you reading? An inter- um, it looked like an international quarter, like Globe, the Globe. Yes, damn. This is so. This is the problem with most Americans. They, they, they don't travel. They don't know how the rest of the world thinks. So, what is this quarterly? What is the Globe? It comes out every month, every week. Uh, I think every week. And it covers Ooh. the world. Is this how they you know so much? This is. Pretty much the uh, situation at CNN with Chris Cuomo. They'd be a nice uh, takedown of that guy. So you have the globe. You know, it would make a great segment, Professor Marianne. You reading us the globe the way LaGuardia used to read the funny papers. Tarantino will not give his poor mother a dime. Well, she didn't believe in him. She said, you're never going to make it. And you're a bad student. You're never going to make it. And he said, I'll show you. But, you know, you're rich enough to overcome your little petty problems and issues with your mother, you know. And she probably, in her sternness, gave him the kind of moxie that drove him to making all these fine things. I think you're right. Can you get a little closer to the, the microphone? 
Um, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let me just do a little housekeeping here. Uh, I this is the professors and Marianne. What I'd like to do is have Dan Frankenberger give us a community billboard. We have uh, Professor Jonathan Bick, political scientist. We have Professor Marianne Cummings. And I want to thank the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. You're welcome. We uh, we don't have Professor Ann Lee, uh, Professor Adnan Hussein, and we don't have uh, Ian Faluna, Professor Faluna. So if you want to, you know, hang out, you're you're more than welcome. I don't know I would, why. I would, I would love to, but I, I do have a call I have to make in 15 minutes. So okay. I'm going to. All right. I, I get off. it. I get it. But but if it were your grandkids, you you'd put the you'd find the time. Right. Yeah. Are you suggesting that your you, David Feldman, are as cute as my grandchildren? I'm just saying. You keep hanging out with your grandkids and your brain turns yeah. to mush. Yeah. And and if you <laughs> stick around, you may see the world's fattest cat. I'm sorry, the world's uh, uh, heavily boned cat. No, that doesn't that sounds sick. Like he's, the cat's being boned. <laughs> I'm just saying I don't approve of the way Professor Bick is raising Bella. And I and um, I. All right. Thank you, Professor. Let me show you before you go. Somebody is working on After Effects, and that's why he looks like crap. And he came up with this because it is a complete waste of time to do this for a podcast. But this is me being self-destructive. Next the professors and Marianne. I think that looks almost, I think that look, I think that looked almost good. That's why I have dark rings underneath my uh, eyes. Uh, I don't know why I'm obsessing with After Effects. Dan Frankenberger, I don't want to, keep you waiting anymore. Uh, Dan Frankenberger saved the beginning of the show. And uh, I thank you for that. And let's do community billboard and tell Hello, me. Jag officer. <laughs> yes. Tell me what. Stick around for a few weeks. Jag tell, officer. Tell me. Yes. <laughs> tell me what uh, the animals are up to. I shouldn't say that. I, I'm teasing. Well, well first I, I grabbed a Sopranos quote for today. Um, so Silvio says his brains are splattered all over the seat. And the mystery character says, Joey peeps couldn't have been too much to clean up. What a great line. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. It's Polly Walnuts. Ooh, that's pretty smart. I Polly Walnuts did twice in a row. Yeah. Uh, Season five, episode nine. Okay. And uh, from earlier in the show, I'm glad uh, Mike Rowe did a little bit of a Dangerfield impression because it uh, it sparked something in me. I wrote down real quick, Rodney Rickles. Rodney Rickles. That would make a good character. Yeah, because I'm, I'm not going to be good at it, but I'll try one. Oh, David Feldman, he's walking around a motorcycle game clubhouse, dusting his knickknacks for an hour. 
That's, so you mixed a rod. I like with, that. With the Rickles, like I can't do it good, but there's something there. Yeah, I like you that. You might be able to get Mike to do it. Uh, While you're pulling up pictures. Oh, I, I came up with an anti-Semitic uh, Borscht Belt comedian name. What is that? Shecky Shekels. Shecky Shekels. I thought that would be a good, if you really wanted to, like, make fun of a Jewish Borscht Belt comic and alienate the Jews in the audience, please welcome Shecky Shekels. <laughs> That's just so wrong. Uh, I'm looking for your the pictures you sent me. And uh, it says community billboard, August 26th. I see it now. OK, here we go. While you're pulling those up. I have uh, uh, Valley Vox has a, a show coming up this weekend on the 28th at 4.30 p.m. with uh, nominated producer, Oscar nominated producer, Julia Schechter. They're going to watch her documentary documentary from 97 called Colors Straight Up. And then afterwards, they're going to have a live Q&A with Julia. Um, okay. So join them for their Valley Vox event. Uh, you could get tickets. Uh, on Twitter at Valley Vox or email them at valleyvoxtheatergmail.com and theater spelled with an R-E. And first up here, we have a picture from Tom Weber. Drawing oh. animal porn. This is, uh, yep, this is bear. You know, we all love bears. I'm not talking about the, the animals. This is a bear <laughs> spreading himself bear naked. He's, this, uh, Having fun sliding down a hill. That's not Tom what it Weber looks wrote. like to me. That's what Tom Weber wrote from TomWeberArt.com. That looks like a bear taunting me, saying, look what you can't have. Maybe I'm sick. Not maybe. Am I wrong? That's what I see. Tom Weber has to. That is a bear. That is dirty. He's, he's got some spleen in there. Yeah, that is disgusting. Uh, I think I'm about to. There we go. That looks like uh, a growth that needs to be removed. What is it? That that looks like a fruit salad. That's a fruit salad from Glenn Costick. That's beautiful. He's, he's got local watermelon, cantaloupe, peaches, and blueberries with California grapes. And a whisker. So the, uh, the strawberry has a little whisker there. Yeah, need a little fur. Yeah. You know, I, even that looks disgusting to me. Do I see a fly there? No. Okay. We'll find out when we go take over his house. Okay. And what do we have here? This is from Joe in Norway. He sent this in and said, uh, Dan, here is another photo and caption for the community billboard. David, can you ask the Canadian listeners to stop sending their super yachts over here to an intimidate our filthy rich the rich still have to pay 70 percent in taxes here in norway and it's just not fair is that a canadian yacht the ss i'm sorry the ss i'm sorry you mean i'm sorry i'm sorry it's you know i don't like to think of canadians being like that but there is they do have uh canadian they do have a, a certain type of canadian Ah. We got a couple of pictures from Lane. Uh, I checked out on his Facebook. He's been doing some uh, photography while bird watching. And here's a couple of some blackbirds. Here's this one, is sexy. Uh, this is a naked blackbird bathing, taking a bath. And it's it's a little suggestive. She's wearing a boa. And it's nice. It looks like she's uh, seeking out a bear. 
But yes, it does. There's one more that that I snagged from a huge uh, uh, group of pictures he posted. Right. It was cool because the sunlight was hitting the beak really cool on this. Well, I'm just looking at the, the water. That wa- the the water looks like something you would have to bathe yourself after being. That looks like lake. Yeah. Lake that poly- needs to be changed. Yeah, yeah, that water needs to be changed. When it rains, it changes itself. Yeah, it was disgusting. <laughs> That's a beautiful. It's like bird. I said, I, I chose this one out of the big set he posted because the the sunlight was hitting the beach really cool. Lane took cool. these pictures. Yep. Wow. Right in his yard. And what kind of bird is that? A blackbird. Okay. Uh, and. This, I, I know what this is. Look at that. Yep. That's from Dave MPA, his uh, Airbnb property in Millerton, Pennsylvania. That's going to be our safe house after we rob everybody at office yep. hours. Especially Glenn. Have we told everybody at office hours how this works, Dan, where we get all their personal information, find out, get, kind of get an idea where they live, what time they're home, what time they're not home. And we're just going to break in. You and I are going to go on a. 50 state four country crime spree and then hide out how how, now how do we get to stay after we've committed our crimes how do we how do we hide out at dave's airbnb i don't think we've told office hours yet i think we keep accidentally uh talking about it during the podcast to thousands of people right we don't have to rearrange things yeah but how if if we want to you know start booking dave and pa's airbnb how would we do that you should go to tinyurl.com slash Bertie's Country Cottage, B-E-R-T-I-E-S, Country Cottage. You can set up right. your reservations. It holds five guests, and there's two bedrooms, two baths. Go check it out. It's, so, it's so beautiful. That really is. Yep. And uh, now here's something interesting. He has not been, Joe Britton, JoeBrittonJewelry.com. He has not been getting invites to the show. Oh my! I don't understand why. Uh, well, we can we can blame me. Okay, I always do. Yeah, you should. But we haven't talked about uh, Joseph Britton in a while, so I wanted to put up his earrings because he makes awesome homemade jewelry. So go check out josephbrittonjewelry.com. Right, and remember, if you want to have relations with somebody, you must gift them first, during, and after. You must constantly be giving gifts to the person who is agreeing to have a relationship with you. Go to josephbrintonjewelry.com if you have any hopes of pleasuring the opposite or same sex. That's right. And uh, this is Ralph Nader gave us OSHA, the EPA, the Clean Water Act. He is the greatest American since Ben Franklin, and I mean that, and this, I think, is his proudest moment. This is, oh, I thought you were going to show the picture of me with him. <laughs> I saw Ralph Nader, and I thought, oh, we're going to run the picture of me with Ralph. We'll, we'll put it in circulation. Yeah. When but we got our picture taken together, I said, I bet you're going to save this one, huh? If you, I said, if you want, I'll sign it for you. Send it. Do I do that joke every show? You like repetition? Yeah. We could do it every show if you like. <laughs> I don't want to do repetition. I don't want to do the same joke on every show. I'm just not that prolific. So, okay. 
the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Ralph Ralph Nader Radio Hour dot com and check that out. Since the last show, uh, they haven't posted the the newest episode yet. So, uh, but yeah, go check them out and uh, check out Ralph. We have an interesting guest on the show who wrote a book called Public Citizens about Ralph Nader. It's very interesting. And uh, go to Ralph Nader Radio Hour dot com and join Congress Club. If you join Congress Club, fill out the application to join Congress Club, Professor Marianne and Jonathan Bick, Professor Bick, because Ralph will send you letters to write your Congress people. Wouldn't you want that? I think you would. Thank thank you. How do people contact you? Uh, Send your entries to the community board to dentfeldman at gmail.com. Thank you. Well, it's time for the professors and Marianne. Uh, I kept them waiting a half hour. I apologize. Uh, it's, uh, it's the middle of what am I going to say when it's like the autumn and every, everybody's back at work? What's my excuse going to be? Hello, Professor Marianne. Hello, Jonathan, Professor Jonathan Bick. What is Hello. on your mind tonight? Mine? Yes. Afghanistan, COVID, climate change, Ashley Babbitt, the infrastructure bill. Well, it's all on my mind, but um, I I, I read an article today in the New York Times about a phenomenon called lying flat. Are you familiar with this? Lying flat? Lying flat. No. Okay. So there was a, an article on July 3rd that, that went into this, and there was another one today. And it was talking about this, they're calling it a movement that started in uh, China about five years ago. And it was started by, and forgive my pronunciation, uh, Luao Huizong. Um, who quit his job as a factory worker in China. He biked 1,300 miles from Sichuan province to Tibet and decided he could get by on odd jobs and about $60 a month from his savings. And he called his new lifestyle lying flat. He said, after working for so long, I just felt numb like a machine. And so he resigned from his job. And he titled his post uh, on social media, Lying Flat is Justice, attaching a photo of himself lying on his bed in a dark, uh, dark room. And before long, the post was being celebrated by Chinese millennials as an anti-consumerist manifesto. The Lying Flat went viral and... Um, the uh, the Chinese government is not so thrilled about it, so they've been censoring his posts and others who who are uh, posting about this. And uh, you know, a generation ago, the route to success in China was hard work, getting married, having children. The country's authoritarianism was seen as a fair trade-off as mm-hmm. millions were being lifted out of poverty. But 
with more and more people working longer and longer hours and prices rising for things like housing, uh, many young Chinese people felt that their generation would not do as well as their parents' wow. generation. Wow. Hmm. Heard that before. Yeah, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, and so uh, there are many uh, young Chinese people who are defying the country's long-held prosperity narrative by refusing to participate in it. And his, uh, Mr. Lau's uh, blog post was removed by censors who saw it as an affront to Beijing's economic ambitions. And um, the word for this, by the way, in Mandarin is Tang Ping. And any any mentions of that are heavily restricted on the Chinese internet. Hmm. So it, it, to lie flat means to forego marriage, not have children, uh, stay unemployed or or uh, employed, but not necessarily full time, and to um, not you know, go after things like a car or a house. And it's really the opposite of what Chinese leaders have been asking of their people for many decades now. Um, and, you know, there there's a, uh, a thing called 996, which is used to describe uh, a common work week in China. So that's from 9 a.m. in the morning to 9 p.m. at night, six days a week. And many people are just saying, no thanks. Really? <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, not, to, not too appealing. Um, and there's a, a professor of uh, social anthropology at Oxford University uh, who studies Chinese society, and he calls Tang Ping culture a turning point for China. He says, young people feel a kind of pressure that they cannot explain, and they feel that promises were broken. People realize that material betterment is no longer the single most important source of meaning in life. And the, uh, the Communist Party of China is wary of any sort of social instability. And they've targeted this idea of lying flat as a threat to stability in China. Hmm. Uh, they're, you know, deleting wherever references appear on the Internet. They're going after uh, people who espouse this philosophy, if that's what you want to call it. Um, and um, in May, Chinese, China's internet regulator ordered online platforms to strictly restrict new posts on Tangping according to a directive obtained by the New York Times. A second directive required e-commerce platforms to stop, stop selling clothes, phone cases, and other merchandise uh, branded with its Tangping uh, logo or or name. And the state media is calling this uh, Tang Ping shameful. A newspaper warned that lying flat before getting rich is a bad idea. So, you know, basically, there's this idea in China that uh, is 
promoted by the state that you should get rich. That's your duty to the state. And this has been the case since the early 1980s, basically. So there yeah. seems to be a pattern. Doesn't there? Yeah. In terms of capitalism, it's almost as though somebody wrote a book 150 some odd years ago that said this is what happens to capitalism. Right, right. Um, and the, the billionaires are all up in arms there. Uh, people like Jack Ma, who's the... Uh, <laughs> founder of uh, Alibaba, which is the Chinese equivalent of Amazon. Um, well, he went into hiding. Why didn't he disappear for a little while? He did. He was having some issues, uh, but I think he's back, isn't he? Right. He had polit- I think they were they were looking for him. I think he was in trouble. But go ahead. What, what He's upset because he can't find low wage workers. Right. <laughs> Right. Hmm. Now, it's strange, like you were mentioning, you know, this guy who who, who wrote about 150 years ago. Um, it's almost as if there's something that billionaires gain from having people working these long hours and sacrificing their lives uh, to work constantly. It's almost like billionaires benefit from that. I don't. Right. Right. Well, let's see. Has he thought of shipping jobs over to China for a cheaper labor pool? Oh, it is China. Hmm. It is China. Maybe he'll ship them over to the U.S. That would be nice. <laughs> that would be very nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, and you're seeing this in the U.S. as well. It's it's kind of starting to bubble up in, in other places in the world. Um, a, a recent tweet by Hala Beckgirl on uh, Twitter said, I do not want to have a career. Uh, and this uh, gained over 400,000 likes. Um, she said, I want to sit on the porch. Hmm. It's, um, you know, and, and again, in, in the U.S., you know, we have a, a current worker shortage. Um, as of June, there were more than 10 million job openings in the U.S., according to the most uh, recent figures from the Labor Department. The highest number since the government began tracking the data two decades ago. While conservatives are blaming uh, generous pandemic unemployment benefits, Liberals are saying uh, people do want to work, just not for the paltry wages that they were making before the pandemic. Right. Now, they're finding, though, aren't they doing studies of the Republican states that got rid of the extra $300 a week? And aren't they discovering that it hasn't changed the job pool all that much? That if you get rid the idea is let's get rid of the extra $300 a week in unemployment that way people will starve them out. They'll have to go work, but they're finding that that's not happening the way they had planned, right? Right. People are so fed up with conditions of work in the United States that they are finding ways 
to get by. So they're probably lowering their standard of living, at least their material standard of living. I think the government has done a pretty good job of lowering our standard of living. We don't we don't need to do that. They do that for us. Right. Right. By implementing the policies that billionaires and the wealthy donors Mm -hmm. to their campaigns want them to do. Yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, it it is a real issue and people don't want to sacrifice their lives to what are in many cases uh, meaningless jobs. You know, they feel they're not contributing anything. Uh, they, They feel they're just working their lives away for very little in return. And, you know, the billionaires here also reflect what Jack Ma was saying in China, uh, which is, you know, they feel entitled to the profits of other people's work. The billionaires and the millionaires, they they feel that they they really, you know, that's that's do them because they're the job creators and they created these companies and the least that people could do would be to work for them for a substandard wage in order to enrich them so that they'll maybe invent, uh, you know, uh, start another business. Right. And a lot of people are saying, uh, no, man, not so much. Now, Professor Marianne, do you think it's true? You know, they, they've been out. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm interrupting you. Of me? Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I'll just finish up by saying, um, you know, that I don't think these people uh, in, in this uh, lying flat movement are saying, I don't want to work at all. It's that they don't want what's often turned of as a career, you know, this corporate uh, word that conjures up images of power suits and powerpoints. Um, they they want to have a life as well, and they don't want to sacrifice all that. And you know, when I think of some of the people in the upper middle class and those you know who want to achieve and etc. And you ask them, why are you working like this? Why are you sacrificing so much of your time and mental capacity and everything um, to your work, which they may not particularly like? They say, well, I'm doing it for my children. And then I say, so you're doing it so your children can do the same thing. They can go to a prestigious college, get a degree, and pursue a similar type of work right. in the future. Because it's not like you're making enough money so they don't have to work. Right. And in even if that were the case, if they did get enough money so that their children wouldn't have to work, is that really an optimal outcome? It's interesting. In America, you don't understand a person until they finally tell you what they do for a living. You're defined by your job, literally defined by your job. If you don't tell somebody what you do for a living, they they will stop talking to you. Yeah, people have to know. People have to know what you do for a living. 
I th- or at least on the East Coast. Actually, I was surprised when I moved to California how that wasn't the first question people asked you. In California, the first question people always asked me was, why are your hands around my neck? And I said, I don't like to shake hands. I like to squeeze. I, I thought it might be, uh, who's your agent? Who's your agent? <laughs> Professor Marianne, do you think, well, you got to hand it to the Republicans. Because they have, they said in the well of the Senate, we can't find anybody to take these low wage jobs because we're subsidizing them not to take them with this extra $300 a week. They're they're being honest, right? Uh, They're being partly honest. I mean, of course, the other side of that is that uh, we're subsidizing places like Walmart, you know, immensely with billions in, in, in food stamps and basically welfare, what remains of the welfare state, because they don't pay a living wage. Um, I think that, uh, just to go back to what uh, Professor John was saying, I mean, people have changed their lives, by the way. You know, the the professional class has just basically been on Zoom and they're fed up and they think that's a big sacrifice. But people around here, I've mentioned it before, have literally had to completely reorganize their lives. And the side of completely reorganizing your life, like, you know, not renewing your apartment lease, like moving in with your parents or doing something else, is that you are no longer available to work because you your availability wasn't being subsidized by at least, a, you know, a thousand dollar a month check to stay home during a pandemic. I mean, there was no we were talking about this the other night. You know, it's, we're back to whack-a-mole now with this pandemic. You know, it flares up in one state or a few states and goes down and flares up another because we've never had a national program. Like, And most of the experts agree. Michael Olsterholm was on, uh, who was at the uh, head of SIDRAP over at University of Minnesota, was on uh, Biden's board of advisors for COVID. And he flat out said, you know, look, we need six-month Six-week hard lockdown. Six-week, give everybody a check once a week, once every two weeks. We can do this. We just gave Wall Street $4 trillion. Of course, we find out that we just poured $2 trillion down a rat hole in Afghanistan. We can do this and, and just have everybody and have a uniform program. And if everybody felt that they were getting helped, like those checks that uh, that were sent out both by Trump and Biden, those are immensely popular. Turns out when the you know people discover the government can do something for them, like give you a check, the the government, the the uh, payroll protection plan pretty much saved my company. We had two and a half months worth of payroll that was covered because we lost contracts, you know, with people overseas over COVID. Uh, but we never did that. So now we're in a situation where, um, okay, you've gone and, and lived with your parents and you're doing something for them now. Like literally my sister did not live with my parents, but she stopped looking for a job and helped my parents in their situation. And, you know, as I said, people are not like, you know, cyborgs that you can put in cold storage for 15 months and then, you know, thaw them out and okay, uh, we need you to work now. 
People right. are simply not available to work. It's not just that they're fed up. It's that in many cases, they're just not available. They don't even have cars. A lot of people, you know, I knew, gave up on a car, either sold theirs or put off buying one. Right. Now, is this anecdotal or is this wishful thinking or is this stuff that's coming from the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics? Oh, what I just said? Yeah. Uh, no, that's just that. That's just basically what I have seen around here, which is a fairly good cross section. Right, I but there's confirmation. By, there is, I, I'm, but the, what I'm saying is that that is definitely an issue. That's a real thing. You know, whether I don't know what the percentages are, but when you don't have income sooner or later, push comes to shove, you have to do something with your life. And many of my friends who are not the professionals who could just go on and YouTube right. and work at home. Dramatic changes to their lives. So right. That made them, not all of them were available. They're still trying to, you know, find people to come back to work to our local restaurants and people, some people just simply aren't available or able to do it because of the changes they had to make to their lives. Right. So, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't agree. It's a fa- we're, you know, I can't agree with a fact when you, what you're telling me is either true or not. And as you're telling me that, I'm thinking, God, I hope this is true. I hope people are learning to that they don't need as much as they thought they did and that we're going to all come out of covid realizing what's truly important and have more leverage over the boss. I think what does bear you out is what we've been talking about, the inability to fill these jobs. Why can't they fill these jobs? Why do we have the highest number of unfilled jobs? Well, we all know they're sucky jobs. So you can extrapolate from that. Americans are not willing to do shitty work anymore uh so i hope i hope you're right the pandemic is still raging in many places it's surging in in illinois now it's surging in king county we will know next week what because this is the first full week of school this week in our area we will know what the effect of this new delta variant is probably by next week but uh people want to stay people don't want to be working in service jobs when you're running into, you know, scores of people every day. I was in a meeting. I was in a meeting yesterday and I completely lost it. Completely Uh lost my mind. Uh, Not during the meeting, but I got on the phone with someone who was at the meeting and I just completely lost it. And I, I said, Nobody knows how to do anything. So they talk about doing things as opposed to actually doing them. So it's I I, it is literally it was the kind of thing. It was it was and the lack of trust where you say to somebody, I can take care of this. And instead of letting you go take care of it, we have to talk about how you're going to take care of it. At one point, and this is what I said to my friend, a woman who was in the meeting, I said, 
I was trying to explain to a woman how to pee standing up with a penis. And I've been doing that. Well, when I was married, I wasn't allowed to pee standing up. But uh, I have been peeing standing up all my adult life. And and it, it, the thing that I when I said, let me take. I said, let me take. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, somebody is. It was. It was. It was like. It might have been one of my cats. Sorry. No, I think there's feedback. It, it was as though I I was saying, well, you you, un, you unzip your fly. Uh huh. I see. Now, do you have to unzip? Do you have to unzip your fly? Uh, can you? Uh, Pull your pants down. Sure, you can do that. But I've been doing this uh, for half a century. I find that's why we have it. It was literally that conversation where instead of saying, I trust that you can pee standing up. Why am I getting feedback here? Let me. Are you there? I think it might be for. No. All right. It's not Professor. Bick. Yeah. I, I just wanted to say you have very unusual meetings, David. Well, that what that wasn't what they were asking, but they just wouldn't trust me to say I can take care of it. Really, you're going to take care of it. How are you going to take care of it? Why don't we? Why don't you let me take care of it? And if I f up, uh, we'll talk about it. But why talk about my taking care of it? Just let go. Let's end this effing meeting. It's it. There are people whose entire job is to keep a meeting going for as long as possible. That is their job. And Zoom, I believe, I'd like to think it's wishful thinking. We're on to these people. It's just there right in front of you. Oh, my God, this person is in charge. He's a complete incompetent. And he, he doesn't want to be alone. So we're just going to keep this meeting going so he can be in charge and not be alone. I mean, I, I think I like to think we're going to end up with a different way of working, but I doubt it. Well, um, people are certainly questioning things. And uh, I I was uh, was one of the things that I read this morning um, or read yesterday was that you know they, there was a new york times article that was basically discovered that was describing how the costs of things that the hospitals kind of keep from people this is huge discrepancy in the cost say of a colonoscopy or any type of you know routine procedure and that what legislation was passed last year that required hospitals to do that and they've been very reluctant to comply um this came up when I uh, the price of the I colonoscopy. Was, uh, well, should, they were using colonoscopies as a. They should be example. cheaper, and we shouldn't be paying up the ass for one of those things. <laughs> Sorry, so I apologize. That is Some of just, us should be charging. And I and I I had the joke, and I circled back, and I just yeah. wedged it in clumsily. I apologize. You're still at work. You're you're still at that meeting. You know wherever yeah. it was. But um, anyway, the other uh, I was watching Crystal Balls. Uh, she's got a new uh, with Sagar. They have they're off of the hill rising and they've got their own YouTube program. But she did a very interesting 
uh, report. She was going through a Washington Post report, which is great because I don't want to pay the Washington Post. They've got these articles behind paywalls. But they were talking about how how much money went to legions of consultants in all the different states in the rollout of COVID. And in many cases, like like I think she was discovered, uh, she was talking about a governor of a southern state literally spent millions of dollars on a PR firm to sort of explain to people that they were actually doing a great job when they were doing a lousy one. Mm-hmm. I remember wow. I mean, they didn't mention it, but I remember in the state of Illinois, part of the problem with the rollout, instead of just having the uh, it, it be done by the uh, the Department of Public Health, with the help of the National Guard, which eventually happened, they were rolling it out at first through Walgreens and CV and CVS, which meant that they were uh, not only given these these uh, corporations tons of money, it was introducing another layer of complication and bureaucracy into people. So there was all these problems with trying to sign up for a vaccine it eventually worked its way out but it was just a lot of layers of of hassle and delay and a bunch of money going into corporations didn't need them and it was just but it was very interesting that you know we're now seeing in a crisis just how horrible our quote-unquote healthcare system is and how you know this I think our friend Alan Minsky, who may be coming on, mm-hmm. said that, hey, you know, some of these some of these items, we we might have success with with Bernie Sanders reconciliation bill because of this, that COVID hasn't gone away yet. And people are still dealing with it and people are still still dealing with the fallout medically, not just for the COVID itself, but the fact that suddenly, you know, hospital bids are taken up and things aren't available and. And by the way, the government can cover the cost of COVID. Uh, why is it just to cover COVID and not just to cover cancer? I mean, that's another disaster. People didn't choose to get cancer. Often it was environmental or whatever. And, you know, so um, anyway, I thought it was a, I thought it was a very good go. People, I would encourage people to go listen to Crystal Ball's whole report on it. She did a very excellent job. And exactly exposing exactly this nature of our for-profit system at every level. People, it's not just even the insurance companies. It's at every level. There are people who have to make profit, and it is not it, it is not making things more efficient. Right now, is this okay. so? Th- this is basically uh, a student loan debt issue in my mind in, in what sense i think you have a a professional class that racks up massive amounts of debt mm-hmm. and then they get they take and create jobs that are totally unnecessary to pay off the debt and and they can't and there's there's this thing of self-respect that the professional class has that if I have a briefcase and I'm working in an office park, this is a respectable job as opposed, yeah. right? 
I'm not part of the working class. I've got a degree. I've got you know, a degree. Yes. I've got a degree. I've got a desk. Mm-hmm. I, I'm either in an open office or I have my own office, maybe a secretary or I share a secretary. And it has the patina of respectability. But then when you think about what you're actually doing, it's pretty disgusting. And it's be, partly because of student loan debt. Because people can't go off and study what they want and learn what they want uh, because it ain't free. And it you just create uh, soulless automatons forced to do jobs that I that they know are not just hurting themselves, but society at large. It's almost as though well, somebody planned this. We have kind of perverted education. So it's no longer, you know, like a gateway of opportunity. It's a barrier. And my, my father did not go to college, but my father ended up going to law school. He did take a couple night courses in drafting when he was working at Burroughs, but there were jobs available that could make people like my father who were ambitious and had motivation that they could become productive members of society. Right. And you my father, my father didn't go. My father was a doctor. He didn't go to medical school or college. And until he got arrested, we lived very nicely. My father went to law school. But my but the point is, is that, you know, um, and being a, a father and a householder and, you know, much more mature. When you're 28 years old, that's a world of difference than being 18. Right. And he had real world experience. And, you know, there were like places like Detroit College of Law, where if you tested and you got in, there was a four year program for people who worked and a three year program for people who were full time. And uh, the other side of that is that um, people used to get hired because they had degrees in English back when it meant something. That meant you were somebody who was articulate, that could think critically, that could read and write, you know, it's particularly write. And people would get hired for all kinds of jobs because that was seen as, you know, as, as a real education. When you've commodified education like we've had, not only have you uh, sort of cubbyholed and, and, and siloed our, our educational experience, I mean, you've, you've put up barriers to people really being productive, and you've devalued things that actually were meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you got a if you had a bachelor's in English, if you could write like that, you were a person of dis- you you were a person who had discipline and critical thinking faculties. Right now, people have devalued all that kind of stuff. Just being cogent in in the uh, in in hit in history and philosophy and literature, you understood something that there were things about the world you understood. There were modes of thinking that were not alien to you because you had read, you know, that's, uh, and all of that is just kind of being commodified away. Steve, we we have to wrap it up. Professor Harvey JK is here and uh, we lost him last week. Steve Jobs, I don't think Steve Jobs graduated from Reed College, but when he was in college, he be, he learned about fonts. 
F-O-N-T-S, you know, who is interested in fonts? He became obsessed with fonts. And he later said it was his obsession with fonts that trained his brain to pay attention to Ivy, the designer, and the, the, the beautiful sleekness of Apple. I have many problems with Steve Jobs, but he did have a, an aesthetic. And yeah, the old printers, you know, that was kind of the old printer type of uh, yeah. you know, tradition. Did I ever tell you, David, I, I met the designer of the iPad and it was not Steve Jobs. It was the production designer on Star Trek The Next Generation. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. 1988, the first. Newton? Oh, that's right. They had those when that came out. Newton. They had those iPad-y looking things on Star Trek The Next Generation. And the name of it was a pad, P-A-D-D. So he added the I and took away one of the Ds. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'll show you the pictures of it. I, oh, but he's not recognized as the official. Oh, no. No, he's not. He right. said, I, I talked to him in person. And I said, why don't you sue Apple for <laughs> stealing well, your design? Well, Kodak has to sue Kodak. What is it? Park? They stole the GUI from Kodak, right? The whole interface. Somebody in the, uh, and somebody in the, in the uh, chat said it was 2001. But I remember watching Fahrenheit 451 recently from the 19 from 1966 kind of a quirky movie and they had things that were amazingly like flat screen televisions and ipads it, it's kind of freaky to watch it because it has an amazingly uh you know contemporary feel right we have to wrap it up professor okay. marianne cummings thank you so much follow her i'll go back to reading about what the queen said about megan Great stuff. Let's do a segment where we just go through the the scandal sheets. Razor to. Girl on Twitter, Professor Jonathan Bick. Do you have a Twitter account? I don't. Good. I'm trying to retain my sanity. I know. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you all, especially this time of year. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, and it's that time. Harvey J.K. He's got a lot I gotta to play the whole song, sorry. About Thomas Paine and FDR. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Joining us is the author of FDR on Democracy, Professor Harvey J.K. And the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, Mr. Alan Minsky. 
<laughs> hey, you know, I know my audience is tired of Thomas Paine. It's all we talk about on this show with <laughs> Professor Harvey J.K. I kid. Uh, we never. You know what? Can I just tell everybody that uh, I, I really think your Monday night is is monologue an appropriate uh, title for what I commended? Yes, thank you. For that yeah. meant I, I thought I thought you, I thought that was really I, I listened. I, I was really wow. very impressed. Really impressed. Wow. I also heard you this week. I caught an episode which I often do of old school. Oh, you watch that? Well, first of all, thank yeah, I, you. Coming from you, that means uh, when when you, uh, I, I I had to go buy a new phone because I nailed when I got your message. I nailed my phone to the wall so I could just see that. Bump. <laughs> That's nice. Thank you. Yeah, but and I I I, really, I did as I said. So I listened. I listened as on the, as a podcast to the Young Turks, the old old school you know segment. Right. I didn't. Uh, I didn't watch that one yet. I, mean, I probably won't watch it. I just enjoyed listening to it. So, um, could you uh, just to um, for those of us who missed David's uh, speech um, peroration on uh, Monday, what did David talk about that you're referring to, Harvey? Well, he just covered a whole a whole array of things off of the political list, and I, I just thought they and they went smoothly from one to the other. I, Thank beyond you. Beyond that, it's you know. Thank you so much. That from you that. That is like, uh, wow, wow. Yeah, uh, and you know, I, I one of the things I kept thinking as I was listening to it is that people have to, they do have to kind of know you a bit to appreciate it. They don't get um, sarcasm. They don't. I, yeah, they, they might not catch the sarcasm. It's a problem. It is. In a fact, I'm going to make an observation about the Young Turks thing that, well, first of all, how old is... Uh, What's his name? Thompson. What's his name? The. Uh, I don't know. Not, I don't uh, know. He's about my age, let's say. Not Jake. Oh, he is. Yeah. OK. He's he's older than the than Jake and uh, right. Ben Mankiewicz then maybe. Right. Yeah, I, I would assume so. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I listened to it was It was interesting. I was I had a feeling that, that they sometimes didn't get you. This is what I that, that I think he was helping me. Because I was yeah. I was telling jokes, like I yeah. was coming up with jokes in the conversation, and I think it's a different audience now. They're not used to. Like I, I said something like, "I'm optimistic." I came up with a joke. Yes, go ahead. I can bet I remember exactly where you go. I said, "I'm optimistic about COVID. I think the lungs are half empty." Now. I came up, yeah. with, I, I just, it, I blurted it out. And I remember thinking, again, uh, I made an, oh, that's a good joke. Like, as I said it, I said, that's a good joke. And he protected me because, it, first of all, it's dark. People are dying from COVID. But he felt yes, obligated right. to explain to the audience that that's a joke. And it's like the class is half. That happened a number of times. And right. I had this feeling, first I thought to myself, God, you know, I know David lives in California, but and I know that Jake is from New Jersey and blah, blah, right. blah. But it's as if they've been out there in, on the West Coast all these years and you're still New York. OK, that was one. That but, was but one. There, there's been a I, change. I, I like Jake. We're, yeah. you know, we're friends and all yeah. that. But I did feel there was a 
a bit of a disjuncture. There. He was trying to help me. Yeah, I no, think, I, I appreciated that. He yeah, was, I think that you know. it, I think jokes. It's a generational thing. I think younger people are might not be used to what they call dad jokes. You know, tw twisting words oh, yeah. around. Yeah, right. And but there are young joke writers who are amazing. But jokes are dangerous. Jokes are dangerous. Yeah. And for many reasons. And then sarcasm, because you don't know in order to be funny now. In the mainstream, you have to be coming. We need to know whose side you're on. And if I don't know whose side you're on, I'm not going to give you the laugh. I need to know. Are you on the side of the angels or are you on the side of Satan? And if I don't know whose side you're on, then there's nothing you say that can possibly be funny. Yeah. Oh, the two things I would say. First of all, the um, one of the reasons I listen to, to old school, and I usually listen, and I'll be honest, I usually listen. If I wake up at two in the morning and they've got a new, that's when I would turn them on and plug mm -hmm. into, you know, into my ear, the, the thing, because it's a very safe show. Okay. And in fact, you're probably more political than they ever, ever get on that show. Oh, really? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think. What are they taught? Then they talk. Turks is political, but not that show. Oh, that I show see. is as Monday. That show depends on sort of, you know, everything from jokes about ketchup to. Uh, right. You know, ketchup versus salsa kind of stuff. And that's, that's, it's that kind of thing. So. You know, the other thing I was going to say, wait, there was another one. Um, shit, I, I forgot. There was another yeah. thing that I didn't want to forget to mention. Uh, well, the thing is, uh, we were saying earlier about A Modest Proposal by Jonathan Swift. Today, how many people would read that and think he really wants to eat Irish babies? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I think... I think people don't know what sarcasm and satire and I, they do know. Of course they know. Of course they know. But but it, but the Young Turks are not they're they're it's, they're not into satire. Yeah, although they Ben Glebe did something really funny that was satire, where he was he went into a did you see that, Alan? No, I'm thinking of other things than just fantasies of. Young Turk satires just popped into my head, so go ahead. Ben Glebe did something let's funny. Safely move on. <laughs> okay. Let, let, anyway, let's. Uh, enough about me. Well, I have a good segue for us good. as long as we're, we were there. So the segue is this: on Monday night, or at least within within the last several days, um, I listened to the actual one hour Young Turks as a podcast at night. So that was Anna Kasparian and Jenk, and they were just haranguing Pelosi for um, seeming to 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 um, to bow to the House corporate Dems. Godheimer. OK, got. Yeah, they call it Godheimer. Right. But then I read I read David Dane the next day and he's been far more critical of Pelosi than than anyone I know who's writing serious, who, who is inside and writing seriously about what's going on in Congress. And his take was not, he was critical, but he he, he wasn't, 
he didn't see the events in the same way at all that that they did. And um, because he said that the promise was vaguer than they than the House people may appreciate that she can it's just she he wasn't worried yet. He was worried overall, but he wasn't wasn't worried yet. It struck me. And maybe I misrepresented. Well, the spin that I've heard is kind of confusing because Pelosi supposedly put her stiletto on the neck of Gottheimer and the problem solvers and they cave. That's what I heard. And well, they, that's what I mean by the, the, the you know, the, the segue was <laughs> the Young Turks was one story. And I, I actually was getting really worried because I hadn't caught the news of the day. Right. And then I read David Day and then in fact, this was David Dane's piece. If anyone right. goes online, it's part of his ongoing series on infrastructure. Right. And, and everybody he's, he's should hostile read it. to Gottheimer and he's he's not completely confident anything will necessarily take place. But he wasn't he, he didn't place Pelosi in the same kind of picture frame, you know, he didn't frame her in the same way that they did. They were they just they had so written her off, it was like it was all over. And that's not at all his position. And I, I actually do trust Dane on this stuff more than right. anyone right now. Alan Minsky. You're, you're, well, Grim, Ryan Grimo, who does uh, who now seems to be established uh, hosting Rising, which was the Crystal Ball Cider yeah. show. Um, and he's a good reporter, uh, Capitol Hill reporter with The Intercept. He um, <laughs> it was funny to see him uh, just to sort of cast uh, Pelosi so heroically for progressives. And then um, I don't know if you all saw the, the ju- and I, I I'm not being just sharply critical here of the justice Democrats sunrise and um, working families party. But did people see their little ad spot about, uh, you know, slamming the, the noxious nine, the Congress people, the moderates, the Gotthammer group. No. Um, yeah, but if you see it, the praise for Joe Biden is it's as if it's as if the justice Democrats were, you know, right in line with the Biden campaign all the time. Biden is our hero. Uh, there he is, you know, eating an ice cream cone, uh, putting on his shades, driving his convertible. They just lift up Joe Biden's agenda. And That's great. That's good to see, me. right? That's a sign um, of maturation. Well, the way I look at it is just a good thing because the, it was a good, it was a smart ad because the framing is going to hold for the next five weeks. And so to elevate how rotten these Democrats are, well, you know, they're in swing districts, but a few of them really aren't. Um, Godheimer's in Bergen County. I grew up in Bergen County. Oh, no, well, Godheimer, that's, yeah, that's tough. That's a tough, that's, I I shouldn't say this because I'm from Bergen County, but those are some nasty-ass Democrats. Yeah, but you look at someone like Jared Golden up in Maine, and it is a swing district, of course, but at the same time, um, and you look how terrible the moderate Democrat did in the Senate race. Um, Gideon versus the head of the more progressive Betsy Sweet. I don't think there's really anything to worry about sicking a, uh, if he really, I, I think Golden was probably a weak link for the Godhammer group. I'm hoping he was, because I didn't expect him to be among these 10. I viewed it pos- probably as just him trying to be politically expedient. Um, but if he sticks with this and speaks out and tries to sink all this stuff, then yeah, primary him. For, what's, what's his value if he's one of those people? Right. So of course, primary him and, uh, and I do think a progressive could do just as well. And a few of the other districts you know, includes Henry Cuellar, who almost got beat by Justice Cisneros. And I think everybody's confident Cisneros would win if she does take that uh, primary. 
the Texas districts are going to be redistricted, but we're pretty sure that it's going to be roughly similar to what it was last time there. Um, and so, uh, you know, some of these guys can, you know, they're, they're relatively safe seats, but on balance, they're, they're swing districts. But still, I mean, if they're going to sink this whole agenda. Well, what is the agenda? Let's discuss what agenda is huge, David. But have huge. they even written the bill yet or the committees are writing them now? You know, not, almost nothing in here. There are a few things that are exactly as we'd want them. There's almost nothing that is exactly as, you know, the progressive left would want them to be. But it is $3.5 trillion, not of emergency spending, but of distinctly programs that are pointed to problems in the society and they're using fiscal spending and fiscal policy to address them. This has not been done by the U.S. Congress since before Ronald Reagan was president. Explain the difference between, first of all, explain what fiscal policy is versus monetary policy. Well, forget monetary policy. But explain to my listeners, it's a term that's bandied about. We're seeing fiscal spending for the the first time. Well, not really, but it either happens or it doesn't. And it hasn't been happening. We had a stimulus package in 2009. But explain what fiscal, explain the term. You, you take the government budget and you say we're going to put $250 billion that are going to go towards uh, kids getting free school lunches. I mean, that's, that's a too high a price. That's what that. fiscal spending means. And monetary policy is the Fed solving our economic problems by adjusting oh, interest okay. rates, which yeah. is and that is how we've been living for 40 years. Congress isn't allowed to spend money. Yeah, but, but, but monetary policy uh, that just deals with inflation and can have an impact on you know, in the way that and printing money. And, and, and no, it doesn't. It doesn't. There are endemic problems in the society. They exist not just because of, you know, money allocated or not. There's sociological social structures involved in how they need to be addressed. The market does not address them. The only way to address them is not through some adjustment of monetary policy. It is through fiscal spending. Right. We have, profe- we, have, we have Professor Harvey J.K., who was, uh, is uh, a, a champion of democracy. He's come out of, after studying the Marxist professors and historians, <laughs> he, he realized that the solution to all our problems is democracy. And our economy was de-democratized by Reagan. That, that the, the economy it was, they gave the Fed, they turned our economy over to the Fed, even, even though it's really Congress. That was, that was Jimmy Carter, by the way. Okay. Look at the last couple of years of Jimmy Carter. That's where it right. began. He That's gave us Volcker. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't trust Congress to spend money, so... Paul Volcker came in and fought inflation, head of the Federal Reserve. So we've had no say in the trajectory of our economy. Go ahead, Alan. I just wanted to spell no, that. No, no, I, I think I, I think I said. I think Alan's that. point really is significant. I mean, that's the point, and I don't yeah. think you guys are on a different page. Or we're right. I was just trying to educate yeah. the audience. Yeah, right. I, think, I mean, it's the budget is going to address. Not simply hardcore infrastructure, even those called the infrastructure plans. This is this is a budget that really will have significant social policy and social change implications. And what 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 is it? Are we going to see health care workers considered part of the infrastructure? What what 
what are we are we going to see the pro act folded into it what are we going to see elements of the pro act they're trying to get in it's not the entire thing and I, i'm not entirely up to speed on what is the aspects of it that that are going to be included or attempted to be included and i think all, every aspect of it is still considered a vulnerable to the senate parliamentarian's objection but it's, it's a relatively small portion of it it's not the totality of the of the, the, pro the act. shame is that they haven't they haven't had the sit down with the parliamentarian until and it's a her it's a she i mean yeah and just said we don't want to hear from you right yeah that's what they should do um I mean, the, the, there's stuff in there also about immigration reform. It's not the totality of it, um, but it's a significant portion of what would have gone into the Democratic Party's uh, the immigration bill already passed the House. And um, the, the, that is the first item that the Gottheimers want out of the $3.5 trillion. Right. Which, so what, we still don't have a bill. They want out? The, the, the immigration reform components. Oh, really? Huh. Mm-hmm. We, we still don't have the bill yet. The committee chairs are writing it now. They've been given the That's beats. Correct. Now they write the screenplay. It's, uh, it's also the taxes question, right? That guy, that, that, they're probably worried about their big donors. I mean. Oh, they're worried across the board for the things they supposedly believe in. Or I don't know what they believe in, but they advocate for and um, yes, uh, they well, they want the whole thing smaller and that would address the taxes and also, um, you know, cutting out uh, some of the big ticket items that others of their donors don't like. Um, I mean, if they get through a really healthy amount of Medicare getting to negotiate drug prices, um, I mean, the level of defeat for the pharmaceutical industry um, is amazing considering the power of the lobby and, um, yeah, just... Uh, how difficult it would be to hand that level of defeat to such a powerful lobbying force on Capitol Hill will be amazing. Now, that could get instituted, but in a very small form, only five drugs a year may be eligible to be negotiated by Medicare. And that was one model of a bill that was produced earlier, maybe 10 drugs. We want to see all drugs, or at least many, many, many more per year become eligible, um, and the most significant ones to become eligible. The amount of money that'll take away from the pharmaceutical industry just from standard purchases and save the government so that they can take that money as part of the payment for this bill um, is significant. That's going to be a real battle over what the details of that particular piece is going to be. Let me ask you a Um, question, Alan Minsky. You're executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. If Steve Bannon... We're running Progressive Democrats of America. He would find a group of sick men and target them. <laughs> Sorry, let me silence. I got to silence myself right now. Oh, boy. This is what Steve okay. Bannon would do. He found the incels. And then he knew to target the incels. He, you know about that, right? Through, yeah, I, get, I, I read up on this kind of thing and I know about Bannon, sure. Okay. Why don't think of this member of the audience? What's an incel? Involuntarily celibate. It's a group of men who are involuntarily celibate. It started off with guys who read books on how to pick up women. And then it morphed into the incels. These are guys who believe that 
only a handful of me- uh, men get to sleep with the beautiful women and that they're in that, that most men are involuntarily unavailable to women. Women don't find them attractive. Women are looking for good looking or rich men. That's what incels believe. And they are a major force in our it, on the right. The, it, it's where QAnon uh, and uh, the right meet. And it's huge because they're sexually frustrated men who are easy to exploit. That's why you, you can send them off to war or you can get them to buy body acts spray. And I saw this on some nature programs. Yes. No, it's a real thing. And Bannon isolated it. Yeah, no, no. I, I'm, I'm Seriously, I mean, in the sense that, you know, certain bucks win or certain wolves yeah. win. And yeah. the other guys just generally. And they resort to, woods, to they, it's it's part of gaming, the Gamergate phenomenon. It's prevalent. It, it bleeds into misogyny, hatred for women. Uh, it's it's. They tap the the three percenters, the Proud Boys, and the Boogaloo Boys tap into this. It's it's the same way the Madrasas tapped into sexual frustration to train uh, men to fly into the World Trade Center. It's a serious problem. And Steve Bannon, to his credit, found them and knew how to advertise to them. You don't actually mean to his credit, right? Well, if you're going to, well, yes, because, because, well, it's finding a block, an identifiable block and catering to them. And then you can if target them and then get them to vote a certain way. For example, if I were running a left wing political group, I would target anti-vaxxers. I would find out who are the anti-vaxxers in America and hit them with anti-drug ads all day, every day. Find out who's an anti-vaxxer on Facebook and target them with ads about how Pfizer is drug uh, price fixing and how we can't negotiate because the next step, there are two ways to deal with anti-vaxxers, dismiss them or use their skepticism to go after Medicare not being able to negotiate with the drug companies. Uh, so, uh, yeah. OK, I see what you're saying. But so I, you didn't mean credit as in something you admire. Well, I kind of well, do. I do. Right, I do. Actually, I do. No, no, you do something you you you. Yeah, I know it. Right. That 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 you can take people who are confused, like an incel or an anti-vaxxer, yeah. and use that for something positive. Okay. Wait, incel is not incontinence. It's, no, that's me. <laughs> I'm incontinent. That's a whole other group. Yeah. We should only get the subset of incontinent. <laughs> so, what do you think, Alan? We we. we um, it's very antithetical to our organizing model. Yeah, that's why we always don't. That's why we don't have Medicare for all. That's why we lose, right? Okay. No, I'm saying uh, we could have I'll, Medicare I'll, I'll for all. I'll take that on council. Don't you think? Don't you think tactically going after anti-vaxxers uh, to uh, 
to, to destroy the stranglehold that the pharmaceutical industry has over us? Wouldn't that be, aren't they ripe? Aren't anti-vaxxers um, right? I'm not sure that, they, that they're that they different. That, at my understanding of the people I've known who are anti-vaxxers is, yes, there's overlap on this issue uh, with uh, hating the pharmaceutical companies and their price gouging and everything like that. So why course, aren't... They, they why, themselves are not vulnerable to the price gouging because they refuse to take any of the prices. So why don't you them. find out who all the anti-vaxxers are and target them? Well, again, maybe they're not that. They, I'm sure they loathe the pharmaceutical companies and they view them as, you know, I, I'm sure they view them negatively for different reasons than, than I do. But they themselves wouldn't actually. I think I just arrived at a bit of a counterpoint to what you're saying, which is that they wouldn't really care about, uh, it wouldn't be a focus to oppose them on the level of price gouging because, right, they would just would be refusing to take their product because it's, in their minds, conspiratorial poison from you know, the elites and their um, lab-coated scientist lackeys. Can I sidebar? I just yeah, whatever you sidebar. want. Just... Something came up today among my former students. One of my former students is on the village board of a small small town in uh, central Wisconsin, not far from Warsaw, um, which is probably the county seat of Marathon County. And um, he said that all the ICU beds... 50 ICU beds were occupied, okay, with COVID cases. And I said to him, does anyone know how many of those were people who are people who were vaccinated? And he said, yeah, I did call, I did call to find out. So there, there are 50 beds occupied, but not a single one has had even a single vaccination. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. And uh, I really, all day I've been trying to figure out just it just has gone on for so long. I'm just trying to figure out how people can be so oblivious to reality. Yeah. Well, you know, I saw I saw an interesting. I was impressed in interviews. I saw this guy from Missouri who's running for Senate. He's an Afghan veteran, and um, you know, maybe maybe you know. Oh, do you remember his name? Oh boy, um, if somebody can, if somebody is he a Democrat? Not, not doing a lobby, a Democrat. Yeah, I think um, I know what you're talking about. I, I, was, I just hope you remembered his working name. class guy from Jefferson City, Missouri, goes to um, uh, Yale and then goes to Afghanistan for in, in I think the Marines for ten or twelve years. No now. good. No yeah, good. Not many Yalies who go. No, not, doesn't have my like, vote. Not, not not my vote. Oh no, sounds, David. Sounds you like it sounds like Kerry. Not Yale. Not my vote. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Well, it does sound like Kerry at a certain point in Kerry's life, right? Yeah. But um, no, he's he's uh, he's his, his critique is all about the decay of the Midwest. However, he doesn't like J.D. Vance. Oh, oh, J.D. Vance, is, yeah. like J.D. Vance, who went to Yale. Again, this is just a person. I know that ninety nine point nine percent of uh, all Yaleys are utterly reprehensible. I know that firsthand, and, and present company included. Um, which is why I, I should, which is why I should get booed at the top of the oh, top of the tower. But and the, for um, the sake of the audience, I'm not the Ailey. Yeah, yeah, I'm the Ailey guys. And um, uh, Alan, but, uh, Alan, I shouldn't tell anybody this. You've heard of uh, Skull and Bones. Alan was a member. He got tapped by Skullcap and Bones. Uh-huh. That's how. That's where <laughs> Massad. That's where the best of Massad comes from. Mm-hmm. Skull um, I, knew, I knew some people in Skull and Bones had a little bit of a little bit of a 
creepy uh, sort of conspiracy theory kind oh, of. That's not uh, bad. I experienced with them once. Yeah. Skull cap and bones from Assad. You have to yeah, know. Both Carrie, both Carrie and Bush were from Skull and Bones and from Yale. I myself was not in Skull and Bones. By the way, um, Professor K, this, this, this is lying. the problem I'm lying. up against. You have to know what Skull and Bones is. You have to know that they're a feeder for the CIA. You have well, to not know. Anymore. They were, they right. were back in the 50s. And you, and you have to now, know. Now, now least, the thing about this guy in Missouri is there's a point on why they don't go to the CIA because the people who go to Yale who are social elites now generally don't go into the Marines for 12 year right. tours in Afghanistan and they right. don't go can, to the CIA. Can you let anymore. me explain why I'm a failure to Professor Harvey JK? Okay. Excuse me for one second. I can just chart why I'm never going to make it. In order to get the joke that Alan got tapped by the Mossad because he was a member of Skullcap and Bones, okay? You have to know, A, Skull and Bones, B, that it's in Yale, C, that it's the feeder frat for the CIA, and D, that Mossad is the Israeli CIA, and E, that Alan is Jewish. Those are five things that you have to know for that to be funny. I'm guessing most of the people who are um, certainly right now in this immediate audience of the people who come onto this Zoom and fill up the chat room on the Zoom, probably a lot of the people who are live, watching us live on YouTube and will watch us later, but certainly the group here in the chat, we're all adults as of 2004. Skull and Bones got a lot of press because of Bush and Kerry both being members, not just Yaleys, but both being Skull and Bones members in 2004. Uh, which was an incredible, you know, consolidation of American political power around, you know, one small building on Yale campus, right? Spooky building. Oh, and F, you have to know what a skull cap is. There's that. Yeah, they're, they're, um, what's F? That's what the Pope wears. That's right. But you have to know that it's a, right. So A, B, C, D, E, F. You have to know six things in order to find that joke funny. Six things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. Yeah. This and is why I've like, never made halfway it. to successful comedy is to have stuff that only a, a rarefied elite will get the reference for. Yeah. Can, so let's hear more about this, the Senate candidate in Missouri. Yeah, well, he just seems great. And but the thing is, he went the, I brought up the fact that he went from the fact that he went from Yale to the Middle East for 10, 12 years. That's uncommon. That's a working class kid at Yale. You know, Yaleys do not. That's a resume. That's a resume builder. Yeah, when you're when you come from a working class background, but he uh, he seems to have uh, his head on straight and was speaking truth about what happened in Afghanistan and about what happened to Jefferson City, Missouri, and how depressed Middle America is. That sounds like seems J.D. Like Vance. J.D., you know, you mean Shulton? No, J.D. Okay. Vance, hillbilly elegy, the asshole from Yale. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, J.D. Shulton's a congressional candidate, the baseball player who went after Steve King. Right. Right. And um, but um, I don't know. This guy doesn't it doesn't say he supports Medicare for all. I'd be surprised if he doesn't. But on, on his website, there's a bunch of other stuff that would be even further left than that. That is on the website for his candidacy. But it doesn't say Medicare for all under health policy. The reason I brought him up, though, is his point was this. You were asking about the vaccines and Harvey with the 50 people in the in the beds. Right. And OK. We just had a war in Afghanistan. In December 2019, the Afghanistan papers were published. 
it basically said every single damn thing you heard about about Afghanistan was a lie, right? Straight through. If that is, you know, the largest project of the federal government, at least during the Bush and Cheney years, is completely operating on bullshit, you know, this is going to produce a lot of distrust on the information that's coming out from elites. And, you know, you, 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 know, you can't really just say these guys are just, you know, idiot dunderheads. And he talks about this, the, the contempt that, you know, people have for middle Americans. Well, you know, they've been lied to a lot by a lot of people and by a lot of people who aren't impacted by those lies as directly as they are when it comes to things like whose kids go to Afghanistan, et cetera. Ron DeSantis, Harvard, Yale. Glorious. Yes, is, we, we went to school with some reprehensible people. It's so. really bad. I mean, it is the problem. Brett Kavanaugh was in my class. Yeah, I mean, it's the problem. It's not like it, it, people think I'm joking. It is the problem. These okay. elite schools, they are the cancer in our culture. They give cover to, they make it look like we're a meritocracy so that Brett Kavanaugh, who never had a work a day in his life, is convinced that he deserved his spot in Yale. You know, um, I saw some sociology just video somewhere I was watching. I don't know what it was, something I turned on on YouTube. And maybe it was something off of like Zero Books or one of those, uh, you know, highly analytical um, uh, videos that they make there. And they said that in the the upper middle class uh, household, the hegemonic cultural uh, group within the United, domestic United States really sees itself as a hegemonic cultural group. The most important event in life now is what college you get into. That's the, that becomes the focal point of the family when you have kids. And that's the thing. So it's you sick. get into these places and that's, that's the, you know, this is paradise. You're, you're criticizing paradise, David. We all should just. But look how they turn, but look what them. and how they turn out. They turn out to be basically self-interested people who are frightened about anything that they might say or do that could undermine their career path and, and their position within the uh, social elite. And, they, and are, dismi- and are dismissive of everything they don't know. I'm telling you, except for a few exceptions, the dumbest people graduate with a couple of exceptions. The dumbest people come out of these elite schools because you can't get into these elite schools unless you're stupid. It's why General Milley wears all his medals when 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 it's all going to shit in Afghanistan. General Milley goes out and wears all his medals. So people go, oh, he must know what he's talking about. His chest is filled with all those medals. If you were truly brilliant, you wouldn't need to go to Harvard, Yale or Princeton. You'd go to a a, a college that's affordable and isn't completely and utterly a tool of the corporate elite. Here's the problem. I started this and I'm going to push back against it because these are, these are complex institutions. And I think the component of what's happened since the sixties, since the public universities started getting underfunded. Um, and so there became a greater divide between the handful of super elite schools and the rest and it became this 
kids are just programmed to try to get into these schools. So it's that particular aspect of these institutions, and it's tied in with the sort of neoliberal structuring of them that completely undermines them. Having said that, there's still an element of these institutions in which um, there's marvelous things about them, you know, and um, and there is a archaic labor structure that really, I suppose, Harvey goes back to like pre-capitalist artisanal labor structures where, you know, you get tenure, the, the, the previous generation passes on the trade to the people who are trying to come up. And and there is, you know, there's a lot that is done inside the American university system. And then, well, I'm talking about Harvard, Yale, Princeton. I'm talking about the elite colleges. Oh, who who produce they pro, they only produce opportunistic infections who are interested in building their they only produce you're a rare exception opportunistic infections who are building their resume and their bank account you never hear of a Harvard lad going into the community and organizing unless it's going to lead to his presidency, unless it's just a stepping stone. You never hear of a successful Harvard Law School graduate like Obama who becomes president and says, you know what? I'm going to keep working for the people. I'm going back to Chicago. He hot-footed it to Martha's Vineyard. That's what those schools produce. And then they wonder why nobody trusts them. Even I'm going to play you uh, Carey, John Carey. And you tell me what this is his finest moment. This is John Kerry testifying. In, the, the, the current president, the current president is the first president we've had since, well, since Reagan. But it's actually, you know, Kamala Harris, of course, goes to an elite law school, but it isn't. I agree uh, with you. Ivy League school. I agree so with you. Yeah, it's um, it's the first administration that doesn't have an Ivy League year in it in a long, long time. I agree with you. And that wasn't the case in the post-war period. You had Harry Truman. Harry Truman wasn't an Ivy Leaguer. Right. 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 You had none. Nor was nor was Johnson. Johnson was not a liar. But ever since the Reagan administration, it's been packed with uh, George W. George H. W. Bush is the first, and then you get nothing but Ivy Leaguers during the neoliberal era. Here's John Kerry, and this is why he got swift boated. This is John Kerry's finest moment, coming back mm-hmm. from Vietnam, and wearing his uniform, and testifying before the Senate in 1971 against the Vietnam War. Tell me what the problem is. Tell me what the problem is and why he got swift boated and why people don't trust people like John Kerry. We are asking Americans to think about that. Because how do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? Nobody's going to trust a phony Brahmin who manufactured a Kennedy accent. He was an opportunist. He went, he got swift boated because he said, how do you ask a man? He didn't, am I losing it here? Okay, I can't play. Here. Hang on. Well, we're here. Uh, that's why he got swift boated and that's why people didn't trust him because he was viewed as an opportunist. 
with his phony Brahmin, his phony Boston Brahmin. I, I, I don't think I, I'm I don't I'm not denying that possibility. I think you're also forgetting that, you know, the, the Winter Sold that, that was the Winter Soldiers movement. Right. Okay. And which by the way is a Thomas Paine right. reference. Right. It's a flip on Summer Soldier and Sunshine Patriot. Right. And these are the same guys who took their medals and, you know, threw them what, on the steps of the Capitol. I don't remember where it was exactly. But I, I don't think that was the case. I, I don't think I, I don't see that moment as opportunistic. I'm sorry. Yeah, my understanding of with a fake Boston, with a fake. He was doing PT 109. No, but I think I think David, what he was he was very active at that time, and he did take a leadership role. In fact, there's actually a Doomsbury comic strip that is contemporary, written by a graduate of Yale. Written by a graduate of Yale. But they're making fun of Kerry because Kerry is the guy on campus who always puts himself into leadership, like he and he's a big self promoter. So that fits with what you're saying. However, I think the reason they they swift quoted, and my understanding is they went after his strongest point, and and they had to they had to they had to dismantle his strength which was that and you're probably right in that they saw that the contemporary current oh, the guy's name was O'Neill Carey was going to come across as a phony fake elitist right that guy O'Neill who swift boated him I believe was on the Dick Cavett show with Carey and Carey when they both you know when they got back from Vietnam Carey uh, was came across as self-serving. I voted for him. I voted for him, but uh, feigned a a Boston Brahmin Kennedy accent, married into the Heinz fortune, and has the family has a private jet. He's now our climate czar, and he's asking us to give him credit for taking commercial airlines because now he's the climate czar. See, I'm flying commercial now. My, the family private jet, which was flown, I think, 14 times this year by his friends. He, he's insisting on flying commercial because of the damage that aviation does to the planet. Avi- uh, Ian Faluna said aviation, if it were a nation, would be the seventh largest contributor to greenhouse gases. Yeah. These it's guys are full of shit. They're full of shit. John Kerry is full of shit. He just yeah, is. They also, they, also, they also did a lot to knock out high-speed rail as a proposal. It's going to be funded through the reconciliation uh, bills. I really lost out with the bipartisan bill. And, of course, that's the thing. That's the one thing that would really cut into our airline's uh, carbon footprint. And the major would probably be the best thing to start to develop fully um, as um, – uh, to lower our transportation um, carbon footprint, which is still the largest uh, largest single sector in the domestic United States. So um, John Kerry's um, nomination for president in 2004 was what uh, sparked the founding of PDA. So, Progressive Democrats we, of America. We were founded in reaction to him being uh, the John Kerry, famously an anti-war activist. Remember, he was running as a pro-war candidate. I'll manage it better. That was his line. I'll manage it better. And we took our eye off the ball. It's Afghanistan. They're the ones who attacked us on 9-11. That is what Obama and Kerry said. Did, did Afghanistan attack us on 
think it was Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. But it's set a law in America that the people of Afghanistan attacked us on 9-11. There were some people... It wasn't. Right. There were people living in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda. They were also living in Pakistan, and they were funded by the Saudi Arabians. Well, probably just a part of the Wahhabi wealth in Saudi Arabia and possibly part of the royal family, too, but not the government directly, but just about. And the government really put in motion the whole project of the madrasas on the western part of Pakistan that built the Taliban and, uh, of course, funded Osama bin Laden to be part of the um, effort to knock out the Soviet Union in Afghanistan with the Reagan administration. Well, Professor K, you live in Wisconsin and Kyle Rittenhouse is on trial for shooting two uh, BLM, murdering two BLM protesters. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's attorney, uh, I think, is hooked up to a ventilator. Uh, He's got the the COVID. And I understand that despite, this is my understanding, they... They raised more than a million dollars for his legal fees. This guy, Pierce, Kyle Rittenhouse is relying on a public defender. Where's the money that they all donated? Let me ask you about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. This is uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. The just, day- Okay, just, just know that I live in a different part of the state. And I don't know what's going on in Kenosha down there. Right. He also he also was from Illinois, I thought, Northern Illinois. Yeah. yeah, he's from Northern Illinois. He came over to Wisconsin. This is how he was walking around the BLM protests before he shot uh, shot three people, killed two. This is the police telling Kyle Rittenhouse holding what an AR-15, some assault weapon. They're telling him to walk away, and he's he's just talking to the police. Isn't that amazing? Imagine if a BLM protester. Right, exactly, right. Can you imagine? It does does beg the incel question, too, which, of course, um, the mass shootings in incel culture, of course, is considered to be connected. With or the, thought of as being connected, but likely connected. Well, I always like to show Professor Harvey J.K. Uh, the decay of our culture, because I'm particularly I'm, if it's in Wisconsin, Harvey. This this is uh, this is Rudy Giuliani. Did you see this? This is Rudy Giuliani at a restaurant at JFK Airport shaving. Out in the open. Did you see that video? Um, And that time he was dressed as a man, by the way. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's right. I don't know if anybody anybody else will get that here. Yeah, he dressed as uh, Marilyn Monroe, I believe. Yeah. But next to Trump. Uh, All right. Last thing. I got two things I want to show Professor K. There's one that is just (laughs) amazing. But let me find it. Hang on. Here we go. This is Donald. I played it earlier. This is the third time I'm playing it on the show. This is Donald Trump's uh, one of his spokesmen. 
who now has a show on Newsmax. Cortez is name. Is the mass migration of Afghan men to America really a good idea? Good for your wife, your daughter? The left will call us racist for opposing any amount of migration at all so oh in open borders. But we have to be brave enough to put up with their ridiculous aspersions and brave enough to discuss cultural differences that matter. Will these Afghans share our values? Will they try to assimilate into the American way of life? It's not likely. Have you ever? You know what? Segregation today. I draw a line on the sand and say segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. I mean, it really is. We have heard this stuff before. The Dixiecrats, Wallace. So. But. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's getting hopeless, isn't it? It's uh, never and, been this bad. So they're going to they're going to win the mid they're going to win the midterms, folks. By really, um, all right. Last clip, and then we'll wrap it up. I love I just love watching Professor. I'd like to just do a whole show forcing <laughs> Professor Harvey J.K. to watch. Turn what, me into an incel. That's what you'll do. To, no, just to have to discover what this is. Uh, this is uh, a, an intellectual explaining why we needed to go to uh, Iraq. Is, that, is this a Harvard or Yale or Princeton uh, intellectual? I, I actually, <laughs> it's, it's a New York Times intellectual. Back in 2003, columnist Thomas Friedman. <laughs> one this of our friends, right? One of our friends. Brilliant man travels all over the world uh, <laughs> and uh, makes a lot of money delivering speeches. And he this is right when the war started. Some of us were against the war, but Thomas Friedman wrote for The New York Times. He explained he put it into simple terms for intellectuals to understand why. In the and what they need. This is why we needed to go into Iraq. Thomas Friedman, 2000. Is it Iraq or Afghanistan? Iraq. Iraq. And what they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house from Basra to Baghdad um, and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think, you know, we care uh, about our open society. You think this bubble fantasy, we're just going to let it grow. Well, suck on this. Okay, That, Charlie, was what this war was about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia. It was part of that bubble. Could have hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. That's the real truth. Wow, what a man. I can't help but observe that he probably just gave Charlie Rose one of his lines. <laughs> there we go, right? Jesus Christ. Suck on this. <laughs> That's true. Got to get more serious about it. Well, I'm not exactly sure what his point was, okay? It was yeah, we why are we in Iraq because we could Suck okay. on this. I mean, it makes you feel good to be a man, doesn't it? Suck on the, that swagger. Suck on this. That was the lead anyway, up to. Where did Thomas Friedman go to college? 
I don't think he went to an Ivy League school, quite frankly. I think so. I think like I think he went to a good school in the Midwest. But I yeah. don't think I, I'm going to say uh, it's not it's not one of the Washington elite. University in St. Louis. I'm guessing. If, oh, my if God. You think it's Midwest. That'll be my guess. Right. He's it. not He's a well, his yeah. daughter did. I can tell you that because his daughter graduated undergraduate. And my daughter graduated from architecture school there. He was. I heard him. I didn't probably somewhere. Maybe University oh, of Minnesota. So I'm going to say Minnesota. University of Minnesota. Really? You see, someone saying Brandeis in the chat. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say University of Minnesota. Did, did they Google it or? Uh, oh, yeah. it, or well, you can't can, ask Ann Lee. It's cheating. Oh. I, he went to Brandeis, yes. Yeah. And then he went to Oxford. Like I said, he didn't go to the elite. <laughs> All right, there you go. Brandeis. But you're right, he was born in, in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. And he went to Oxford. Wow. And there's no accountability for, for that statement. Like, that that's a fireable offense, Alan Minsky, isn't it? I despise Thomas Friedman. Yeah, <laughs> more than I mean, more than David Brooks. Well, David Brooks stayed at your house. Yeah, David Brooks stayed at our house. That's true. David Brooks I did think me I, a I favor. Think I have more, so I, I, have, yeah. I have more contempt for Friedman than Brooks. Yeah, I think in some ways, in some ways, I think that's true for me too. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote a book. What was that book he did? The Earth is flat. The earth is flat and so is my brain. You no, know, it's like he, he was calling for, you know what it is? That book was like the literary version of, I never tell you what I, I was, this was like 19, was it 2000 ready? Anyway, at some point along the way, I was flying back from Boston or New York to Green Bay. And it must've been sometime in the eighties or the nineties. And a young woman sat down next to me and, and I, she was obviously sort of college age or, about to graduate and i said uh where are you going da, da, da. and and she was a student not at yale but at wesleyan okay and i said to her what do you want to do when you graduate this this was where i knew i this is i knew that this was the end of decency <laughs> okay when she said i want to be a consultant yes okay. yes i knew i knew it was all. It was fucking all over. That's fantastic. <laughs> when this bright, attractive young woman, graduating from a good school with a good degree, tells me she wants to become a consultant. That's like my kids. I used to tell my kids to tell people they want to grow up and be an executive producer, which is like <laughs> I used to tell them. If you, if I had to do it all over again, I'd be an executive producer. <laughs> you make the most money and you do the least amount of work. Yeah, <laughs> the only great. hope is if consultants would try to organize a union, then they could redeem themselves. In my, uh, <laughs> consultants. We should go out and organize the consultants. Could you imagine a twenty-two-year-old telling you they want to get a job as a consultant? And I remember thinking to myself, "What the fuck do you know that you could consult on?" I was just <laughs> thinking about McKinsey. What? Right. McKinsey. I was thinking. So, Buddha Judge. Work for McKinsey. Well, yeah. So I was thinking, what if my show, let's pretend, just as, you know, imagine this is a thought exercise, that this show was successful at one time and made a lot of money. 
And then suddenly it was no longer making a lot of money. That's believable that it's no longer making. Money. <laughs> and I bring in somebody from, you know, with a Harvard MBA from McKinsey, Pete Buttigieg. And, and he's going to tell me how to turn my business around. Maybe. What would he tell me? Okay, there's a problem. There's a problem there. The, the way McKinsey works is they come aboard when you have a lot of money, not when you've lost a lot of money. Right. <laughs> oh, that's right. They, they don't really come aboard for cheap. Yeah, 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 I don't know if you know this, but the Saudi government is not, um, it's operated by McKinsey. It's not consulted by McKinsey. They literally do not trust handing over the administration of Saudi governance to citizens of Saudi Arabia. So that's they great. have the people of McKinsey actually do what, you know, sort of the, you know, but what the um, executive branches of, of the American government is tasked with doing in the Constitution, which is I didn't know that. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And there's no parliamentary meaningful parliament there, so they're basically doing what the royal family tells them to do uh, in terms of uh, implementing Soviet uh, Soviet Saudi government. <laughs> Soviet. That is so. Maybe Kinsey was with Gorbachev, and that's what happened there. And they and how can they not? provide inside information to hedge fund managers. If you are McKinsey, you have access. Snowden was with Booz Allen. He wasn't with the NSA. He was with Booz Allen. And Booz Allen is a consultant. And they're doing work for the NSA. And I think I think he was, if I remember correctly, and I could be mistaken, but I think he that was actually just his final position. He had been within the gov- formal government position previously with, with Snowden. Okay, but if you have Booz Allen getting contracts with the NSA and, yeah. Booz, and Booz Allen also has contracts yeah. with yeah. hedge fund managers, there's, a, there's church and state. There's no way anybody <laughs> is going to use inside information, like spy on Warren Buffett to see what yeah, he's so thinking. So we, so we need an amendment to the Constitution comparable to the First Amendment, right? Separation of uh, capital, and, capital and state. How's that? Yeah, you, it's what you said uh, earlier this year about the, stimu- the infrastructure bill. Is the government hiring people? Yes, that, right. Or you said, yeah. or are they giving all this money to, to contractors? Right. And, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be contracts with excessive. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, no, because the you're right. And that's in the reconciliation bill. But in the crap bill, the tiny one, it's also not just smaller. It's it's all um, uh, yeah. public private partnerships. So a subcontract. But why can't the government hire people like the post office and, and the internal revenue? Why can't the the civil why not have why not increase the number of people who work for the government? Because yeah. these because the folks in Congress are so tied in to the big dollars from the lobbyists. And, you know, that one of the rules that, that, that pretty much is pretty much dictated to them is these have to go out by way of private contract and private. You know what? Look at Eric Prince, sixty five hundred dollars to fly a person out of Afghanistan. That is the height of efficiency. That's what corporations can do. They can do it better than the Pentagon can. $6,500. 
play. We're so just. Can I, and I didn't. Here's something I, I asked myself because I, I I didn't get the full story on that. I mean, I heard what you just said, and I heard it a few days ago. So, and I thought to myself, wait a minute. Surely, if the United States tr- Marines and whoever else is in that airport, who's running the airport? Who's actually running the airport? Who's in the control tower, for example? Does anybody know? There's probably an air traffic controller in Arizona. Okay, so the U.S. is running the airport. I would right? think. I would think we have a right. guy. So that means that Eric Prince likely, if if he's really running these flights, he must have. It means, even though Trump is out, the fact is that the ties inside of the American military are so significant that this guy has, that he's gotten permission to land and take off chartered flights from that airport. Well, right? Is that what it means? Well, me, Eric Prince is no longer an American citizen. He moved. Didn't he move to like Abu Dhabi or something? And he's getting money from- What co- kind of flights are going in and out? Are there still regular commercial flights going in and out of that airport? No, I don't think so. I think when they Biden was calling on commercial airlines to participate, I think he's just talking about them designating a part of their fleet. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Yeah, they get drafted. Those those, right. you know, they get drafted. But how does Eric Prince um, that he wants to charge sixty five hundred dollars? That comes with the territory of being Eric Prince. But how does he get planes in and out? Or did let me get this? Did we abandon Bagram Air Base and literally hand it over to him? Well, other countries, I would assume he, he's a citizen of Abu Dhabi or the UAE. And I would assume that, you know, uh, Qatar, but that other countries are can fly in and out. They, It's not completely shut down. Plus, hey, there's you also the, remind me, is Eric Prince the brother of Betsy DeVos? Yes, he's a Christian yeah. warrior. Yeah. But he's also his biggest contract he ever received is from the Chinese government to provide security across for a transcontinental railroad the Chinese are working with African governments to build across Africa. And Eric Prince got the contract for the security on that? God damn it. He's not an American (laughs) citizen anymore. You know, it doesn't pay to study history, just study James Bond movies. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's great to do that's, that's fantastic that should be the name of your next book <laughs> that's such a great let's end on uh, this let's yeah. let's end on this so on uh the masked singer tonight uh lester holt revealed who shot ashley babbitt they had the big reveal i mean that was grotesque on the part of nbc news yeah, that you had to tune in to NBC News to find out who shot Ashley. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, well, remember who shot Jr. Yeah, from yeah. Dallas. Was I remember the, that. Well, yeah. who's Ashley Babbitt? Oh, Ashley Babbitt is the uh, the horse Wessel of the insurrectionists. She was the one who got shot. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, right. It's right, hard right. to. I, I know. I know. It's it's impossible. Jesus. And yeah. she's the martyr. You know, she was an unarmed woman uh, shot by a trigger happy cop. And you know how the Republicans are. You know, hate it when the cops shoot somebody who's unarmed. 
so they've, it, they turned out, I'm laughing because. Yeah, I, under, I understand. Yeah. His name is Lieutenant Michael Byrd. He's been cleared and he's an African-American. He's an African-American who shot an unarmed white woman. And uh, somebody pointed out, how would he know whether or not she was armed? Uh, they're going to have a field day with this guy. The right. Um, yeah, the, the, of course, the footage of it, which is which is really terrifying, is um, is um, in the New York Times um, video of the uh, January sixth invasion of the Capitol uh, that they did about but about a month ago. Which is, if people haven't seen it, it's, it is something to watch. Um, but they have it right there. You see him, you know, squeeze the the gun. You don't see his face though, because he's behind like a um, something like a bureau or something. And, uh, well, and let, me let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. If you're breaking down a window to get into the speaker's quarters of the House of Representatives and people are chanting, uh, where's Nancy, where's Nancy? And you're breaking through the window. You're the first one who's going to go through the window. You're Ashley Babbitt. And you look to your left and you see somebody pointing a gun at you. Yeah, people are saying there's a gun out, there's a gun out, be careful, there's a gun out. And she goes through, it's all, this thing was watched by millions of people, the New York Times thing. Yeah. It's up on YouTube, you can find it. But it's, um, you can see the whole thing. It's, it's just terrifying to watch them get killed like that. And um, I don't think she quite looks to the left. You almost get a sense that she's not, that's not registering for her or something. Um, but she steps I think up a lot of things were registering. For her, yeah, there we go. And the thing that too is that when you were talking about Ashley Babbitt, I thought you were talking about Lorena Bobbitt, and um, that's where my brain went. Yeah, <laughs> I thought, wow, that's coming back on the masked singer. That's going back away. <laughs> yeah, the masked singer. Well, they did a reveal, like well, we finally got to see. I mean, that was NBC should be ashamed of itself for that and giving Rachel Maddow thirty million dollars a year. That's her new contract. What to make of this of the deaths? Weren't there like a, a couple of suicides among the Capitol Police members? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, boy, you know, I mean, I know it, it has to be an incredible amount of um, cognitive dissonance you have to live with when you have the job as the Capitol Police, and basically half of the government, including the president, is yeah. advocating for the invasion of that you should be run over. Right. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. More cops die from suicide than from getting shot. Mm-hmm. It, the wor- in the worst years for cops, about 200 cops each year die in the line of duty. And most of those are from traffic accidents. They, they, they mm-hmm. you know, they don't get not too many. I mean, it's horrible when it happens, but uh, 200 cops in America die each year. Of those 200 who die on the job, it's mostly from heart attacks and car accidents. The yeah, sh- car accidents, I, yeah, absolutely. I saw one in New York City recently, although. It, but when they, shoot, when they shoot an unarmed black man, it's not because uh, they're afraid the unarmed black man is going to convince them to commit suicide or give them a heart attack. Mm-hmm or uh, kill them in a car accident. They shoot unarmed black men 
because they're utterly convinced that any black man they pull over has a gun and is going to shoot them. That's why they and they're racist. I just want to say, I just happened to look over here. Chloe in Pennsylvania says those folks who were invading the Capitol were absolutely convinced that it was all set up that the police wouldn't wouldn't resist or fire on them. And I, I wonder to what extent that may well be the case. I, okay, I, so. I think you're I think you're and there's new stuff yeah. being revealed. Well, Chloe, uh, thank you for that. Thank you, Professor Harvey J.K. Uh, we missed you last week. Thank you for your message. It meant a lot to me. Alan Minsky, thank you. I hope to see you uh, next week. I, I, normal people may not want to show up next week. It's the last gasp of summer. But uh, if you... Uh, Given the weather we've all been enduring this summer, I am so looking forward to cooler moments in the future. That presupposes that there will be. It does, yes. <laughs> have you seen Have you seen the planet lately? All right. Thank you both. Thank you. We'll wrap the show up. This was a great show. I didn't think we were going to be able to do it. Dan, are you still there? Chloe, do you know about uh, Ralph Nader's Congress Club? Because he's kind of doing what I asked you to do or what you do. But it's they Ralph will send if you join, if you go to Ralph Nader Radio Hour dot com and join the Congress Club, you will get uh, suggestions of what types of letters to write uh, to your Congress people. And I still believe that the answer is in the halls of Congress, that that we can take to the streets. That's important. But uh, the real power still is in Congress and the White House. And I fetishize, to quote uh, David Cobb, electoral politics. I think if we can win politically, we can uh, save this country. That's my, because I believe in democracy. I learned that from Professor Harvey J.K. All right. Okay, David. Thank you. Yeah, I think See it's real. I, I think it's real. You, you, two things. I keep quoting you. One is, uh, it ain't the left ain't is talking shit unless they're talking about labor. Everything else yeah. is noise. If you're not talking about unions and labor, you're full. Well, you didn't say that you're full of shit, but no, I didn't say that. No, but I, I, I think. Like yeah, I've been talking to lefties, and I guess I'm a lefty. But if you're not talking about unions, you're not a lefty. Yep. And that's okay. thank you. And thank you, David. Thank you. Bye -bye. And the answer is democracy. You know, with labels, uh, the answer is democracy. All right. Uh, thank you to Dan Frankenberger because uh, I didn't think <laughs> we were going to be the show. This is one of the worst starts of this show ever. I just wasn't prepared, but it turned out to be one of the best. Office hours 
it's not quite Friday at office hours, Friday night at 8 p.m. If you would like an invitation, just go to my website, hit attend office hours. And it sends you right to the gate and just type your name and address, email address in and you're in. If you would like to join us in the chat room, the Zoom room here, uh, get go to my website and hit attend a live taping and meet better people sit in our virtual studio audience studio audience and i think that's it rodrigo hi david this is rodrigo calling us from mexico so he says so i say yes uh i wanted to tell you about an anti-vaxxer from harvard but first uh is that a joke a tweet sent by a professor of medicine in Harvard. It's horrible. Yeah, Tucker Carlson quotes him, right? I don't know if it's the same one. Right. So what 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 does he say? I wanted to tell you first about... um, By the way, going up uh, against anti-vaxxers, which I did on Tuesday's show, the internet, like they own the internet. The internet was built for anti-vaxxers. Go ahead. um, I wanted to tell you about uh, misunderstanding the left has with... Nathan J. Robinson, because no one on the... Tell it, Nathan Robinson, the publisher of Current Affairs, who I've been making fun of because he preaches a democratic workplace. And then when his workplace got too democratic, he uh, fired everybody. But there's probably another side to that story. So go ahead. He didn't fire anyone from the janitorial staff or the website or the publishing side of the physical magazine, only this group of writers who told him, we think we should get a vote on your board of directors. Right. So that's not a, and he said how is that not a so and he said no so it's not a democratic workplace plus he's getting his phd at harvard and he graduated from yale law school and he dresses like a dandy and tries to pass himself off as a socialist a marxist he he's he's you know it's why people don't trust the left He's the, he is the reason people don't trust the left. I haven't heard his side. It's possible, even likely, that he's a bad leftist. But the writers that he fired have never mentioned, oh, and we were trying to get a union going, which uh, a lot of people on the Online left seem to confuse uh, co-op, a union with a co-op, mm-hmm. a cooperative. Where it's pronounced union. Uh, what did I say? You said union. 
And that's, uh, I'm not going to do a Jewish joke. <laughs> a Junian, uh, I can't do it. I will not do a Junian joke. Go ahead. Can you type it? <laughs> what? Can you type it on the chat? I'll do tomorrow. I'll make a Junian joke. But you, okay. you're, you, so you're from Mexico, so you pronounce Union Junian. I pronounce it how I hear it on TV. Who says Junian on TV? Do you hear with an accent? Maybe. I hear Junian. It's, uh, it's Union. And here's the thing, and maybe I'm out of line here, but if you're going to live in Mexico, learn to speak English. <laughs> Am I being, am I uh, an ugly American? Go ahead. How do you pronounce Jew? Jew. But oh. the pronoun Jew, I also pronounce the same. You. Jew. Jew are a Jew. Jew are a Jew. Jew are a Jew. That's what oh, I see. Okay. Interesting. How many languages do you speak? Uh, about four. About two four. Two well and two so-and-so. But, and yet, because, and I only speak one, and I can be kind of uh, condescending towards you, even though I only speak one language. This is why it's great to be an American, Rodrigo. <laughs> I'm dumber than you, but I, I can still make fun of the way you pronounce union. That's what, that's what America is all about. Anyway, I you, just you can, to... you can, you can be dumber than everybody else and not even know it. Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. Participate in your own oppression. Yes. yes. So Martin Kuldorf, whose bio says Professor Harvard Medical School, disease surveillance methods, infectious disease outbreaks, vaccine safety, free set scan, treat scan, and our sequential software, has said for thousands of years, disease pathogens have spread from person to person. Never before have carriers been blamed for infecting the next sick person. That is a very dangerous ideology. He has, he has 5,000 retweets when I posted that on the Discord. It's 7,000 now. This is what the internet was made for. And my reply was, how do you even graduate from Harvard without knowing about out-of-proportion responses to cholera or leprosy or pogroms or witch hunts or catch you catch the gay from the gay? I'm just asking questions. I'm scared Martin Kuldorf talked people at the CDC. And other people replied immediately with typhoid Mary. But his fans like that, oh, we've never blamed 
carriers for infecting the next sick person. They really like that idea. Well, I think it's great that everybody does their own research. Get the vaccine. The guy teaches doctors at Harvard. Get the vaccine. I don't trust the pharmaceutical companies. I don't trust Pfizer. Get the vaccine. All right. We're going to wrap it up. Thank you, David. Thank you, Rodrigo. Uh, I'll see you at office hours. And everybody should go to office hours. All right. In fact, Hannah and I are preparing something for Sarah and Andy tomorrow. And it isn't going to be pretty. It's not going to be nice. All right. Uh, I don't have my. I was so unprepared for today's show. Uh, I'm going to say, let's look at Rudy shaving. Let's just say, let's look at Rudy shaving. This is Rudy in a JFK where, at a restaurant, JFK Airport, where he's living now. I like that. Uh, okay, and do I have anything else I wanted to make sure that everybody saw? Yeah. All right, we don't have our usual theme song tonight. Uh, I hope to see... Professor Mike Steinel next week. And remember, ain't no party like a Feldman Coast party because a Feldman Coast party don't quit. Stay strong and protect the weak. Thank you.